Chapter 8 Production Entrepreneurship and Change 1. Entrepreneurial Profit and Loss Having developed in the previous chapters our basic analysis of the market economy, we now proceed to discuss more dynamic and specific applications, as well as the consequences of intervention in the market. In the evenly rotating economy, there are only two ultimate categories of producers' prices and incomes, interest, uniform throughout the economy, and wages, the prices of the services of various labor factors. In a changing economy, however, wage rates and the interest rate are not the only elements that can change. Another category of both positive and negative income appears, entrepreneurial profit and loss. We shall concentrate on the capitalist entrepreneurs, economically the more important type of entrepreneur. These are the men who invest in capital, land, and or capital goods used in the productive process. Their function is as we have described the advance of money to owners of factors and the consequent use of the goods until the more nearly present product is later sold. We have worked out the laws of the ERE in detail. Factor prices will equal DMVP. Every factor will be allocated to its most value-productive uses. Capital values will equal the sums of the DMVPs. The interest rate will be uniform and governed solely by time preferences, etc. The difference in the dynamic real world is this. None of these future values or events is known. All must be estimated, guessed at, by the capitalists. They must advance present money in a speculation upon the unknown future in the expectation that the future product will be sold at a remunerative price. In the real world, then, quality of judgment and accuracy of forecast play an enormous role in the incomes acquired by capitalists. As a result of the arbitrage of the entrepreneurs, the tendency is always toward the ERE. In consequence of ever-changing reality, changes in value scales and resources, the ERE never arrives. The capitalist entrepreneur buys factors or factor services in the present. His product must be sold in the future. He is always on the alert, then, for discrepancies, for areas where he can earn more than the going rate of interest. Suppose the interest rate is 5%. Jones can buy a certain combination of factors for 100 ounces. He believes that he can use this agglomeration to sell a product after two years for 120 ounces. His expected future return is 10% per annum. If his expectations are fulfilled, then he will obtain a 10% annual return instead of 5%. The difference between the general interest rate and his actual return is his money profit. From now on to be called simply profit, unless there is a specific distinction between money profit and psychic profit.
In this case, his money profit is 10 ounces for two years, or an extra 5% per annum. What gave rise to this realized profit, this ex-post profit fulfilling the producer's ex-ante expectations? The fact that the factors of production in this process were underpriced and undercapitalized, underpriced insofar as their unit services were bought, undercapitalized insofar as the factors were bought as wholes. In either case, the general expectations of the market erred by underestimating the future rents, MVPs, of the factors. This particular entrepreneur saw better than his fellows, however, and acted on this insight. He reaped the reward of his superior foresight in the form of a profit. His action, his recognition of the general undervaluation of productive factors, results in the eventual elimination of profits, or rather, in the tendency toward their elimination. By extending production in this particular process, he increases the demand for these factors and raises their prices. This result will be accentuated by the entry of competitors into the same area, attracted by the 10% rate of return. Not only will the rise in demand raise the prices of the factors, but the increase in output will lower the price of the product. The result will be a tendency for a fall in the rate of return back to the pure interest rate. What function has the entrepreneur performed? In his quest for profits, he saw that certain factors were underpriced vis-à-vis their potential value products. By recognizing the discrepancy and doing something about it, he shifted factors of production, obviously non-specific factors, from other productive processes to this one. He detected that the factors' prices did not adequately reflect their potential DMVPs. By bidding for and hiring these factors, he was able to allocate them from production of lower DMVP to production of higher DMVP. He has served the consumers better by anticipating where the factors are more valuable. For the greater value of the factors is due solely to their being more highly demanded by the consumers that is, being better able to satisfy the desires of the consumers. That is the meaning of a greater discounted marginal value product. It is clear that there is no sense whatever in talking of a going rate of profit. There is no such rate beyond the ephemeral and momentary for any realized profit tends to disappear because of the entrepreneurial actions it generates. The basic rate, then, is the rate of interest, which does not disappear. If we start with a dynamic economy, and if we postulate given value scales and given original factors and technical knowledge throughout, the result will be a wiping out of profits to reach an ERE with a pure interest rate. 
Continual changes in tastes and resources, however, constantly shift the final equilibrium goal and establish a new goal toward which entrepreneurial action is directed. And again, the final tendency in the ERE will be the disappearance of profits. For the ERE means the disappearance of uncertainty, and profit is the outgrowth of uncertainty. A grave error is made by a host of writers and economists in considering only profits in the economy. Almost no account is taken of losses. The economy should not be characterized as a profit economy, but as a profit and loss economy. As Frank H. Knight put it, one thing I miss in discussion generally in the field is any use of words recognizing that profit means profit or loss, and is in fact as likely to be a loss as a gain. Professor Knight's great contributions to profit theory are in sharp contrast to his errors in capital and interest theory. A loss occurs when an entrepreneur has made a poor estimate of his future selling prices and revenues. He bought factors, say, for 1,000 ounces, developed them into a product, and then sold it for 900 ounces. He erred in not realizing that the factors were overpriced and overcapitalized on the market in relation to their discounted marginal value products, that is, to the prices of his output. Every entrepreneur, therefore, invests in a process because he expects to make a profit that is, because he believes that the market has underpriced and undercapitalized the factors in relation to their future rents. If his belief is justified, he makes a profit. If his belief is unjustified, and the market, for example, has really overpriced the factors, he will suffer losses. The nature of loss has to be carefully defined. Suppose an entrepreneur, the market rate of interest being 5%, buys factors at 1,000 and sells their product for 1,020 one year later. Has he suffered a loss or made a profit? At first, it might seem that he has not taken a loss. After all, he gained back the principal plus an extra 20 ounces for a 2% net return or gain. However, closer inspection reveals that he could have made a 5% net return anywhere on his capital, since this is the going interest return. He could have made it, say, investing in any other enterprise or in lending money to consumer borrowers. In this venture, he did not even earn the interest gain. The cost of his investment, therefore, was not simply his expenses on factors, 1,000, but also his foregone opportunity of earning interest at 5%, that is, an additional 50. He therefore suffered a loss of 30 ounces. The absurdity of the concept of rate of profit is even more evident if we attempt to postulate a rate of loss. Obviously, no meaningful use can be made of rate of loss. 
entrepreneurs will be very quick to leave the losing investment and take their capital elsewhere. With entrepreneurs leaving the line of production, the prices of the factors there will drop, and the price of the product will rise, with reduced supply, until the net return in that branch of production will be the same as in every branch, and this return will be the uniform interest rate of the ERE. It is clear, therefore, that the process of equalization of rate of return throughout the economy, one that results in a uniform rate of interest, is the very same process that brings about the abolition of profits and losses in the ERE. A real economy, in other words, where line A yields a net return of 10% to some entrepreneur and line B yields 2%, while other lines yield 5%, is one in which the rate of interest is 5%. A makes a pure profit of 5% and B suffers a pure loss of 3%. A correctly estimated that the market had underpriced his factors in relation to their true DMVPs. B had incorrectly guessed that the market had underpriced, or at the very least, correctly priced, his factors, but found to his sorrow that they had been overpriced in relation to the uses that he made of the factors. In the ERE, where all future values are known and there is therefore no underpricing or overpricing, there are no entrepreneurial profits or losses. There is only a pure interest rate. In the real world, profits and losses are almost always intertwined with interest returns. Our separation of them is conceptually valid and very important, but cannot be made easily and quantitatively in practice. Let us sum up the essence of an evenly rotating economy. It is this. All factors of production are allocated to the areas where their discounted marginal value products are the greatest. These are determined by consumer demand schedules. In the modern world of specialization and division of labor, it is almost always the consumers alone who decide, and this, in effect, excludes the capitalists, who rarely consume more than a negligible amount of their own products. It is the consumers, then, given the natural facts of stocks of resources, particularly labor and land factors, who make the decisions for the economic system. The consumers, through their buying and abstention from buying, decide how much of what will be produced, at the same time determining the incomes of all the participating factors. And every man is a consumer. One obvious exception to this rule occurs when either capitalists or laborers have strong preferences or dislikes for a particular line of production. The equilibrium rate of return in the ERE for a strongly disliked line will be considerably higher than the uniform rate, and the equilibrium rate of return for a strongly liked line will be lower. 
These preferences, however, have to be strong enough to affect the investment or productive actions of a considerable number of potential investors or laborers in order to register as a change in the rate of return. Do profits have a social function? Many critics point to the ERE, where there are no profits or losses, and then attack entrepreneurs earning profits in the real world as if they were doing something mischievous or, at best, unnecessary. Are not profits an index of something wrong, of some maladjustment in the economy? The answer is yes. Profits are an index of maladjustment, but in a sense precisely opposed to that usually meant. As we have seen, profits are an index that maladjustments are being met and combated by the profit-making entrepreneurs. These maladjustments are the inevitable concomitants of the real world of change. A man earns profits only if he has, by superior foresight and judgment, uncovered a maladjustment, specifically an undervaluation of certain factors by the market. By stepping into this situation and gaining the profit, he calls everyone's attention to that maladjustment and sets forces into motion that eventually eliminate it. If we must condemn anyone, it should not be the profit-making entrepreneur, but the one that has suffered losses. For losses are a sign that he has added further to a maladjustment through allocating factors where they were overvalued as compared to the consumer's desire for their product. On the other hand, the profit-maker is allocating factors where they had been undervalued as compared to the consumer's desires. The greater a man's profit has been, the more praiseworthy his role. For then, the greater is the maladjustment that he alone has uncovered and is combating. The greater a man's losses, the more blameworthy he is, for the greater has been his contribution to maladjustment. We may make such value judgments, of course, only to the extent that we believe it is good to correct maladjustments and to serve the consumers, and bad to create such maladjustments. These value judgments, therefore, are not at all praxeological truths, though most people would probably subscribe to them. Those who prefer maladjustments in serving consumers will adopt the opposite value judgments. Of course, we should not be too hard on the bumbling loser. He receives his penalty in the form of losses. These losses drive him from his poor role in production— if he is a consistent loser wherever he enters the production process, he is driven out of the entrepreneurial role altogether. He returns to the job of wage earner. In fact, the market tends to reward its efficient entrepreneurs and penalize its inefficient ones proportionately. In this way, consistently provident entrepreneurs see their capital and resources growing, while consistently imprudent ones find their resources dwindling. The former play a larger and larger role in the production process. The latter are forced to abandon entrepreneurship altogether. There is no inevitably self-reinforcing tendency about this process, however— 
If a formerly good entrepreneur should suddenly make a bad mistake, he will suffer losses proportionately. If a formerly poor entrepreneur makes a good forecast, he will make proportionate gains. The market is no respecter of past laurels, however large. Moreover, the size of a man's investment is no guarantee whatever of a large profit or against grievous losses. Capital does not beget profit. Only wise entrepreneurial decisions do that. A man investing in an unsound venture can lose 10,000 ounces of gold as surely as a man engaging in a sound venture can profit on an investment of 50 ounces. Beyond the market process of penalization, we cannot condemn the unfortunate capitalist who suffers losses. He was a man who voluntarily assumed the risks of entrepreneurship and suffered from his poor judgment by incurring losses proportionate to his error. Outside critics have no right to condemn him further. As Mises says, Nobody has the right to take offense at the errors made by the entrepreneurs in the conduct of affairs and to stress the point that people would have been better supplied if the entrepreneurs had been more skillful and prescient. If the grumbler knew better, why did he not himself fill the gap and seize the opportunity to earn profits? It is easy indeed to display foresight after the event. Two. THE EFFECT OF NET INVESTMENT Having considered the ERE and its relation to specific entrepreneurial profit and loss, let us now turn to the problem, when will there be aggregate profits or losses in the economy? This is connected with the question, what is the effect of a change in the level of aggregate saving or investment in the economy? Let us begin with an economy in the equilibrium depicted in chapters 5 and 6. Production occurs in processes up to six years in total length. Total gross income is 418 gold ounces. Gross savings investment is 318 ounces. Total consumption, 100 ounces. Net savings investment is zero. Of the 100 ounces of income, 83 ounces of net income are earned by land and labor owners, 17 ounces by capital owners. The production structure remains constant because the natural rates of interest coincide and the resulting price spreads conform to the aggregate of individual time preference schedules in the economy. As Hayek states, whether the structure of production remains the same depends entirely upon whether entrepreneurs find it profitable to reinvest the usual proportion of the return from the sale of the product in turning out intermediate goods of the same sort. Whether this is profitable, again, depends upon the prices obtained for the product of this particular stage of production on the one hand, and on the prices paid for the original means of production and for the intermediate products taken from the preceding stage of production on the other. 
the continuance of the existing degree of capitalistic organization depends accordingly on the prices paid and obtained for the product of each stage of production, and these prices are, therefore, a very real and important factor in determining the direction of production. What happens if, in a certain period, there are now net savings as a result of a lowering of time preference schedules? Suppose, for example, that consumption decreases from 100 to 80, and that the saved 20 ounces enter the time market. Gross savings have increased by 20 ounces. During the transition period, net saving has changed from 0 to 20. After the new level of saving has been reached, however, there will be a new equilibrium, with gross savings equaling 338 and net savings equaling zero. To the superficial, it might seem that all is lost. Has not consumption decreased from 100 to 80 ounces? What then will happen to the whole complex of productive activities that rest on final consumption sales? Will this not lead to a disastrous depression for all firms? And how can a reduced consumption profitably support an increased volume of expenditures on producers' goods? The latter has aptly been termed by Hayek the paradox of saving, that is, that saving is the necessary and sufficient condition for increased production, and yet that such investment seems to contain within itself the seeds of financial disaster for the investors. It is clear that the volume of money incomes to Capitalists One will be drastically reduced. Capitalists One will receive a total of 80 instead of 100 ounces. The amount that they have to apportion to original factors and to capitalists, too, is therefore also considerably decreased. Thus, from the side of final consumers' spending, an impetus toward declining money incomes and prices is sent along the production structure. In the meanwhile, however, another force has concurrently come into play— the 20 ounces have not been lost to the system. They are in the process of being invested in the economy, their owners ranging throughout the economy looking for maximum interest returns on their investment. The new savings have changed the ratio of gross investment to consumption from 318 to 100 to 338 to 80. A narrower consumption base must support a larger amount of producers' spending. How can this happen, especially since the lower-rank capitalists must also receive a lower aggregate income? The answer is in only one way. By shifting investment further up the ladder to the higher-order production stages— Simple investigation will reveal that the only way that so much investment can be shifted from the lower to the higher stages, while preserving uniform lowered interest differentials, cumulative price spreads at each stage, is to increase the number of productive stages in the economy, that is, to lengthen the structure of production, 
The impact of net saving on the economy, that is, of increased total savings, is to lengthen and narrow the structure of production, and this procedure is viable and self-supporting, since it preserves essential price spreads from stage to stage. Let us consider the price changes in the various stages and the processes by which they occur. In the lower stages, prices fall because of the lower consumer demand and the resulting shift of investment capital from the stages nearest consumption. In the higher stages, on the other hand, demand for factors increases under the impact of the new savings and the shift in investment from the lower levels. The increased investment expenditure in the higher levels raises the prices of the factors in these stages. It is as if the impact of lower consumer demand tends to die out in the higher stages and is more and more counteracted by the increase and shift in investment funds. The process of readjustment to lower price spreads caused by increased gross saving has been lucidly described by Hayek. As he states, the final effect will be that, through the fall of prices in the later stages of production and the rise of prices in the earlier stages of production, price margins between the different stages of production will have decreased all round. The changes in cumulative prices in the various sectors will lead to changes in the prices of the particular goods that enter into the cumulation of factors. These factors are, of course, the capital goods, land, and labor factors, and are ultimately reducible to the latter two, since capital goods are produced and reproduced factors. It is clear that lower aggregate demand in the lower stages will cause the prices of the various factors there to decline. The specific factors will have to bear the brunt of the decline since they have nowhere else to go. The non-specific factors, on the other hand, can and do go elsewhere, to the earlier stages, where the monetary demand for factors has increased. The pricing of capital goods is ultimately unimportant in this connection because it is reducible to the prices of land, labor, and time, and because the interest spread indicates the mode of pricing of the capital goods. The ultimately important factors, then, are land, labor, and time. The time element has been extensively considered and accounts for the interest spread. It is the land and labor elements that constitute the fundamental resources being shifted or remaining in production. Some land is specific and some non-specific. Some can be used in several alternative types of productive processes. Some can be used in only one type. Labor, on the other hand, is almost always non-specific. Very rare indeed is the person who could conceivably perform only one type of task. Of course, the productivity of a labor factor will differ from one task to another. No one disputes this. Indeed, if this were not so, the factor would be purely non-specific, and we have seen that this is an impossibility. 
specific is here used to mean pure specificity for one production process. Of course, there are different degrees of non-specificity for any factor, and the less specific ones will be more readily shifted from one stage or product to another. Those factors which are specific to only one particular stage and process will therefore fall in price in the later stages and rise in the earlier stages. What of the non-specific factors, which include all labor factors? These will tend to shift from the later to the earlier stages. At first, there will be a difference in the price of each non-specific factor. It will be lower in the lower stages and higher in the higher stages. In equilibrium, however, as we have seen time and again, there must be a uniform price for any factor throughout the economy. The lower demand in the lower stages and the consequent lower price, coupled with the higher demand and higher price in the higher stages, causes the shift of the factor from later to earlier stages. The shift ceases when the price of the factor is again uniform throughout. We have seen the impact of new saving, that is, a shift from consumption to investment on the prices of goods at various levels. What, however, is the aggregate impact of a change to a higher level of gross savings on the prices of factors? Here we reach a paradoxical situation. Net income is the total amount of money that ultimately goes to factors, land, labor, and time. In any equilibrium situation, net saving is zero by definition, since net saving means a change in the level of gross saving over the previous period of time, and net income equals consumption and consumption alone. Total income for original factors and interest can come only from net rather than gross income. Let us consider the new ERE after the change has taken place to a higher level of saving, ignoring for a moment the relevant conditions during the period of change. Gross savings equals gross investment has increased from 318 to 338, but consumption has declined from 100 to 80, and it is consumption that provides the net income in the equilibrium situation. Net income is, as it were, the fund out of which money prices and incomes are paid to original factors, and this fund has declined. The recipients of the net income fund are the original factors, labor and land, and interest on time. We know that the interest rate declines. This is a corollary of the increased saving and investment in the productive system caused by lower time preference. However, the absolute amount of interest income is gross investment multiplied by the rate of interest. Gross investment has increased so that it is impossible for economic analysis to determine whether interest income has fallen, increased, or remained the same. Any of these alternatives is a possibility. 
What happens to total original factor income is also indeterminate. Two forces are pulling different ways in a progressing economy, an economy with increasing gross investment. On the one hand, the total net income money fund is falling. On the other hand, if the interest decline is large enough, it is possible that the fall in interest income will outstrip the fall in total net income, so that total factor income actually increases. For this to occur is possible but empirically highly unlikely. The one certain prospect is that total net income for factors and interest will fall. If the total original factor income falls then, since we have implicitly been assuming a given supply of original factors, the prices of these factors, as well as the interest rate, will, in general, also decline. That the general trend of original factor incomes and prices may well be downward is a startling conclusion, for it is difficult to conceive of a progressing economy as one in which factor prices, such as wage rates and ground rents, steadily decline. What interests us, however, is not the course of money incomes and prices of factors, but of real incomes and prices, that is, the goods income accruing to factors. If money wage rates or wage incomes fall, and the supply of consumers' goods increases, such that the prices of these goods fall even more, the result is a rise in real wage rates and real incomes to factors. That this is precisely what does happen solves the paradox that a progressing economy experiences falling wages and rents. There may be a fall in money terms, although not in all conceivable cases, but there will always be a rise in real terms. The rise in real rates and incomes is due to the increase in the marginal physical productivity of factors that always results from an increase in saving and investment. The increased productivity of the longer production processes leads to a greater physical supply of capital goods, and most important, of consumers' goods, with a consequent fall in the prices of consumers' goods. As a result, even if the money prices of labor and land fall, those of consumers' goods will always fall farther, so that real factor incomes will rise. That this is always true in a progressing economy can be seen from the following considerations. At any time, the wage or rent of the service of an original factor of production will equal its DMVP, the discounted marginal value product. This DMVP is equal to the MVP, marginal value product, divided by a discount factor, say, D, which is directly dependent on the rate of interest, the MVP, in turn, is approximately equal to the MPP, marginal physical product, of the factor, times the selling price, 
that is, the final price of the consumer's good product. In this discussion, we are considering the prices of consumers' goods in general or in the aggregate. The real prices of the original factors equal the money prices divided by the prices of consumers' goods. Strictly, there is no precise praxeological way of measuring these aggregates or real income based on changes in the purchasing power of money. But we can make qualitative statements about these elements, even though we cannot make precise quantitative measurements. Now, the progressing economy consists of two leading features: an increase in the MPP of original factors, resulting from more productive and longer production processes, and a fall in the discount or interest rate concomitant with falling time preference and increasing gross investment. Both elements, the increase in MPP and the fall in D, impel an increase in the real prices of factor services in a progressing economy. The conclusion is that in a progressing economy, that is, in an economy with increases in gross savings and investment, money wages and ground rents may well fall. But real wages and rents will rise. Historically, the advancing capitalist economy has coincided with an expanding money supply, so that we have rarely had an empirical illustration of the pure process described. We must remember that we have throughout been making the implicit assumption that the money relation, the demand for, and particularly the supply of money, remains unchanged. Effects of changes in this relation will be considered in Chapter Eleven. The only relaxation of this assumption here is that the number of stages increases, and this tends to increase the demand for money. To that extent, one question that immediately presents itself is: How can the prices of factors decline while the gross income remains the same and gross investment even increases? The answer is that the increase in investment goes into increasing the number of stages, pushing back the stages of production, and employing longer production processes. It is this increasing roundaboutness that causes every increase in capital, even if unaccompanied by an advance in technological knowledge, to lead to higher physical productivity per original factor. The increase in gross investment, in particular, raises the prices of capital goods at the highest stages, encouraging new stages and inducing entrepreneurs to shift factors into this new and flowering field. The larger gross investment fund is absorbed, so to speak, by higher prices of high-order capital goods and by the consequent new stages of turnover of these goods. The demand for money increases to the extent that each gold unit must turn over more times in the increased number of stages, thus tending to lower the general level of prices. Three, 
Capital Values and Aggregate Profits in a Changing Economy Net saving, as we have seen, increases gross investment in the economy. This increase in gross investment at first accrues as profits to the firms doing the increased business. These profits will accrue particularly in the higher stages, toward which old capital is shifting and in which new capital is invested. An accrual of profits to a firm increases by that amount the capital value of its assets, just as the losses decrease the capital value. The first impact of the new investment, then, is to cause aggregate profits to appear in the economy, concentrated in the new production processes in the higher stages. As the transition to the new ERE begins to take place, however, these profits more and more become imputed to the factors for which these entrepreneurs must pay in production. Eventually, if no other interfering changes occur, the result will be a disappearance of profits in the economy, a settling into the new ERE, an increase in real wages and other real rents, and an increase in the real capital value of ground land. This latter result, of course, is in perfect conformity with the previous conclusion that a progressing economy will lead to an increase in the real rents of ground land and a fall in the rate of interest. These two factors in conjunction both impel a rise in the real capital value of ground land. Future rises in the real values of rents can be either anticipated or not anticipated. To the extent they are anticipated, the rise in future rents is already accounted for and discounted in the capital value of the whole land. A rise in the far future may be anticipated, but will have no appreciable effect on the present price of land, simply because time preference places a very distant date beyond the effective time horizon of the present. To the extent that rises in the real rate are not foreseen, then, of course, entrepreneurial errors have been made, and the market has undercapitalized in the present price. Throughout the whole history of landholding, therefore, income from basic land can be earned in only three ways. We are omitting improving the land. 1. Through entrepreneurial profit in correcting the forecasting errors of others. 2. As interest return. Or 3. By a rise in the capital value to the first finder and user of the land. The first type of income is obvious and not unique. It is pervasive in any field of enterprise. The second type of income is the general income earned by ground land. Because of the market phenomenon of capitalization, income from ground land is largely interest return on investment, just as in any other business. The only unique component of income that ground land confers, therefore, is 3, accruing to the first user, whose land value began at zero and became positive. After that, the buyer of the land must pay its capitalized value. To earn rent on ground land, in other words, a man must either buy it or find it.
and in the former case he earns only interest and not pure rent. The capitalized value can increase from time to time and not be discounted in advance only if some new and unexpected development occurs, or if better knowledge of the future comes to light, in which case the previous owner has suffered an entrepreneurial loss in profit foregone for not having anticipated the new situation, and the current owner earns an entrepreneurial profit. The only unique aspect to ground land, then, is that it is found and first put on the market at some particular time, so that the first user earns pure rent as a result of his initial discovery and use of the land. All later increases in the capital value of the land are accounted for in the value, either as entrepreneurial profits resulting from better forecasting, or as interest return. The first user earns his gain only at first, and not at whatever later date he actually sells the land. After the capital value has increased, his refusal to sell the land involves an opportunity cost, the foregone utility of selling the land for its capital value. Therefore, his true gain was reaped earlier, when the capital value of his land increased, and not at the later date when he took his gain in the form of money. If we set aside uncertainty and entrepreneurial profits for a moment and assume the highly unlikely condition that all future changes can be anticipated correctly by the market, then all future increases in the value of ground rents will be capitalized back into the land when it is first found and put into use. This is not the same as assuming an ERE, for in the ERE there are no changes to be foreseen. The first finder will reap the net gain immediately, and from then on all that will be earned by him and by successive heirs or purchasers is the usual interest return. When future rises are too remote to enter into the capitalized price, this is simply a phenomenon of time preference, not a sign of some mysterious breakdown in the market's process of adjustment. The fact that complete discounting never takes place is due to the presence of uncertainty, and the result is a continual accretion of entrepreneurial gains through rising capital values of land. Thus we see, this time from the landowner's point of view, that aggregate gains in capital value are synonymous with aggregate profits. Aggregate profits begin with the higher-order firms, then filter down until they increase real wages and the aggregate profits of landowners, particularly owners of land specific to the higher-order stages of production. Land specific to the lower stages will, of course, bear the brunt of decreases in capital value, that is, losses in the progressing economy. As the only income to ground land that is not profit or interest, we are left with the original gains to the first finder of land. But here again, there is capitalization and not a pure gain. 
pioneering, finding new land, that is, new natural resources, is a business like any other. Investing in it takes capital, labor, and entrepreneurial ability. The expected rents of finding and using are taken into account when the investments and expenses of exploration and shaping into use are made. Therefore, these gains are also capitalized backward in the original investment, and the tendency will be for them, too, to be the usual interest return on the investment. Deviations from this return will constitute entrepreneurial profits and losses. Therefore, we conclude that there is practically nothing unique about incomes from ground land, and that all net income in the productive system goes to wages, to interest, and to profit. A progressive economy is marked by aggregate net profits. When there is a shift from one savings investment level to a higher one, therefore a progressing economy, aggregate profits are earned in the economy, particularly in the higher stages of production. The increased gross investment first increases the aggregate capital value of firms that earn net profits. As production and investment increase in the higher stages and the effects of the new saving continue, the profits disappear and become imputed to increases in real wage rates and in real ground rents. The latter effect, added to a fall in the rate of interest, leads to a rise in the real capital values of ground land. What happens when there is a shift in the reverse direction, a changed proportion such that gross saving and investment decline and consumption increases? For the most part, we may simply trace the earlier analysis in reverse. That is, consider the shift from a 338 to 80 situation to a 318 to 100 situation. During the transition to a new equilibrium, there would be a net dissaving of 20 ounces, since gross saving decreases from 338 to 318. There would also be a net disinvestment of the same amount. The cause of such a shift would be an increase in the time preference schedules of the individuals on the market. This would increase the rate of interest and widen the interest spread between cumulative prices in the production stages. It would broaden the consumption base but leave less money available for saving and investment. There would be higher prices for consumers' goods, and therefore a greater demand for factors in this and other lower stages. On the other hand, there would be general abandonment of the higher stages in the face of the monetary attractions of the later stages, the decline in investment funds, and the shift of these funds from the higher to the lower stages. Specific factors will bear the brunt of lowered incomes and sheer abandonment in the higher stages, and they will gain in the lower stages. There will be a rise in net income and consumption in monetary terms, and therefore a rise in aggregate factor income. The interest rate increases, while the gross investment base declines. 
In real terms, the important result is a lowering in the physical productivity of labor and of land because of the abandonment of the most productive processes of production, the lengthiest ones. The lower output at every stage, the lower supply of capital goods, and the consequent lower output of consumers' goods leads to a lowering in the standard of living. Money wage rates and money rents may rise, although this possibly might not occur because of the higher interest rate. But the prices of consumers' goods will rise further because of the reduced physical supply of goods. The rise in general money prices in monetary terms is accounted for by the decreased demand for money as a result of the lower number of stages for the monetary unit to turn over in. The case of decreasing gross capital investment is defined as a retrogressing economy. The definitions of the progressing and the retrogressing economy differ from those of Mises in human action. They are defined here as an increase or a decrease in capital in society, while Mises defines them as an increase or a decrease in total capital per person in the society. The present definitions focus on the analysis of saving and investment, population growth or decline being a very different phase of the subject. When we are making an historical welfare assessment of the conditions of the economy, however, the question of production per capita becomes important. The decreased investment is first revealed as aggregate losses in the economy, particularly losses to firms in the highest stages of production, the firms which are now losing customers. As time proceeds, these losses will tend to disappear as firms leave the industry and abandon the now unprofitable production processes. The losses will thereby be imputed to factors in the form of lower real wage rates and lower real rents, which, combined with a higher interest rate, cause lower real capital values of ground land. Particularly hard hit will be the factors specific to these lines of production. The reason why there are aggregate profits in the progressing economy and aggregate losses in the retrogressing economy may be demonstrated in the following way. For profits to appear, there must be undercapitalization or overdiscounting of productive factors on the market. For losses to appear, there must be overcapitalization or underdiscounting of factors on the market. But if the economy is stationary, that is, if from one period to another the total gross investment remains constant, the total value of capital remains constant. There might be an increase of investment in one line of production, but this is made possible only by a decrease elsewhere. Aggregate capital values remain constant, and therefore any profits, the result of mistaken undercapitalization, must be offset by equal losses, the result of mistaken overcapitalization.
In the progressing economy, on the other hand, there are additional investment funds made available through new savings, and this provides a source for new revenue not yet capitalized anywhere in the system. These constitute the aggregate net profits during this period of change. In the retrogressing economy, investment funds are lowered, and this leaves net areas of overcapitalization of factors in the economy. Their owners suffer aggregate net losses during this period of change. It is possible that the changes in investment were anticipated in the market. To the extent that an increase or a decrease was anticipated, the aggregate profits or losses will accrue in the form of a gain in capital value before the actual change in investment takes place. Losses arise during retrogression because previously employed processes have to be abandoned. The fact that the highest stages, already begun, have to be abandoned is an indication that the shift was not fully anticipated by the producers. Thus, another conclusion of our analysis is that aggregate profits will equal aggregate losses in a stationary economy, that is, profits and losses will equal zero. This stationary economy is not the same construct as the evenly rotating economy that has played such a large role in our analysis. In the stationary economy, uncertainty does not disappear, and no unending constant round pervades all elements in the system. There is, in fact, only one constancy, total capital invested. Clearly, the stationary economy, like all other economies, tends to evolve into the ERE, given constant data. After a time, market forces will tend to eliminate all individual profits and losses, as well as aggregate profits and losses. We might pause here to consider briefly the old problem, are capital gains, increases in capital value, Income. If we fully realize that profits and capital gains and losses and capital losses are identical, the solution becomes clear. No one would exclude business profits from money income. The same should be true of capital gains. In the ERE, of course, there are neither capital gains nor capital losses. Let us now return to the case of the retrogressing economy and a decrease in capital investment. The greater the shift from saving to consumption, the more drastic will the effects tend to be, and the greater the lowering of productivity and living standards. The fact that such shifts can and do happen serves to refute easily the fashionable assumption that our capital structure is, by some magical provision or hidden hand, permanently and eternally self-reproducing once it is built. No positive acts of saving by capitalists are deemed necessary to maintain it. The ruins of Rome are mute illustrations of the error of this assumption. Refusal to maintain the value of capital, that is, the process of net dissaving, is known as consuming capital. 
granting the impossibility of measuring the value of capital in society with any precision, this is still a highly important concept. Consuming capital means, of course, not eating machines, as some critics have scoffingly referred to it, but failing to maintain existing gross investment and the existing capital goods structure, using some of these funds instead for consumption expenditure. It is often assumed that only depreciation funds for durable capital goods are available for capital consumption, but this overlooks a very large part of capital, so-called circulation capital, the less durable capital goods which pass quickly from one stage to another. As each stage receives funds from its sale of these or other goods, it is not necessary for the producer to continue to repurchase circulation capital. These funds, too, may be immediately spent on consumption. Professor Frank H. Knight has been the leader of the school of thought that assumes capital to be automatically permanent. Knight has contributed a great deal to economics in his analysis of profit theory and entrepreneurship, but his theories of capital and interest have misled a generation of American economists. Knight succinctly summed up his doctrine in an attack on the Austrian investment theory of Brumbawerk and Hayek. Knight said that the latter involved two fallacies— one is that Bermbawerk viewed production as the production of concrete goods, whereas in reality what is produced and consumed is services. There is no real problem here, however. It is not to be denied, in fact it has been stressed herein, that goods are valued for their services. Yet it is also undeniable that the concrete capital goods structure must be produced before its services can be obtained. The second alleged correction, and here we come directly to the problem of capital consumption, is that the production of any service includes the maintenance of things used in the process, and this includes reproduction of any which are used up really a detail of maintenance. This is obviously incorrect. Services are yielded by things, at least in the cases relevant to our discussion, and they are produced through the using up of things, of capital goods. And this production does not necessarily include maintenance and reproduction. This alleged detail is a completely separate area of choice and involves the building up of more capital at a later date to replace the used-up capital. The case of the retrogressing economy is our first example of what we may call a crisis situation. A crisis situation is one in which firms in the aggregate are suffering losses, the crisis aspect of the case is aggravated by a decline in production through the abandonment of the highest production stages. The troubles arose from under-saving and under-investment, that is, a shift in people's values so that they do not now choose to save and invest enough to enable continuation of production processes begun in the past. 
We cannot simply be critical of this shift, however, since the people, given existing conditions, have decided voluntarily that their time preferences are higher, and that they wish to consume more proportionately at present, even at the cost of lowering future productivity. Once an increase to a greater level of gross investment occurs, therefore, it is not maintained automatically. Producers have to maintain the gross investment, and this will be done only if their time preferences remain at the lower rates and they continue to be willing to save a greater proportion of gross monetary income. We have demonstrated further that this maintenance and further progress can take place without any increase in the money supply or other change in the money relation. Progress can occur, in fact, with falling prices of all products and factors. 4. Capital Accumulation and the Length of the Structure of Production We have been demonstrating that investment lengthens the structure of production. Now we may consider some criticisms of this approach. Bumbawerk is the great founder of production structure analysis, but unfortunately he left room for misinterpretation by identifying capital accumulation with adopting more roundabout methods of production. Thus, consider his famous example of the Crusoe, who must first construct and then maintain a net if he wishes to catch more than the number of fish he can catch without any capital. Bumbawerk stated, The roundabout ways of capital are fruitful but long. They procure us more or better consumption goods, but only at a later period of time. Calling these methods roundabout is definitely paradoxical, for do we not know that men always strive to achieve their ends in the most direct and shortest manner possible? As Mises demonstrates, rather than speak of the higher productivity of roundabout methods of production, it is more appropriate to speak of the higher physical productivity of production processes requiring more time. Longer processes. Now, let us suppose that we are confronted with an array of possible production processes based on their physical productivities. We may also rank the processes in accordance with their length, that is, in terms of the waiting time between the input of the resources and the yielding of the final product. The longer the waiting period between first input and final output, the greater the disutility, ceteris paribus, since more time must elapse before the satisfaction is attained. The first processes to be used will be those most productive in value and physically, and the shortest. No one has maintained that all long processes are more productive than all short processes. Similarly, there are numerous long processes which are not productive at all, or which are less productive than shorter processes. These longer processes will obviously not be chosen at all. 
In sum, while all new investment will be in longer processes, it certainly does not follow that all longer processes are more productive and therefore worthy of investment. The point is, however, that all short and ultra-productive processes will be the first ones to be invested in and established. Given any present structure of production, a new investment will not be in a shorter process because the shorter, more productive process would have been chosen first. As we have seen, there is only one way by which man can rise from the ultra-primitive level, through investment in capital. But this cannot be accomplished through short processes, since the short processes for producing the most valuable goods will be the ones first adopted. Any increase in capital goods can serve only to lengthen the structure, that is, to enable the adoption of longer and longer productive processes. Men will invest in longer processes more productive than the ones previously adopted. They will be more productive in two ways. One, by producing more of a previously produced good, and or two, by producing a new good that could not have been produced at all by the shorter processes. Within this framework, these longer processes are the most direct that must be used to attain the goal, not more roundabout. Thus, if Crusoe can catch ten fish per day directly without capital, and can catch one hundred fish per day with a net, building a net should not be considered as a more roundabout method of catching fish, but as the most direct method for catching one hundred fish a day. Furthermore, no amount of labor and land without capital could enable a man to produce an automobile. For this, a certain amount of capital is required. The production of the requisite amount of capital is the shortest and most direct method of obtaining an automobile. Any new investment will therefore be in a longer and more productive method of production. Yet, if there were no time preference, the most productive methods would be invested in first, regardless of time, and an increase in capital would not cause more productive methods to be used. The existence of time preference acts as a break on the use of the more productive but longer processes. Any state of equilibrium will be based on the time preference or pure interest rate, and this rate will determine the amount of savings and capital invested. It determines capital by imposing a limit on the length of the production processes, and therefore on the maximum amount produced. A lowering of time preference, therefore, and a consequent lowering of the pure rate of interest, signify that people are now more willing to wait for any given amount of future output, that is, to invest more proportionately and in longer processes than heretofore. 
A rise in time preference and in the pure interest rate means that people are less willing to wait and will spend proportionately more on consumers' goods and less on the longer production processes, so that investments in the longest processes will have to be abandoned. It should be clear that, as Mises lucidly put it, originary, pure interest is not a price determined on the market by the interplay of the demand for and the supply of capital or capital goods. Its height does not depend on the extent of this demand and supply. It is rather the rate of originary interest that determines both the demand for and the supply of capital and capital goods. It determines how much of the available supply of goods is to be devoted to consumption in the immediate future and how much to provision for remoter periods of the future. One qualification to the law that increased investment lengthens production processes appears when investment turns to a type of good which is less useful than the goods previously acquired, yet which has a shorter process of production than some of the others. Here, the investment in this process was checked not by the length of the process, but by its inferior value productivity. Yet even here, the structure of production was lengthened, since people have to wait longer for the new and the old goods than they previously did for the old good. New capital investment always lengthens the overall structure of production. What of the case where a technological invention permits a more productive process with a lesser amount of capital investment? Is this not a case in which increased investment shortens the production structure? Up to this point, we have been assuming technological knowledge as given, yet it is not given in the dynamic world. Technological advance is one of the most dramatic features of the world of change. What, then, of these capital-saving inventions? One interesting example was cited by Horace White in a criticism of Bermbaverk. Oil was produced first by ships hunting in the Arctic for whales, the whale oil being processed from the whales, etc., an obviously lengthy production process. Later, an invention permitted people to bore for oil in the ground, thereby immeasurably shortening the production period. Aside from the fact that, empirically, most inventions do not shorten physical production processes, we must reply that the limits at any time on investment and productivity are a scarcity of saved capital, not the state of technological knowledge. In other words, there is always an unused shelf of technological projects available and idle. This is demonstrable by the fact that a new invention is not immediately and instantaneously adopted by all firms in the society. Therefore, any further investment will lengthen production processes, many of them more productive because of superior technique. 
A new invention does not automatically impel itself into production, but first joins the unused array. Further, in order for the new invention to be used, more capital must be invested. The ships for whaling have already been built. The oil wells and machinery, etc., must be created anew. Even the newly invented method will yield a greater product only through further investment in longer processes. In other words, the only way to obtain more oil now is to invest more capital in more machinery and lengthier production periods in the oil drilling business. As Bumbaverk pointed out, White's criticism would apply only if the invention were progressively capital-saving, so that the product would always increase with the shortening of the process, but in that case, boring for oil with one's bare hands, unaided by capital, would have to be more productive than drilling for oil with machinery. Bumbaverk drew the analogy of an agricultural invention applied to two grades of land, one grade previously yielding a marginal product of 100 bushels of wheat, the lower grade yielding 80 bushels. Now suppose use of the invention raises the marginal product of the lower grade land to 110 bushels. Does this mean that the poorer land now yields more than the fertile land, and that the effect of agricultural inventions is to make poorer lands more productive than fertile ones? Yet this is precisely analogous to White's position, which maintains that inventions may cause shorter production processes to be more productive. As Bumbaverk pointed out, it is obvious that the source of the error is this. Inventions increase the physical productivity of both grades of land. The better land becomes still better. Similarly, perhaps it is true that an invention will cause a shorter process to be more productive now than a longer process was previously. But this does not mean that it is superior to all longer processes. Longer processes using the invention will still be more productive than the shorter ones. Boring for oil with machinery is more productive than boring for oil without machinery. Technological inventions have received a far more important place than they deserve in economic theory. It has often been assumed that production is limited by the state of the arts, by technological knowledge, and therefore that any improvement in technology will immediately show itself in production. Technology does, of course, set a limit on production. No production process could be used at all without the technological knowledge of how to put it into operation. But while knowledge is a limit... Capital is a narrower limit. It is logically obvious that while capital cannot engage in production beyond the limits of existing available knowledge, knowledge can and does exist without the capital necessary to put it to use. Technology and its improvement, therefore, play no direct role in the investment and production process. 
technology, while important, must always work through an investment of capital. As has been stated, even the most dramatic capital-saving invention, such as oil drilling, can be put to use only by saving and investing capital. The relative unimportance of technology in production as compared to the supply of saved capital becomes evident, as Mises points out, simply by looking at the backward or underdeveloped countries. What is lacking in these countries is not knowledge of Western technological methods, know-how, that is learned easily enough. The service of imparting knowledge, in person or in book form, can be paid for readily. What is lacking is the supply of saved capital needed to put the advanced methods into effect. The African peasant will gain little from looking at pictures of American tractors. What he lacks is the saved capital needed to purchase them. That is the important limit on his investment and on his production. The futility of point four and technical assistance in furthering production in the backward countries should be evident from this discussion, as Bumbaverk commented in discussing advanced techniques. There are always thousands of persons who know of the existence of the machines who would be glad to secure the advantage of their use, but who do not dispose of the capital necessary for their purchase. A businessman's new investment in a longer and more physically productive process will therefore be made from a sheaf of processes previously known but unusable because of the time preference limitation. A lowering of time preferences and of the pure interest rate will signify an expansion of saved capital at the disposal of investors, and therefore an expansion of the longer processes. The time limitation on investment having been weakened, some critics charge that not all net investment goes to lengthening the structure; that new investments might duplicate pre-existing processes. This criticism misfires, however, because our theory does not assume that net saving must be invested in an actually longer process in some specific line of production. A longer production structure can just as well be achieved by a shift from consumption to investment that will lengthen the aggregate production structure by greater investment in already existing longer processes, accompanied by less investment in existing shorter processes. Thus, in the case of Crusoe, suppose that Crusoe now invests in a second net. Which will permit him to catch a total of 150 fish a day. The structure of production is now lengthened, even though the second net may be no more productive than the first. For the total period of production, from the time he must build and rebuild his total capital until his product arrives, is now considerably longer. He must now cut down again on present consumption, including leisure, and work on his second net. 
As Hayek states, it is frequently supposed that all increases in the quantity of capital per head must mean that some commodities will now be produced by longer processes than before. But so long as the processes used in different industries are of different lengths, this is by no means a necessary consequence. If input is transferred from industries using shorter processes to industries using longer processes, there will be no change in the length of the period of production in any industry, nor any change in the methods of production of any particular commodity, but merely an increase in the periods for which particular units of input are invested. The significance of these changes in the investment periods of particular units of input will, however, be exactly the same as it would be if they were the consequence of a change in the length of particular processes of production. 5. The Adoption of a New Technique at any given time, then, there will be a shelf of available and more productive techniques that remain unused by many firms continuing with older methods. What determines the extent to which these firms adopt new and more productive techniques? The reason that firms do not scrap their old methods immediately and begin afresh is that they and their ancestors have invested in a certain structure of capital goods. As times and tastes, resources and techniques change, much of this capital investment becomes an ex-post entrepreneurial error. If, in other words, investors had been able to foresee the changed pattern of values and methods, they would have invested in a far different manner. Now, however, the investment has been made, and the resulting capital structure is a given residue from the past that supplies the resources they have to work with. Since costs in the present are only present and future opportunities foregone, and bygones are bygones, existing equipment must be used in the most profitable way. Thus there undoubtedly would have been far less investment in railroads in late 19th century America if investors had foreseen the rise of truck and plane competition, and if there had been fewer land grants and other governmental subsidies to railroads. Now that the existing railroad equipment remains, however, decisions concerning how much of it is to be used must be based on current and expected future costs, not on past expenses or losses. An old machine will be scrapped for a new and better substitute if the superiority of the new machine or method is great enough to compensate for the additional expenditure necessary to purchase the machine. The same applies to the shifting of a plant from an old location to a superior new location, superior because of greater access to factors or consumers. At any rate, the adoption of new techniques or locations is limited by the usefulness of the already given and specific capital goods structure. 
This means that those processes and methods will be adopted at any time which will best satisfy the desires of the consumers. The fact that investment in a new technique or location is unprofitable means that the use of capital in the new process at the cost of scrapping the old equipment is a waste from the point of view of satisfying consumer wants. How fast equipment or location is scrapped as obsolescent, then, is not decided arbitrarily by businessmen. It is determined by the values and desires of consumers, who decide on the price and profitability of the various goods, and on the values of the necessary non-specific factors used to produce these goods. As Mises writes, the fact that not every technological improvement is instantly applied in the whole field is not more conspicuous than the fact that not everyone throws away his old car or his old clothes as soon as a better car is on the market or new patterns become fashionable. Specifically, the old equipment will continue in use as long as its operating costs are lower than the total costs of installing the new equipment. If, in addition, total costs, including replacement costs for wear and tear on capital goods, are greater for the old equipment, then the firm will gradually abandon old equipment as it wears out and will invest in the new technique. As is often true, critics of the free market have attacked it from two contradictory points of view. One, that it unduly slows down the rate of technological improvement from what it could and should be, and two, that it unduly accelerates the rate of technological improvement, thereby unsettling the peaceful course of society. We have seen that a free market will, as far as the knowledge and foresight of entrepreneurs permit, produce so that factors are best allocated to satisfy the wishes of consumers. Improvement in productivity through new techniques and locations will be balanced against the opportunity costs foregone in value product from using the existing old plant. Technocrats condemn the market for rewarding investments according to their marginal value productivity instead of their marginal physical productivity. But we see here an excellent example of a technique more physically productive but less value productive, and for a very good reason that the given specific capital goods already produced lend an advantage to the old technique so that out-of-pocket operating costs of the old technique are lower until the equipment wears out than total costs for the new project. Consumers are benefited by continuing the old techniques while they remain profitable, for then factors are spared for more valuable production elsewhere. And ability in entrepreneurial foresight will be assured, as much as possible, by the market's process of selection in rewarding good forecasters and penalizing poor ones proportionately. The Entrepreneur and Innovation under the stimulus of the late Professor Schumpeter, it has been thought that the essence of entrepreneurship is innovation, 
the disturbance of peaceful, unchanging business routine by bold innovators who institute new methods and develop new products. There is, of course, no denying the importance of the discovery and institution of more productive methods of obtaining a product or of the development of valuable new products. Analytically, however, there is danger of overrating the importance of this process, for innovation is only one of the activities performed by the entrepreneur. As we have seen, most entrepreneurs are not innovators, but are in the process of investing capital within a large framework of available technological opportunities. Supply of product is limited by supply of capital goods, rather than by available technological know-how. Entrepreneurial activities are derived from the presence of uncertainty, the entrepreneur is an adjuster of the discrepancies of the market toward greater satisfaction of the desires of the consumers. When he innovates, he is also an adjuster, since he is adjusting the discrepancies of the market as they present themselves in the potential of a new method or product. In other words, if the ruling rate of natural interest return is 5%, and a businessman estimates that he could earn 10% by instituting a new process or product, then he has, as in other cases, discovered a discrepancy in the market, and sets about correcting it. By launching and producing more of the new process, he is pursuing the entrepreneurial function of adjustment to consumer desires, that is, what he estimates consumer desires will be. If he succeeds in his estimate and reaps a profit, then he and others will continue in this line of activity until the income discrepancy is eliminated and there is no pure profit or loss in this area. 6. The Beneficiaries of Saving Investment we have seen that an increase in saving and investment causes an increase in the real incomes of owners of labor and land factors. The latter is reflected in increases in the capital value of ground lands. The benefits to land factors, however, accrue only to particular lands. Other lands may lose in value, although there is an aggregate gain. This is so because usually lands are relatively specific factors. For the non-specific factor par excellence, namely labor, there is, on the contrary, a very general rise in real wages. These laborers are external beneficiaries of increased investment, that is, they are beneficiaries of the actions of others without paying for these benefits. What benefits do the investors themselves acquire? In the long run, they are not great. In fact, their rate of interest return is reduced. This is not a loss, however, since it is the outcome of their changed time preferences. Their real interest return may well be increased, in fact, since the fall in the interest rate may be offset by the rise in the purchasing power of the monetary unit in an expanding economy. The main benefits gained by the investors, therefore, are short-run entrepreneurial profits. 
These are earned by investors who see a profit to be gained by investing in a certain area. After a while, the profits tend to disappear as more investors enter this field, although changing data are always presenting new profit opportunities to enterprising investors. But the short-run benefits earned by the workers and landowners are more certain. The entrepreneur capitalists take the risks of speculating on the uncertain market, Their investment may result in profits, in breaking even with no profits at all, or in suffering outright losses. No one can guarantee profits to them. As will be seen, actuarial risks can be insured against, but not the entrepreneurial uncertainty of the market. Aggregate new investment will result in aggregate net profits, to be sure, but no one can predict with certainty in what areas the profits will appear. On the other hand, the workers and landowners in the fields of new investment gain immediately, as new investment bids up wages and rents in the longer processes. They gain even if the investment turns out to have been uneconomic and unprofitable. For in that case, the error in satisfying consumers is borne by the heavy losses of the capitalist entrepreneurs. In the meanwhile, the workers and landowners have reaped a gain. This is hardly a clear gain, however, since consumers have, as a whole, suffered in real income through entrepreneurial error in producing the wrong kind of goods. Yet it is obvious that the brunt of the loss from making the error is suffered by the entrepreneurs. 7. The Progressing Economy and the Pure Rate of Interest It is clear that a feature of the progressing economy must necessarily be a fall in the pure rate of interest. We have seen that in order for more capital to be invested, there must be a fall in the pure rate of interest, reflecting general declines in time preferences. If the pure rate remains the same, this is an indication that there will be no new investment or disinvestment, that time preferences are generally stable, and that the economy is stationary. A fall in the pure rate of interest is a corollary of a drop in time preferences and a rise in gross investment. A rise in the pure rate of interest is a corollary of a rise in time preferences and net disinvestment. Hence, for the economy to keep advancing, time preferences and the pure rate of interest must continue to fall. If the pure rate of interest remains the same, capital will only just be maintained at its same real level. Since praxeology never establishes quantitative laws, there is no way by which we can determine any sort of quantitative relation between changes in the pure rate of interest and the amount that capital will change. All we can assert is the qualitative relation. It should be noticed what we are not saying. We are not asserting that the pure rate of interest is determined by the quantity or value of capital goods available. 
We are not concluding, therefore, that an increase in the quantity or value of capital goods lowers the pure rate of interest, because interest is the price of capital, or for any other reason. On the contrary, we are asserting precisely the reverse, namely that a lower pure rate of interest increases the quantity and value of capital goods available. The causative principle is just the other way round from what is commonly believed. The pure rate of interest, then, can change at any time and is determined by time preferences. If it is lowered, the stock of invested capital will increase. If it is raised, the stock of invested capital will fall. That a change in the pure rate of interest has an inverse effect on the stock of capital is discovered by deduction from accepted axioms and not inferred from uncertain and complex empirical data. The law is not deduced, for example, by observing that the market rate of interest in backward nations is higher than in advanced nations. It is clear that this phenomenon is at least partly due to the higher entrepreneurial risk component in the backward countries, and is not necessarily caused by differences in the pure rate of interest. 8. The Entrepreneurial Component in the Market Interest Rate in the ERE, as we have seen, the interest rate throughout the economy will be uniform. In the real world, there is an additional entrepreneurial or risk component, which adds to the interest rate in particularly risky ventures and in accordance with the degree of risk. Since risk has an actuarially certain connotation, we may better call it degree of uncertainty. Thus, suppose that the basic social time preference rate, or pure rate of interest in the economy, is 5%. Capitalists will buy 100 ounces of future goods to sell less remotely future goods one year later at 105 ounces. Thus, a 5% return is a pure return. That is, it is the return assuming that the 105 ounces will definitely be accruing. The pure rate, in other words, abstracts from any entrepreneurial uncertainty. It gauges the premium of present over future goods on the assumption that the future goods are known as certain to be forthcoming. In the real world, of course, nothing is absolutely certain, and therefore the pure rate of interest, the result of time preference, can never appear alone. Now suppose that in one particular venture or industry, it is fairly certain that 105 ounces will be earned from the sale of a product one year in the future. Then, with a social time preference rate of 5%, the capitalist entrepreneurs will be willing to pay 100 ounces for factors and reap a 5% return. But suppose that there is another possible venture considered very risky by entrepreneurs. The product is expected to sell for 105 ounces, but there are definite possibilities that the price of the product might plummet. In that case, the entrepreneurs will not be willing to pay 100 ounces for factors. 
they would have to be compensated for the extra risks that they run. The price of the factors might finally be 90 ounces. Thus, the riskier a given venture appears ex-ante, the higher will be the expected interest return that capitalists will require before they make the investment. On the market, then, a whole structure of interest rates will be superimposed on the pure rate, varying positively in accordance with the expected risks of each venture. The counterpart of this structure will be a similar variety of interest rates on the loan market, which, as usual, is derivative from the goods market. The loan market will diverge from the natural market to the extent that conditions for repayment of loans, etc., establish such differences. The two would be the same if the loans were clearly recognized as entrepreneurial, so that in cases where there was no deliberate fraud, the borrower would not be considered criminal if he did not repay the loan. However, if, as discussed in Chapter 2, there are no bankruptcy laws and defaulting borrowers are considered criminal, then obviously the safety of all loans would increase in relation to natural investments, and the interest rates on loans would decline accordingly. In the free society, however, there would be nothing to prevent borrowers and lenders from agreeing, at the time the contract is made, that borrowers would not be held criminally responsible, and that the loan would really be an entrepreneurial one. Or they could make any sort of arrangement in dividing gains or losses that they might choose. In the long run, of course, the tendency, given no changes of data, will be for people to realize that such-and-such such a venture is pretty consistently yielding a higher than 5% return. The risk component for this venture will then fall. Other entrepreneurs will enter this type of venture, and the interest rate will tend to fall back to 5% again. Thus, the varying risk structure of interest does not invalidate the tendency toward uniformity of the interest rate. On the contrary, any variety is something of an index of the various risks of uncertainty which still remain in the market, and which would be eliminated if data were frozen and an ERE were reached. If data did remain constant, then the uniformity of the ERE would ensue. It is because data are always changing, and thus setting up new uncertainties in place of the old, that we do not have the uniformity of the ERE. 9. Risk, Uncertainty, and Insurance Entrepreneurship deals with the inevitable uncertainty of the future. Some forms of uncertainty, however, can be converted into actuarial risk. The distinction between risk and uncertainty has been developed by Professor Knight. Risk occurs when an event is a member of a class of a large number of homogeneous events, and there is fairly certain knowledge of the frequency of occurrence of this class of events. Thus, a firm may produce bolts, and know from long experience that a certain almost fixed proportion of these bolts will be defective, say 1%. 
It will not know whether any given bolt will be defective, but it will know the proportion of the total number defective. This knowledge can convert the percentage of defects into a definite cost of the firm's operations, especially where enough cases occur within a firm. In other situations, a given loss or hazard may be large and infrequent in relation to a firm's operations, such as the risk of fire, but over a large number of firms it could be considered as a measurable or actuarial risk. In such situations, the firms themselves could pool their risks, or a specialized firm, an insurance company, could organize the pooling for them. The principle of insurance is that firms or individuals are subject to risks which, in the aggregate, form a class of homogeneous cases. Thus, out of a class of a thousand firms, no one firm has any idea whether it will suffer a fire next year or not. But it is fairly well known that ten of them will. In that case, it may be advantageous for each of the firms to take out insurance to pool their risks of loss. Each firm will pay a certain premium, which will go into a pool to compensate those firms which suffer the fires. As a result of competition, the firm organizing the insurance service will tend to obtain the usual interest income on its investment, no more and no less. The contrast between risk and uncertainty has been brilliantly analyzed by Ludwig von Mises. Mises has shown that they can be subsumed under the more general categories of class probability and case probability. Class probability is the only scientific use of the term probability, and is the only form of probability subject to numerical expression. In the tangled literature on probability, no one has defined class probability as cogently as Ludwig von Mises. Class probability means we know or assume to know with regard to the problem concerned everything about the behavior of a whole class of events or phenomena, but about the actual singular events or phenomena we know nothing but that they are elements of this class. Insurable risk is an example of class probability. The businessman knew how many bolts would be defective out of a total number of bolts, but had no knowledge as to which particular bolts would be defective. In life insurance, the mortality tables reveal the proportion of mortality of each age group in the population, but they tell nothing about the particular life expectancy of any given individual. Insurance firms have their problems. As soon as something specific is known about individual cases, firms break down the cases into sub-aggregates in an effort to maintain homogeneity of classes, that is, the similarity, as far as is known, of all individual members in the class with respect to the attribute in question. Thus, certain subgroups within one age group may have a higher mortality rate because of their occupation. These will be segregated, and different premiums applied to the two cases. 
If there were knowledge about differences between subgroups and insurance firms charged the same premium rate to all, then this would mean that the healthy or less risky groups would be subsidizing the riskier. Unless they specifically desire to grant such subsidies, this result will never be maintained in the competitive free market. In the free market, each homogeneous group will tend to pay premium rates in proportion to its actuarial risk, plus a sum for interest income and for necessary costs for the insurance firms. Most uncertainties are uninsurable because they are unique, single cases, and not members of a class. They are unique cases facing each individual or business. They may bear resemblances to other cases, but are not homogeneous with them. Individuals or entrepreneurs know something about the outcome of the particular case, but not everything. As Mises defines it, case probability means we know with regard to a particular event some of the factors which determine its outcome, but there are other determining factors about which we know nothing. Estimates of future costs, demands, etc. on the part of entrepreneurs are all unique cases of uncertainty, where methods of specific understanding and individual judgment of the situation must apply, rather than objectively measurable or insurable risk. It is not accurate to apply terms like gambling or betting to situations either of risk or of uncertainty. These terms have unfavorable emotional implications, and for this reason, they refer to situations where new risks or uncertainties are created for the enjoyment of the uncertainties themselves. Gambling on the throw of the dice and betting on horse races are examples of the deliberate creation by the better or gambler of new uncertainties which otherwise would not have existed. There is a distinction between gambling and betting. Gambling refers to wagering on events of class probability, such as throws of dice, where there is no knowledge of the unique event. Betting refers to wagering on a unique event about which both parties to the bet know something, such as a horse race or a presidential election. In either case, however, the wagerer is creating a new risk or uncertainty. The entrepreneur, on the other hand, is not creating uncertainties for the fun of it. On the contrary, he tries to reduce them as much as possible, the uncertainties he confronts are already inherent in the market situation, indeed, in the nature of human action. Someone must deal with them, and he is the most skilled or willing candidate. In the same way, an operator of a gambling establishment or of a racetrack is not creating new risks. He is an entrepreneur trying to judge the situation on the market and neither a gambler nor a better. Profit and loss are the results of entrepreneurial uncertainty. Actuarial risk is converted into a cost of business operation and is not responsible for profits or losses except insofar as the actuarial estimates are erroneous.
9. Risk, Uncertainty, and Insurance Entrepreneurship deals with the inevitable uncertainty of the future. Some forms of uncertainty, however, can be converted into actuarial risk. The distinction between risk and uncertainty has been developed by Professor Knight. Risk occurs when an event is a member of a class of a large number of homogeneous events, and there is fairly certain knowledge of the frequency of occurrence of this class of events. Thus, a firm may produce bolts and know from long experience that a certain almost fixed proportion of these bolts will be defective, say, 1%. It will not know whether any given bolt will be defective, but it will know the proportion of the total number defective. This knowledge can convert the percentage of defects into a definite cost of the firm's operations, especially where enough cases occur within a firm. In other situations, a given loss or hazard may be large and infrequent in relation to a firm's operations, such as the risk of fire, but over a large number of firms it could be considered as a measurable or actuarial risk. In such situations, the firms themselves could pool their risks, or a specialized firm, an insurance company, could organize the pooling for them. The principle of insurance is that firms or individuals are subject to risks which, in the aggregate, form a class of homogeneous cases. Thus, out of a class of a thousand firms, no one firm has any idea whether it will suffer a fire next year or not. But it is fairly well known that ten of them will. In that case, it may be advantageous for each of the firms to take out insurance to pool their risks of loss. Each firm will pay a certain premium, which will go into a pool to compensate those firms which suffer the fires. As a result of competition, the firm organizing the insurance service will tend to obtain the usual interest income on its investment, no more and no less. The contrast between risk and uncertainty has been brilliantly analyzed by Ludwig von Mises. Mises has shown that they can be subsumed under the more general categories of class probability and case probability. Class probability is the only scientific use of the term probability, and is the only form of probability subject to numerical expression. In the tangled literature on probability, no one has defined class probability as cogently as Ludwig von Mises. Class probability means we know or assume to know with regard to the problem concerned everything about the behavior of a whole class of events or phenomena, but about the actual singular events or phenomena we know nothing but that they are elements of this class. Insurable risk is an example of class probability. The businessman knew how many bolts would be defective out of a total number of bolts, but had no knowledge as to which particular bolts would be defective. 
In life insurance, the mortality tables reveal the proportion of mortality of each age group in the population, but they tell nothing about the particular life expectancy of any given individual. Insurance firms have their problems. As soon as something specific is known about individual cases, firms break down the cases into sub-aggregates in an effort to maintain homogeneity of classes, that is, the similarity, as far as is known, of all individual members in the class with respect to the attribute in question. Thus, certain subgroups within one age group may have a higher mortality rate because of their occupation. These will be segregated, and different premiums applied to the two cases. If there were knowledge about differences between subgroups and insurance firms charged the same premium rate to all, then this would mean that the healthy or less risky groups would be subsidizing the riskier. Unless they specifically desire to grant such subsidies, this result will never be maintained in the competitive free market. In the free market, each homogeneous group will tend to pay premium rates in proportion to its actuarial risk, plus a sum for interest income and for necessary costs for the insurance firms. Most uncertainties are uninsurable because they are unique single cases, and not members of a class. They are unique cases facing each individual or business. They may bear resemblances to other cases, but are not homogeneous with them. Individuals or entrepreneurs know something about the outcome of the particular case, but not everything. As Mises defines it, Case probability means we know with regard to a particular event some of the factors which determine its outcome, but there are other determining factors about which we know nothing. Estimates of future costs, demands, etc. on the part of entrepreneurs are all unique cases of uncertainty, where methods of specific understanding and individual judgment of the situation must apply, rather than objectively measurable or insurable risk. It is not accurate to apply terms like gambling or betting to situations either of risk or of uncertainty. These terms have unfavorable emotional implications, and for this reason, they refer to situations where new risks or uncertainties are created for the enjoyment of the uncertainties themselves. Gambling on the throw of the dice and betting on horse races are examples of the deliberate creation by the better or gambler of new uncertainties which otherwise would not have existed. There is a distinction between gambling and betting. Gambling refers to wagering on events of class probability, such as throws of dice, where there is no knowledge of the unique event. Betting refers to wagering on a unique event about which both parties to the bet know something, such as a horse race or a presidential election. In either case, however, the wagerer is creating a new risk or uncertainty. The entrepreneur, on the other hand, is not creating uncertainties for the fun of it. 
On the contrary, he tries to reduce them as much as possible. The uncertainties he confronts are already inherent in the market situation. Indeed, in the nature of human action, someone must deal with them, and he is the most skilled or willing candidate. In the same way, an operator of a gambling establishment or of a racetrack is not creating new risks. He is an entrepreneur trying to judge the situation on the market, and neither a gambler nor a better. Profit and loss are the results of entrepreneurial uncertainty. Actuarial risk is converted into a cost of business operation and is not responsible for profits or losses except insofar as the actuarial estimates are erroneous. Chapter 9 Production Particular Factor Prices and Productive Incomes 1. Introduction up to this point, we have analyzed the determination of the rate of interest and of the prices of productive factors on the market. We have also discussed the role of entrepreneurship in the changing world and the consequences of changes in saving and investment. We now return to analysis of the particular ultimate factors, labor and land, and to a more detailed discussion of entrepreneurial incomes. Our analysis of general factor pricing in Chapter 7 treated prices as they would be in the ERE, a state toward which they are always tending. Our discussion of entrepreneurship in Chapter 8 showed that this tendency is a result of drives toward profits and away from losses by capitalist entrepreneurs. Now let us return to the particular factors and analyze their pricing, their supplies and incomes, and the effects of a changing economy upon them. 2. Land, Labor, and Rent A. Rent We have been using the term rent in our analysis to signify the higher price of the services of goods. This price is paid for unit services, as distinguished from the prices of the whole factors yielding the service. Since all goods have unit services, all goods will earn rents, whether they be consumers' goods or any type of producers' goods. Future rents of durable goods tend to be capitalized and embodied in their capital value, and therefore in the money presently needed to acquire them. As a result, the investors and producers of these goods tend to earn simply an interest return on their investment. All goods earn gross rent, since all have unit services and prices for them. If a good is rented out, it will earn gross rent in the higher charge. If it is bought, then its present price embodies discounted future rents, and in the future it will earn these rents by contributing to production. All goods, therefore, earn gross rents. And here there is no analytic distinction between one factor and another. Net rents, however, are earned only by labor and land factors, and not by capital goods. 
net rents equal gross rents earned minus gross rents paid to owners of factors. For the gross rents earned by a capital good will be imputed to gross rents paid to the owners of the factors that produced it. Hence, on net, only labor and land factors, the ultimate factors, earn rents. And in the ERE, these, along with interest on time, will be the only incomes in the economy. The Marshallian theory holds that durable capital goods earn quasi-rents temporarily, while permanent lands earn full rents. The fallacy of this theory is clear. Whatever their durability, capital goods receive gross rents just as lands do, whether in the changing real world or the ERE. In the ERE, they receive no net rents at all, since these are imputed to land and labor. In the real world, their capital value changes, but this does not mean that they earn net rents. Rather, these changes are profits or losses accruing to their owners as entrepreneurs. If, then, incomes in the real world are net rents accruing to labor and land factors and entrepreneurial profits, while the latter disappear in the ERE, there is no room in either world for the concept of quasi-rent. Nowhere does this special type of income exist. A wage is the term describing the payment for the unit services of a labor factor. A wage, therefore, is a special case of rent. It is labor's hire. On a free market, this rent cannot, of course, be capitalized, since the whole labor factor, the man, cannot be bought and sold for a price, his income to accrue to his owner. This is precisely what occurs, however, under a regime of slavery. The wage, in fact, is the only source of rent that cannot be capitalized on the free market, since every man is necessarily a self-owner with an inalienable will. One distinction between wages and land rents, then, is that the latter are capitalized and transformed into interest return, while the former are not. Another distinction is purely empirical and not apodictically true for mankind. It has simply been an historical empirical truth that labor factors have always been relatively scarcer than land factors. Land and labor factors can be ranged in order of their marginal value productivity. The result of a relative superfluity of land factors is that not all the land factors will be put to use. That is, the poorest land factors will be left idle, so that labor will be free to work the most productive land. For example, the most productive agricultural land, urban sites, fish hatcheries, natural resources, etc. Laborers will tend to use the most value-productive land first, the next most productive second, etc. At any given time, then, there will be some land, the most value-productive, under cultivation and use, and some not in use. 
The latter in the ERE will be free land, since its rental earnings are zero, and therefore its price will be zero. Its capital value will be positive, however, if people expect the land to earn rents in the near future. The former land will be supramarginal, and the latter land will be submarginal. On the dividing line will be the poorest land now in use. This will be the marginal land, and it will be earning close to zero rent. It is important to recognize the qualification that the marginal land will earn not zero, but only close to zero rent. As Frank Fetter stated, the last unit of product of any finite amount would have to pay its corresponding rent. The only product obtained in the strict theory of the case without paying rent would be one unit infinitesimally small. In plain Anglo-Saxon, would be nothing at all. No finite unit of product can be shown to be a no-rent unit. The reason is that in human action there is no infinite continuity, and action cannot proceed in infinitely small steps. Mathematically-minded writers tend to think in such terms, so that the points before and after the point under consideration all tend to merge into one. Using marginal land, however, will pay only if it earns some rent even though a small one, and in cases where there are large discontinuities in the array of MVPs for different lands, the marginal land might be earning a substantial sum. It is obvious that there is no praxeological precision in terms like close, substantial, etc., all that we can say with certainty is that if we arrange the MVPs of lands in an array, the rents of the sub-marginal lands will be zero. We cannot say what the rent of the marginal land will be, except that it will be closer to zero than that of the supramarginal lands. The terms marginal, supramarginal, etc. are rather differently used here from the way they have been used up to now. Instead of dealing with the supply and demand for a homogeneous good or factor, we are here referring to one class of factors, such as lands, and comparing different qualities of the various factors in that class, the near-zero earning land is marginal because it is the one just barely put to use. Now we have seen that the marginal value product of a factor decreases as its total supply increases, and increases as the supply declines. The three major categories of factors in the economy are land, labor, and capital goods. In the progressing economy, the supply of capital per person increases. Here we shift the definition of progressing economy to mean increasing capital per person, so that we can contrast the effects of changes in the supply of one type of factor to changes in the supply of another. 
the supply of all ranks of capital goods increases, thereby decreasing the marginal value productivities of capital goods, so that the prices of capital goods fall. The relative MVPs of land and labor factors in the aggregate tend to rise, so that their income will rise in real terms, if not in monetary ones. What if the supply of capital remained the same, while the supply of labor or land factors changed? Thus, suppose that with the same capital structure, population increases, thus expanding the total supply of labor factors. The result will be a general fall in the MVP of labor and a rise in the MVP of land factors. This rise will cause formerly sub-marginal no-rent lands to earn rent and to enter into cultivation by the new labor supply. This is the process particularly emphasized by Ricardo, population pressing on the land supply. The tendency for the MVP of labor to drop, however, may well be offset by a rise in the MPP schedules of labor, since a rise in population will permit a greater utilization of the advantages of specialization and the division of labor. The constant supply of capital would have to be reoriented to the changed conditions, but the constant amount of money capital will then be more physically productive. Hence, there will be an offsetting tendency for the MVPs of labor to rise. At any time, for any given conditions of capital and production processes, there will be an optimum population level that will maximize the total output of consumers' goods per head in the economy. A lower level will not take advantage of enough division of labor and opportunities for labor so that the MPP of labor factors will be lower than at the optimum point. A higher level of population will decrease the MVP of labor and will therefore lower real wages per person. There is, of course, no reason to assume that maximum real income per head is necessarily the best ethical ideal, for some, the ideal might be maximum real income plus maximum population. In a free society, parents are free to choose their own ethical principles in the matter. Recognition of the existence of a theoretical optimum population that maximizes real output per head, given existing land and capital, would go far to end the dreary Malthusian controversies in economic theory. For whether a given increase in population at any time will lead to an increase or decrease in real output per head is an empirical question, depending on the concrete data. It cannot be answered by economic theory. Economics can say little else about population and its size. The inclusion of a corpus of population theory under economics instead of biology or psychology is the unfortunate result of the historical accident that the early economists were the first to delve into demographic problems.
It might be wondered how the statement that increasing population might increase MPP and MVPs can be reconciled with the demonstration that factors will always be put to work in areas of diminishing physical returns. The conditions here are completely different, however. In the previous problem, we were assuming a given total supply of the various factors and considering the best method of their relative arrangement. Here we are dealing not with particular production processes and given supplies of factors, but with the vague concept of production in general and with the effect of change in the total supply of a factor. Furthermore, we are dealing not with a true factor, homogeneous in its supply, but with a class of factors, such as land in general or labor in general. Aside from the problem of vagueness, it is evident that the conditions of our present problem are completely different. For if the total supply of a factor changes, and it has an effect on the productivity of the labor factor, this is equivalent to a shift in the MPP schedules. The Lausanne way of Valras and Pareto of phrasing this distinction would be to say that in the former case, we implicitly assumed that the supply of tastes, techniques, and resources remains given in the economy. In the present case, we are considering a change in a resource, for example, an increase in the supply of labor. We would amend this to say that only tastes and resources were considered given. As we saw in the previous section, techniques are not immediate determinants of production changes. The techniques must be put to use via saving and investment. In fact, we may deal with tastes and resources alone, provided that we include time preferences among the tastes. Because we are accustomed to viewing labor implicitly as scarcer than land factors, we speak in terms of zero-rent land. If the situations were reversed and lands were scarcer than labor factors, we would have to speak of zero-wage laborers, sub-marginal labor, etc., Theoretically, this is certainly possible, and it might be argued that in such static societies with institutionally limited markets as ancient Sparta and medieval or post-medieval Europe, this condition actually obtained, so that the surplus labor earned a below-subsistence wage in production. Those who were surplus and did not own invested capital were curbed by infanticide or reduced to beggary. That submarginal land earns no rent has given rise to an unfortunate tendency to regard the very concept of rent as a differential one, as referring particularly to differences in quality between factors. Sometimes the concept of absolute or pure rents is thrown overboard completely, and we hear only of rent in a differential sense, as in such statements as the following. If land A earns 100 gold ounces a month and land B earns zero, land A is making a differential rent of 100.
If laborer A earns 50 gold ounces a month and laborer B earns 30 gold ounces, A earns a rent of ability of 20 ounces. On the contrary, rents are absolute and do not depend on the existence of a poorer factor of the same general category. The differential basis of rent is purely dependent on and derived from absolute rents. It is simply a question of arithmetical subtraction. Thus, land A may earn a rent of 100 and land B a rent of 0. Obviously, the difference between 100 and 0 is 100. In the case of the laborer, however, laborer A's rent, that is, wage, is 50 and B's is 30. If we want to compare the two earnings, we may say that A earns 20 more than B. There is little point, however, in adding to confusion by using rent in this sense. The differential rent concept has also been used to contrast earnings by a factor in one use with those of the same factor in another use. Thus, if a factor, whether land or labor, earns 50 ounces per month in one use and would have earned 40 ounces in some other use, then its rent is 10 ounces. Here, differential rent is used to mean the difference between the actual DMVP and the opportunity foregone, or the DMVP in the next best use. It is sometimes believed that the 10-ounce differential is in some way not really a part of costs to entrepreneurs, that it is surplus or even unearned rent acquired by the factor, it is generally admitted that it is not without cost to individual firms which have bid the factor up to its MVP of 50. It is supposed, however, to be without cost from the industry point of view. But there is no industry point of view. Not industries, but firms buy and sell and seek profits. In fact, the entire discussion concerning whether or not rent is costless or enters into cost is valueless. It belongs to the old classical controversies about whether rents are price-determined or price-determining. The view that any costs can be price-determining is a product of the old cost-of-production theory of value and prices, we have seen that costs do not determine prices, but vice versa, or more accurately, prices of consumers' goods through market processes determine the prices of productive factors, ultimately land and labor factors, and the brunt of price changes is borne by specific factors in the various fields. B. The Nature of Labor As we have mentioned earlier, labor is a category that includes a myriad variety of services. Generally, labor is the expenditure of pure human energy on a production process. Catalactically, labor is hired by entrepreneur capitalists. 
When an owner performs and earns a return for an essentially labor activity which he could also perform as an employee, for example, the owner-manager, that return is an implicit wage. It is grossly unscientific to separate laborers into arbitrary categories and to refer to one group as labor and workers, while the other group receives various other names. To give them other names implies a difference in kind between their contribution and the contribution of others. But this difference does not exist. Thus, the popular custom is to call some hired labor labor, while others are called managers, executives, etc. Management is a particularly popular category as contrasted with labor, and we hear a great deal of the term labor-management relations. But these categories are valueless. Management is hired by the owners or owner to direct production. Managers are supposed to obey the orders of their superiors, something they consent to do as part of the terms of their employment. The lower quality workers further down the scale, the laborers, are treated by these writers as a different breed. When we use the term quality here and in other parts of catalactic analysis, we are not employing it in some metaphysical sense or from some higher ethical point of view. We mean quality as expressed by choice of the market in the form of a higher MVP and therefore a higher wage. Their function is supposed to be not to obey orders and engage in a production process, but in some way to be different, to act as an independent entity, asserting its rights, quarreling with management, etc. Yet there is no difference in kind between workers and management. The vice president of a company, if hired by its owners, has exactly the same amount of justification or lack of justification for joining a union as does a hired mechanic. Both are supposed to abide by the terms of their employment, that is, to obey the relevant orders of their superiors. Both are free at any time to haggle over the terms of their employment, just as in any other voluntary exchange on the market. Both are laborers who expend human energy in the production of goods. No special quality attaches to one set of laborers or another that makes it more or less justifiable for them to join a union. The union question will be explored in Chapter 10 on Monopoly and Competition. Here we might note that this false labor-management dichotomy crops up in an interesting way in the struggle over foreman's unions. For some reason, even the most ardent union advocate thinks absurd the idea of unionizing the vice presidents. Those more critical of unions think it monstrous if unions attempt to organize foremen who are in the lower echelons of management and would, of course, be horrified at the very thought of unionizing vice presidents. Yet if there is no real dichotomy and all employees are labor, then our views on unions must be altered accordingly. 
For if everyone admits that the unionizing of vice-presidents is absurd or evil, then perhaps the same adjective would have to apply to the unionization of any workers. C. Supply of Land We have seen throughout that the processes of price determination for the unit services of land and labor are exactly the same. Both sets of factors tend to earn their MVP. Both receive advances of present money from capitalist entrepreneurs, etc. The analysis of the pricing of unit services of original or permanent factors applies equally to each. There are three basic differences between the conditions of land and those of labor, however, that make separation of the two important. One we have already dealt with in detail, that in the free economy, land can be capitalized in its price as a whole factor, and therefore earns simply interest and entrepreneurial changes in asset value, while labor cannot be capitalized. A second difference we have been considering, the empirical fact that labor has been more scarce than land factors. A corollary of this is that labor is preeminently the non-specific factor, which is applicable to all processes of production, whereas land tends to be far more specific. A third difference derives from the fact that laborers are human beings, and also an empirical fact that leisure is always a consumer's good. As a result, there will be reserve prices for labor against leisure, whereas land, in the broadest sense, will not have a reserve price. We shall deal with the effects of this distinction presently. The fact that labor is scarcer and nonspecific means that there will always be unused land. Only the best and most productive land will be used, that is, the land with the highest DMVPs. Similarly, in the real world of uncertainty, where errors are made, there will also be unused capital goods, that is, in places where malinvestments have been made, which turned out to be unprofitable. We have seen that the prices of consumers' goods are set by consumers' demand schedules, as determined by their value scales, that is, by the way that the quantity supplied by producers, the first-rank capitalists, will be valued by consumers. When in the changing economy producers have speculative reservation demands, the price will, at any moment, be set by the total demand for the given stock, and this will always tend to approach the true consumer's demand price. A similar situation obtains in land. The prices of land factors will be determined by the general schedule of the factor's DMVPs and will be set according to the point of intersection of the total quantity or stock of the factor available with its discounted marginal value productivity schedule. The DMVP, in turn, is, as we have seen at length, determined by the extent to which this factor serves the consumers. 
The MVP is determined directly by the degree that a factor unit serves the consumers, and the discount is determined by the extent that consumers choose saving investment as against present consumption. Therefore, the value scales of the consumers determine, given the stocks of original factors, all the various results of the market economy that need to be explained. The prices of the original factors, the allocation of original factors, the incomes to original factors, the rate of time preferences and interest, the length of the production processes in use, and the amounts and types of the final products. In our changing real world, this beautiful and orderly structure of the free market economy tends to be attained through the drive of the entrepreneurs toward making profit and avoiding loss. This rule by consumers' valuations holds insofar as entrepreneurs and owners of factors aim at maximum money income. To the extent that they abstain from higher money income to pursue non-monetary ends, for example, looking at one's untilled land or enjoying leisure, the producer's own valuations will be determining. From the general praxeological point of view, these producers are, to that extent, acting as consumers. Therefore, the full rule of consumers' value scales would hold even here. However, for purposes of catalactic market analysis, it may be convenient to separate man as a producer from man as a consumer, even though, considered in his entirety, the same man performs both functions. In that event, we may say that to the extent that non-monetary goals enter, not consumers' values are determining, but the values of all individuals in society. At this point, let us consider a great bugaboo of the Henry Georgists, speculation in land that withholds productive land from use. According to the Georgists, a whole host of economic evils, including the depressions of the business cycle, stem from speculative withholding of ground land from use, causing an artificial scarcity and high rents for the sites in use. We have seen that speculation in consumers' goods, and the same will also apply to capital goods, performs the highly useful function of speeding adjustment to the best satisfaction of consumer demand. Yet, curiously, speculation in land is far less likely to occur, and is far less important than in the case of any other economic good. For consumers or capital goods, being non-permanent can be used either now or at some later date. There is a choice between use in the present or use at various times in the future. If the owner of the good estimates that demand for the good will be higher in the future, and therefore its price will be greater, he will, provided that the length of waiting time is not too costly in terms of time preference and storage, keep the goods on hand in inventory until that date. This serves the consumers by shifting the good from use at present to a more highly valued use in the future. 
Land, however, is a permanent resource, as we have seen. It can be used all the time, both in the present and in the future. Therefore, any withholding of land from use by the owner is simply silly. It means merely that he is refusing monetary rents unnecessarily. The fact that a landowner may anticipate that his land value will increase because of increases in future rents in a few years furnishes no reason whatever for the owner to refuse to acquire rents in the meanwhile. Therefore, a site will remain unused simply because it would earn zero rent in production. In many cases, however, a land site, once committed to a certain line of production, could not easily or without substantial cost be shifted to another line. Where the landowner anticipates that a better line of use will soon become available or is in doubt on the best commitment for the land, he will withhold the land site from use if his saving in changeover cost will be greater than his opportunity cost of waiting and of foregoing presently obtainable rents. The speculative site owner is then performing a great service to consumers and to the market in not committing the land to a poorer productive use. By waiting to place the land in a superior productive use, he is allocating the land to the uses most desired by the consumers. What probably confuses the Georgists is the fact that many sites lie unused and yet command a capital price on the market. The capital price of the site might even increase while the site continues to remain idle. This does not mean, however, that some sort of villainy is afoot. It simply means that no rents on the site are expected for the first few years, although it will earn positive rents thereafter. The capital value of ground land, as we have seen, sums up the discounted total of all future rents, and these rental sums may exert a tangible influence from a considerable distance in the future, depending on the rate of interest. There is therefore no mystery in the fact of a capital value for an idle site or in its rise. The site is not being villainously withheld from production. In the free society, as we have indicated, the site could not originally become the property of anyone until it had been used in some way, such as being cleared, cultivated, etc., there need be no subsequent use, however, until rents can be obtained. Let us now consider the effect of a change in the supply of a land factor. Suppose that there is an increase in the supply of land in general, the supply of labor and savings remaining constant. If the new land is sub-marginal in relation to land presently in use, it is obvious that the new land will not be used, but will instead join its fellow sub-marginal land sites in idleness. If, on the other hand, the new land is superior and therefore would earn a positive rent, it comes into use. There has been, however, no increase in labor or capital, so that it will not be profitable for these factors to be employed on a greater total amount of land than before. The new productive land 
competing with the older land will therefore push the previously just marginal land into the submarginal category. Labor will always employ capital on the best land, and so the new acquisition of supramarginal land will oust the previously marginal land from production, since the new land is more value-productive than the old marginal land which it replaces, the change increases the total output of goods in the society. D. Supply of Labor One of the complications in the analysis of labor is the alleged occurrence of a backward supply of labor. This happens when workers react to higher wage rates by reducing their supply of labor hours, thus taking some of their higher incomes as increased leisure. This may very well occur, but it will not be relevant to the determination of the wages of a factor. For labor, though hardly homogeneous, is a peculiarly non-specific factor. Therefore, higher wage rates for one set of factors will tend to stimulate other laborers to train themselves or bestir themselves to enter this particular market. Since skills differ, this does not mean that all wages will be equalized. As wage rates in general rise in all their connexity between various specific labor markets, the supply of all labor, that is, the quantity of labor hours, can either increase or decrease depending on the value scales of the individuals concerned. Rising wages may draw non-working people into the labor force and induce people to work overtime or to obtain an extra part-time job. On the other hand, it may lead to increased leisure and a falling off in total hours worked. Rising wages may lead to population growth, swelling the total supply of labor in general, or may lead to a cutback in population and the taking of some of the gains of increased wages in the form of increased leisure and an increased standard of living per person in the population. There will be such a backward supply if the marginal utility of money falls rapidly enough and the marginal disutility of leisure foregone rises rapidly enough as units of labor are sold for higher prices in money. A backward supply might conceivably take place for a land factor as well, when the owner has a high reserve demand for the land in order to enjoy its unused, in the catalactic sense, beauty. In that case, the land would have an increasing marginal disutility of visual enjoyment foregone, just as leisure is foregone in the process of expending labor. In the case of land, since there is not as great a connexity between land factors as there is between non-specific labor factors, this circumstance will, in fact, impinge more directly on the market rental price. It may be revealed in a backward general supply for the land factor. Higher rental prices offered for his land will then induce the landowner to withhold more of it, taking the higher income partially in non-exchangeable consumption goods as well as in more money received. 
These cases may be rare in practice, but only because of the freely chosen values of the individuals themselves. Thus, there is no reason for the would-be preserver of a monument or of a park to complain about the way the market treats his treasured objects. In the free society, these conservationists are at perfect liberty to purchase the sites and preserve them intact. They would, in effect, be deriving consumption services from such acts of preservation. To return to labor, we have mentioned another component in wage rates. This is the psychic income or psychic disutility involved in any particular line of work. People, in other words, are often attracted to a certain line of work or to a specific job by other considerations than the monetary income. There may be positive psychic benefits and satisfactions derived from the particular type of work or from the particular firm employing the worker. Similarly, psychic disutilities may be attached to particular jobs. In order to isolate such elements, let us suppose for the moment that all laborers are equally value-productive, that labor is a homogeneous factor. In such a world, all wage rates in all occupations would be equal. All industries need not be equally value-productive for this result to occur. For, as a result of the connexity of labor, that is, its non-specificity, laborers can enter wide ranges of occupations. If we assume, as we do for the moment, that all laborers are equally value-productive, then they will enter a high-wage industry while quitting low-wage industry. This conclusion follows from the general tendency toward the uniformity of the price of any good on the market. If all labor were homogeneous and therefore one factor, its price, wage rate, would be uniform throughout industry, just as the pure interest rate tends to be uniform. Now let us relax one of the conditions of our hypothetical construct. It will be noted that we have avoided using the very fashionable term model to apply to the analyses in this book. The term model is an example of an unfortunate bias in favor of the methodology of physics and engineering as applied to the sciences of human action. The constructs are imaginary because their various elements never coexist in reality, Yet they are necessary in order to draw out, by deductive reasoning and ceteris paribus assumptions, the tendencies and causal relations of the real world. The model of engineering, on the other hand, is a mechanical construction in miniature, all parts of which can and must coexist in reality. The engineering model portrays in itself all the elements and the relations among them that will coexist in reality. For this distinction between an imaginary construct and a model, the writer is indebted to Professor Ludwig von Mises. While retaining the assumption of equal productivity of all laborers, let us now introduce the possibility of psychic benefits or psychic disutilities accruing to workers at particular jobs. Some jobs are actively liked by most people. 
others actively disliked. These jobs may be common to certain industries, or more narrowly, to individual firms which may be considered particularly pleasant or unpleasant to work for. What will happen to money wage rates and to the supply of labor in the various occupations? It is obvious that in the generally disliked occupation or firm, higher money wage rates will be necessary to attract and hold labor in that job. On the other hand, there will be so much labor competing in the generally liked jobs that they will pay lower wage rates. In other words, our amended conclusion is that not money wage rates, but psychic wage rates will be equalized throughout, psychic wage rates being equal to money wage rates plus or minus a psychic benefit or psychic disutility component. Many economists have assumed implicitly or explicitly an essential homogeneity among laborers, and they have made this assumption not, as we have done, as a purely temporary construct, but as an attempt to describe the real world. The question is an empirical one. It is a fundamental, empirically derived postulate of this book that there is a great variety among men in labor skills, in insight into future events, in ability, intelligence, etc. It seems empirically clear that this is the case. The denials seem to be based on the simple faith that all men are really equal in all respects or could be made equal under proper conditions. Generally, the assumptions of uniformity and equality are made implicitly rather than explicitly, perhaps because the absurdities and obvious errors of the position would then become clear. For who would deny that not everyone could be an opera singer or a batting champion? Some writers try to salvage the uniformity assumption by demonstrating that differences in wages occur solely because of the heavy cost of training for certain jobs. Thus, a doctor will earn more than a clerk because, in the nature of the task, a doctor will have to undergo the expenses of years of training, the expenses including actual money costs as well as opportunity costs foregone of earning money in such jobs as clerking. Therefore, in long-run equilibrium, money wage rates will not be uniform in the two fields, but income rates will be enough higher in medicine to just compensate for the loss so that the net wage or income rates, considered over the person's lifetime, will be the same. It is true that costs of training do enter in this way into market wage rates, but they do not account for all wage differentials by any means. Inherent differences in personal ability are also vital. Decades of training will not convert the average person into an opera star or a baseball champion. Many writers have based their analyses on the assumption of the homogeneity of all workers. Consequently, when they find that generally well-liked jobs, such as television directing, pay more than such disliked jobs as ditch-digging, they tend to assume that there is injustice and chicanery afoot. 
A recognition of differences in labor productivity, however, eliminates this bugbear. In such cases, a psychic component still exists that relatively lowers the wage of the better-liked job, but it is offset by the higher marginal value productivity and skill attached to the latter. Since TV directing takes more skill than ditch-digging, or rather, skill that fewer people have, the wage rates in the two occupations cannot be equalized. E. Productivity and Marginal Productivity Great care must be taken in dealing with the productivity concept. In particular, there is danger in using a term such as productivity of labor. Suppose, for example, we state that the productivity of labor has advanced in the last century. The implication is that the cause of this increase came from within labor itself, that is, because current labor is more energetic or personally skillful than previous labor. This, however, is not the case. An advancing capital structure increases the marginal productivity of labor because the labor supply has increased less than the supply of capital goods. This increase in the marginal productivity of labor, however, is not due to some special improvement in the labor energy expended. It is due to the increased supply of capital goods. The causal agents of increased wage rates in an expanding economy, then, are not primarily the workers themselves, but the capitalist entrepreneurs who have invested in capital goods. The workers are provided with more and better tools, and so their labor becomes relatively scarcer as compared to the other factors. It should be understood throughout that when we refer to increases in wage rates or ground rents in the expanding economy, we are referring to real and not necessarily to money wage rates or ground rents. That each man receives his marginal value product means that each man is paid what he is worth in producing for consumers. But this does not mean that increases in his worth over the years are necessarily caused by his own improvement. On the contrary, as we have seen, the rise is primarily due to the increasing abundance of capital goods provided by the capitalists. It is, then, clearly impossible to impute absolute productivity to any productive factor or class of factors. In the absolute sense, it is meaningless to try to impute productivity to any factor, since all the factors are necessary to the product. We can discuss productivity only in marginal terms, in terms of the productive contribution of a single unit of a factor, given the existence of other factors. This is precisely what entrepreneurs do on the market, adding and subtracting units of factors in an attempt to achieve the most profitable course of action. Another illustration of the error in attempting to attribute increased productivity to the workers themselves occurs within the various segments of the labor market. 
As we have seen, there is a definite connexity between all the occupations on the labor market, since labor is the prime, non-specific factor. As a result, while wage rates are not equalized, psychic wage rates will all tend in the long run to move together and maintain a given skill differential between each occupation. Therefore, when a certain branch of industry expands its capital and production, an increase in DMVP, and therefore in wage rates, is not confined to that particular branch. Because of the connexity of the supply of labor, labor tends to leave other industries and enter the new ones, until finally all the wage rates throughout the labor market have risen, while maintaining the same differentials as before. Suppose, for example, that there is an expansion of capital in the steel industry. This assumes, of course, that there is no offsetting decline in capital elsewhere. If there is, then there will be no general rise in wages. The MVP of the steel worker increases, and his wage rates go up. The increase in wage rates, however, is governed by the fact that the rise will attract workers from more poorly paid industries. For example, suppose that steel workers are receiving 25 grains of gold per hour, while domestic servants receive 15 grains per hour. Now, under the impetus of expansion, the MVP and hence the wage rate of the steel workers go up to 30 grains. The differential has been increased, inducing domestic servants to enter the steel industry, lowering steel wages, and especially raising servants' wages, until the differential is re-established. Thus, a rise in capital investment in steel will increase the wages of workers in domestic service. The latter increase is clearly not caused by some sort of increase in the productivity or in the quality of the output of the domestic servants. Rather, their marginal value productivity has increased as a result of the greater scarcity of labor in the service trades. The differentials will not remain precisely constant in practice, of course, since changing investment and changing methods also alter the types of skills required in the economy. The shift in labor supply will not usually be as abrupt as in our example. Generally, it will take place from one occupation or one grade to a closely similar grade or occupation. Thus, more ditch diggers might become foremen, more foremen, supervisors, etc., so that shifts will take place from grade to grade. It is as if the labor market consisted of linked segments, a change in one segment transmitting itself throughout the chain from each link to the next. F. A note on overt and total wage rates. It is total wage rates that are determined on the market. They tend to be equalized on the market and to be set at the DMVP of the worker. Total wage rates are the money paid out by the employer for labor services. They do not necessarily correspond to the take-home pay of the worker. 
The latter may be called the overt wage rates. Thus, suppose that there are two competing employers bidding for the same type of labor. One employer, Mr. A, pays out a certain amount of money, not in direct wages, but in pension funds or other welfare benefits. These benefits, it must be realized, will not be added as a gift from the employer to the workers. They will not be additions to the total wage rates. Overt wage rates paid out by Mr. A will instead be correspondingly lower than those paid out by his rival, Mr. B, who does not have to spend on the welfare benefits. To the employer, in other words, it makes no difference in what form workers cost him money, whether in take-home pay or in welfare benefits. But he cannot pay more than the worker's DMVP, that is, the worker's total wage income is set by this amount. The worker, in effect, chooses in what form he would like his pay and in what proportion of net wage rates to welfare benefits. Part of these benefits is money that the employer might spend to provide particularly pleasant or plush working conditions for all or some of his employees. This cost is part of the total and is deducted from the overt wage rates of the employee. The institutional manner of paying wage rates is a matter of complete indifference to our analysis. Thus, while piece rates or time rates may be more convenient in any given industry, they do not differ in essentials. Both are wage rates paid for a certain amount of work. With time rates, the employer has in mind a standard of performance which he expects from a worker, and he pays according to that rate. G. The Problem of Unemployment An economic bugbear of our times is unemployment. Not only is this considered the preeminent problem of the depression in the business cycle, it is also generally considered the primary problem of the capitalist system, that is, of the developed free market economy. Well, at least socialism solves the unemployment problem, is supposed to be the most persuasive argument for socialism. Of particular interest to us is the sudden emergence of the unemployment problem in economic theory. The Keynesians in the mid-1930s inaugurated the fashion of declaiming, Neoclassical economics is all right for its special area, but it assumes full employment. Since orthodox economics assumes full employment, it holds true only so long as full employment prevails. If it does not, we enter a Keynesian wonderland where all economic truths are vitiated or reversed. Full employment is supposed to be the condition of no unemployment, and therefore the goal at which everyone aims. In the first place, it should be emphasized that economic theory does not assume full employment. Economics, in fact, assumes nothing. The whole discussion of alleged assumptions reflects the bias of the epistemology of physics, 
where assumptions are made without originally knowing their validity and are eventually tested to see whether or not their consequence are correct. The economist does not assume. He knows. He concludes on the basis of logical deduction from self-evident axioms, that is, axioms that are either logically or empirically incontrovertible. Now, what does economics conclude on the matter of unemployment or full employment? In the first place, there is no problem involved in the unemployment of either land or capital goods factors. The latter condition is often known as idle or unused capacity. We have seen that a crucial distinction between land and labor is that labor is relatively scarce. As a result, there will always be land factors remaining unused or unemployed. Capital goods will remain unemployed because of previous entrepreneurial error, that is, investing in the wrong type of capital goods. As a further result, labor factors will always be fully employed on the free market, to the extent that laborers are so willing. There is no problem of unemployed land, since land remains unused for a good reason. Indeed, if this were not so, and it is conceivable that some day it will not be, the situation would be most unpleasant. If there is ever a time when land is scarcer than labor, then land will be fully employed, and some labor factors will either get a zero wage or else a wage below minimum subsistence level. This is the old classical bugbear of population pressing the food supply down to below subsistence levels, and certainly this is theoretically possible in the future. This is the only case in which an unemployment problem might be said to apply in the free market. But even here, if we consider the problem carefully, we see that there is no unemployment problem per se. For if what a man wants is simply a job, he could work for zero wages or even pay his employer to work for him. In other words, he could earn a negative wage. Now this could never happen, for the good reason that labor is a disutility, especially as compared to leisure or play. Yet all the worry about full employment makes it appear that the job, and not the income from the job, is the great desideratum. If that were really the case, then there would be negative wages, and there would be no unemployment problem either. The fact that no one will work for zero or negative wages implies that in addition to whatever enjoyment he receives, the laborer requires a monetary income from his work. So what the worker wants is not just employment, which he could always get in the last resort by paying for it, but employment at a wage. But once this is recognized, the whole modern and Keynesian emphasis on employment has to be revalued, for the great missing link in their discussion of unemployment is precisely the wage rate. 
To talk of unemployment or employment without reference to a wage rate is as meaningless as talking of supply or demand without reference to a price, and it is precisely analogous. The demand for a commodity makes sense only with reference to a certain price. In a market for goods, it is obvious that whatever stock is offered as supply, it will be cleared. That is, sold at a price determined by the demand of the consumers. No good need remain unsold if the seller wants to sell it. All he need do is lower the price sufficiently. In extreme cases, even below zero, if there is no demand for the good and he wants to get it off his hands, the situation is precisely the same here. Here we are dealing with labor services. Whatever supply of labor services is brought to market can be sold, but only if wages are set at whatever rate will clear the market. We conclude that there can never be on the free market an unemployment problem. If a man wishes to be employed, he will be, provided the wage rate is adjusted according to his DMVP. But since no one wants to be simply employed without getting what he considers sufficient payment, we conclude that employment per se is not even a desired goal of human action, let alone a problem. The problem then is not employment, but employment at an above subsistence wage. There is no guarantee that this situation will always obtain on the free market. The case mentioned above, scarcity of land in relation to labor, can lead to a situation where a worker's DMVP is below a subsistence wage for him. There also may be so little capital invested per worker that any wage will be below subsistence for many people. Even in a relatively prosperous society, there may be individual workers so infirm or lacking in skill that their particular talents could not command an above-subsistence wage. In that case, they could survive only through the gifts of those who are making above-subsistence wages. But what of the able-bodied worker who can't find a job? This situation cannot obtain. In those cases, of course, where a worker insists on a certain type of job or a certain minimum wage rate, he may well remain unemployed, but he does so only of his own volition and on his own responsibility. Thus, suppose that perhaps half the labor force suddenly insisted that they would not work unless they received a job in New York City in the television industry. Obviously, unemployment would suddenly become enormous. This is only a large-scale example of something that is always going on. There may be a shift of industry away from one town or region and toward another. A worker may decide that he wants to remain in the old town and insists on looking for a job there. If he fails to get one, however, the fault lies with himself and not with the capitalist system. The same is true of a clerk who insists on working only in the TV industry, or of a radio employee who refuses to leave for television and insists on working only in radio. 
We are not condemning these workers here. We are simply saying that by their decisions, they are themselves choosing not to be employed. The able-bodied in a developed economy can always find work, and work that will pay an over-subsistence wage. This is so because labor is scarcer than land, and enough capital has been invested to raise the marginal value product of laborers sufficiently to pay such a wage. But while this is true in the general labor market, it is not necessarily true for particular labor markets, for particular regions or occupations, as we have just seen. If a worker can withdraw from the labor market by insisting on a certain type of work or location of work, he can also withdraw by insisting on a certain minimum wage payment. Suppose a man insisted that he would not work at any job unless he is paid 500 gold ounces per year. If his best available DMVP is only 100 gold ounces per year, he will remain unemployed. Whenever a man insists on a wage higher than his DMVP, he will remain unemployed. That is, unemployed at the wage that he insists upon. But then, this unemployment is not a problem, but a voluntary choice on the part of the idle person. As Mises concludes, unemployment in the unhampered market is always voluntary. Particularly recommended is Mises' critique of the theory of frictional unemployment. The full employment provided by the free market is employment to the extent that workers wish to be employed. If they refuse to be employed except at places, in occupations, or at wage rates they would like to receive, then they are likely to be choosing unemployment for substantial periods. Economics does not assume mobility of labor. It simply analyzes the consequences of a laborer's decision to be mobile or immobile, the latter amounting to a voluntary choice of at least temporary unemployment. It might be objected that workers often do not know what job opportunities await them. This, however, applies to the owner of any goods up for sale. The very function of marketing is the acquisition and dissemination of information about the goods or services available for sale. Except to those writers who posit a fantastic world where everyone has perfect knowledge of all relevant data, the marketing function is a vital aspect of the production structure. The marketing function can be performed in the labor market as well as in any other, through agencies or other means for the discovery of who or where the potential buyers and sellers of a particular service may be. In the labor market, this has been done through want ads in the newspapers, employment agencies used by both employer and employee, etc., of course, full employment as an absolute ideal is absurd in a world where leisure is a positive good. A man may choose idleness in order to obtain leisure. He benefits, or believes he benefits, more from this than from working at a job. The idleness referred to here is catalactic and not necessarily total. 
In other words, it means that a man does not seek to sell his labor services for money and therefore does not enter the societal labor market. He might well be very busy working at hobbies, etc. We can see this truth more clearly if we consider the hours of the work week. Will anyone maintain that an 80-hour work week is necessarily better than a 40-hour week? Yet the former clearly represents a fuller employment of labor than the latter. One alleged example of a possible case of involuntary unemployment on the free market has been suggested by Professor Hayek. Hayek maintains that when there is a shift from investment to consumption, and therefore a shortening of the production structure on the market, there will be a necessary temporary unemployment of workmen thrown out of work in the higher stages, lasting until they can be reabsorbed in the shorter processes of the later stages. It is true that there is a loss in income as well as a loss in capital from a shift to shorter processes. It is also true that the shortening of the structure means that there is a transition period when, at final wage rates, there will be unemployment of the men displaced from the longer processes. However, during this transition period, there is no reason why these workers cannot bid down wage rates until they are low enough to enable the employment of all the workers during the transition. This transition wage rate will be lower than the new equilibrium wage rate, but at no time is there a necessity for unemployment. The ever-recurring doctrine of technological unemployment, man displaced by the machine, is hardly worthy of extended analysis. Its absurdity is evident when we look at the advanced economy and compare it with the primitive one. In the former, there is an abundance of machines and processes completely unknown to the latter. Yet in the former, standards of living are far higher for far greater numbers of people. How many workers have been displaced because of the invention of the shovel? The technological unemployment motif is encouraged by the use of the term labor-saving devices for capital goods, which to some minds conjure up visions of laborers being simply discarded. Labor needs to be saved because it is the preeminently scarce good, and because man's wants for exchangeable goods are far from satisfied. Furthermore, these wants would not be satisfied at all if the capital goods structure were not maintained. The more labor is saved, the better. For then, labor is using more and better capital goods to satisfy more of its wants in a shorter amount of time. Of course, there will be unemployment if, as we have stated, workers insist on their own terms for work, and these terms cannot be met. This applies to technological changes as well as any other. The clerk, who for some reason insists nowadays on working only for a blacksmith or in an old-fashioned general store, may well have chosen a large dose of idleness. Any workers who insisted on working in the buggy industry or nothing found themselves, no doubt, unemployed after the development of the automobile. 
A technological improvement in an industry will tend to increase employment in that industry if the demand for the product is elastic downward, so that the greater supply of goods induces greater consumer spending. On the other hand, an innovation in an industry with inelastic demand downward will cause consumers to spend less on the more abundant products, contracting employment in that industry. In short, the process of technological innovation shifts workers from the inelastic demand to the elastic demand industries. One of the major sources of new employment demand is in the industry making the new machines. Three, entrepreneurship and income. A, costs to the firm. We have seen the basis on which the prices of the factors of production and the interest rate are determined. Looked at from the point of view of an individual entrepreneur, payments to factors are money costs. It is clear that we cannot simply rest on the old classical law that prices of products tend, in the long run, to be equal to their costs of production. Costs are not fixed by some invisible hand, but are determined precisely by the total force of entrepreneurial demand for factors of production. Basically, as Bermbaverk and the Austrians pointed out, costs conform to prices and not vice versa. Confusion may arise because, looked at from the point of view of the individual firm rather than of the economist, it appears as if costs, at least in the sense of the prices of factors, are somehow given and beyond one's control. Hence, when the economist considers only the single firm, as in recent years, he goes completely astray by ignoring the generality of economic interrelations. To analyze means-ends relations logically, as economics does, requires taking all relations into account. Failure to do so, either by treating the single firm only, or by treating unreal holistic aggregates, or by taking refuge in the irrelevant mathematics of the Lausanne General Equilibrium School, is equivalent to abandoning economics. If a firm can command a selling price that will more than cover its costs, it remains in business. If not, it will have to leave. The illusion of externally determined costs is prevalent because, as we shall presently see, most factors can be employed in a wide variety of firms, if not industries. If we take the broader view of the economist, however, the various costs—that is, prices of factors—determined by their various DMVPs in alternative uses are ultimately determined solely by consumers' demand for all uses. It must not be forgotten, furthermore, that changes in demand and selling price will change the prices and incomes of specialized factors in the same direction. The cost curves, so fashionable in current economics, assume fixed factor prices, thereby ignoring their variability even for the single firm. 
It might be noted that in this work there is none of that plethora and tangle of cost curves which fill the horizon of almost every recent neoclassical work in economics. Many beginning students come away with the impression that economics consists of an indigestible brew of cost curves to be memorized by rote and drawn neatly on the blackboard. This omission has been deliberate, since it is our contention that the cost curves are at best redundant, thus violating the simplicity principle of Occam's razor, and at worst misleading and erroneous. As an explanation of the pricing of factors and the allocation of output, it is obvious that cost curves add nothing new to discussion in terms of marginal productivity. At best, the two are reversible. This can be clearly seen in such texts as E.T. Weiler's The Economic System and George J. Stigler's Theory of Price. But in addition, the shift brings with it many grave deficiencies and errors. This is revealed in the very passage in which Stigler explains the reasons for his switch from a perfunctory discussion of productivity to a lengthy treatment of cost curves. The law of variable proportions has now been explored sufficiently to permit a transition to the cost curves of the individual firm. The fundamentally new element in the discussion will, of course, be the introduction of prices of the productive services. The transition is made here only for the case of competition. That is, the prices of the productive services are constant because the firm does not buy enough of any service to affect its price. But by introducing given prices of productive services, the contemporary theorist really abandons any attempt to explain these prices. This is one of the cardinal errors of the currently fashionable theory of the firm. It is highly superficial. One of the aspects of this superficiality is the assumption that prices of productive services are given without any attempt to explain them. To furnish an explanation, marginal productivity analysis is necessary. Marginal productivity analysis and the profit motive are sufficient to explain the prices of productive factors and their allocation to various firms and industries in the economy. Furthermore, there are, in production theory, two important and interesting concepts involving periods of time— One is what we may call the immediate run, the market prices of commodities and factors on the basis of given stocks and speculative demands and given consumer valuations. The immediate run is important, since it provides an explanation of the actual market prices of all goods at any time. The other important concept is that of the final price, or the long-run equilibrium price, that is, the price that would be established in the ERE. This is important because it reveals the direction in which the immediate-run market prices tend to move. It also permits the analytic isolation of interest, as compared to profit and loss, in entrepreneurial incomes. 
In the ERE, all factors will receive their discounted marginal value product, and interest will be pure time preference. There will be no profit and loss. The interesting phases, then, are the immediate run and the long run. Yet cost-curve analysis deals almost exclusively with a hybrid intermediate phase known as the short run. In this short run, costs are sharply divided into two categories, fixed, which must be incurred regardless of the amount produced, and variable, which vary with output. This whole construction is a highly artificial one. There is no actual fixity of costs. Any alleged fixity depends purely on the length of time involved. In fact, suppose that production is zero. The cost curve theorists would have us believe that even at zero output, there are fixed costs that must be incurred. Rent of land, payment of management, etc., However, it is clear that if data are frozen, as they should be in such an analysis, and the entrepreneurs expect a situation of zero output to continue indefinitely, these fixed costs would become variable and disappear very quickly. The rent contract for land would be terminated and management fired as the firm closed its doors. There are no fixed costs. Rather, there are different degrees of variability for different productive factors. Some factors are best used in a certain quantity over a certain range of output, while others yield best results over other ranges of output. The result is not a dichotomy into fixed and variable costs, but a condition of many degrees of variability for the various factors. Lionel Robbins points out that the length of a period of productive activity depends upon the expectations of entrepreneurs concerning the permanence of a change and the technical obstacles to a change. Even if none of these difficulties existed, it is hard to see why the short run should be picked out for detailed analysis when it is merely one way station, or rather a series of way stations, between the important periods of time, the immediate run and the long run. Analytically, the cost-curve approach is at best of little interest. With these caveats, let us now turn to an analysis of the costs of the firm. Let us consider what will happen to costs at alternate hypothetical levels of output. There are two elements that determine the behavior of average costs, that is, total costs per unit output. A. There are physical costs the amounts of factors that must be purchased in order to obtain a certain physical quantity of output. These are the obverse of physical productivity, the amounts of the physical product that can be produced with various amounts of factors. This is a technological problem. Here, the question is not marginal productivity, where one factor is varied while others remain constant in quantity. Here, we concentrate on the scale of output when all factors are permitted to vary. 
Where all factors and the product are completely divisible, a proportionate increase in the quantities of all the factors must lead to an equally proportionate increase in physical output. This may be called the law of constant returns to scale. B. The second determinant of average costs is factor prices. Pure competition theorists assume that these prices remain unchanged with a changing scale of output, but this is impossible. As any firm's scale of output increases, it necessarily bids factors of production away from other firms, raising their prices in the process. And this is particularly true for labor and land factors, which cannot be increased in supply via new production. The increase in factor prices as output increases, combined with constant physical costs, raises the average money cost per unit output. We may therefore conclude that if factors and product were perfectly divisible, average cost would always be increasing. In the productive world, perfect divisibility does not always or even usually obtain. Units of factors and of output are indivisible, that is, they are not purely divisible into very small units. First, the product may be indivisible. Thus, suppose that three units of factor A plus two units of factor B may combine to produce one refrigerator. Now, it may be true that 6A plus 4B will produce two refrigerators according to our law of returns to scale. But it is also true that 4A plus 3B will not produce one and a fraction refrigerators. There are bound to be gaps where an increased supply of factors will not lead to an increased product because of the technological indivisibility of the unit product. In the areas of the gaps, average costs increase rapidly, since new factors are being hired with no product forthcoming. Then, when expenditures on factors are increased sufficiently to produce more of the product, there is a precipitate decline in average cost compared to the situation during the gap. As a result, no businessman will knowingly invest in the area of the gaps. To invest more without yielding a product is sheer waste, and so businessmen will invest only in the trough points outside the gap areas. For example, suppose that a thousand gold ounces invested in factors yield 100 units of product and that 1,100 ounces yield 101 units. All the points in the gap between 1,000 and 1,100 will yield no more than 100 units. The excess of investment over 1,000 and under 1,100 ounces is clearly sheer waste, and no businessman will invest within the gap. Instead, investments will be made at such trough points for average cost as 1,000 and 1,100. Secondly, and more important, the productive factors may be indivisible. 
Because of this indivisibility, it is not possible simply to double or halve the quantities of input of every one of the productive services simultaneously. Each factor has its own technological unit size. As a result, almost all business decisions take place in zones in which many factors have to remain constant, while others, the more divisible ones, may vary. And these relative divisibilities and indivisibilities are due not to variations in periods of time, but to the technological size of the various units. In any productive operation, there will be many varieties of indivisibility. Professor Stigler presents the example of a railroad track, a factor capable of handling up to 200 trains a day. The track is most efficiently utilized when train runs total precisely 200 a day. This is the technologically ideal output, and may be the one for which the track was designed. Now what happens when output is below 200? Suppose output is only 100 per day. The divisible factors of production will then be cut in half by the owners of the railroad. Thus, if engineers are divisible, the railroad will hire half as many engineers, or hire its engineers for half their usual number of hours. But, and this is the critical point here, the railroad cannot cut the track in half and operate on half a track. The technological unit of track being what it is, the number of tracks has to remain at one. Conversely, when output increases to 200 again, other productive services may be doubled, but the quantity of track remains the same. We are not discussing the fact that the railroad could, of course, cut down or increase the mileage of its track by including less or more geographic area in its service, the example assumes a given geographic area in which the railroad operates. What happens should output increase to 250 trains a day, a 25% increase over the planned quantity? Divisible services such as engineers may be increased by one-fourth, but the track must either remain at one and be overutilized, or be increased to two. If it is increased, the tracks will again be underutilized at 250, because the ideal output from the point of view of utilizing the tracks is now 400. When an important indivisible factor is becoming less and less underutilized, the tendency will be for increasing returns, for decreasing average costs as output increases. When an important indivisible factor is becoming more and more overutilized, there is a tendency for increasing average costs. In some spheres of production, indivisibilities may be such that full utilization of one indivisible factor requires full utilization of all. In that case, all the indivisible factors move together and can be lumped together for our purposes. 
they become the equivalent of one indivisible factor, such as the railroad track. In such cases, again, average costs will first decline with an increase in output, as the increased output remedies an underutilization of the lumped indivisible factors. After the technologically most efficient point is reached, however, costs will increase, given the indivisible factors. The tendency for costs to decline will, in addition, be offset by the rise in factor prices caused by the increase in output. In the overwhelming majority of cases, however, each factor will differ from the others in size and degree of divisibility. As a consequence, any size or combination chosen might utilize one indivisible factor most efficiently, but at the expense of not utilizing some other indivisible factor at peak efficiency. Suppose we consider a hypothetical schedule of average money cost at each alternative output. When we start at a very low level of output, all the indivisible factors will be underutilized. Then, as we expand production, average costs will decrease unless offset by the price rise for those divisible factors needed to expand production. As soon as one of the indivisible factors is fully utilized and becomes overworked, average costs will rise sharply. Later, a tendency toward decreasing costs sets in again as another underutilized factor becomes more fully utilized. The result is an alternating series of decreases and increases in average costs as output increases. Eventually, a point will be reached at which more indivisible factors will be overutilized than underutilized, and from then on the general trend of average cost as output increases will be upward. Before that point, the trend will be downward. Mingling with these influences from the technological side of costs are the continuing rises in factor prices, which also become more important as output increases. In sum, as Mises states, other things being equal, the more the production of a certain article increases, the more factors of production must be withdrawn from other employments in which they would have been used for the production of other articles. Hence, other things being equal, average production costs increase with the increase in the quantity produced. But this general law is by sections superseded by the phenomenon that not all factors of production are perfectly divisible, and that, as far as they can be divided, they are not divisible in such a way that full utilization of one of them results in full utilization of the other imperfectly divisible factors. Some indivisible factors, such as the railroad track, can be available in only one particular size. Other indivisible factors, such as machinery, can be built in various sizes. Cannot a small factory, then, use small-scale machinery, which will be just as efficient as large-scale machinery in a larger factory? 
And would this not eliminate indivisibilities and result in constant costs? No, for here too one particular size will probably be most efficient. Below the most efficient size, operating the machine will be more costly. Thus, as Stigler says, fitting together of the parts of a 10-horsepower motor does not require 10 times the labor necessary to fit those of a 1-horsepower motor. Similarly, a truck requires one driver, whether it has a half-ton or two-ton capacity. It is also true that an oversized machine will be more costly than the optimum, but this will be no limitation on the size of the firm, for a large firm can simply use several smaller optimum-sized machines instead of one huge machine. Labor is usually treated as a perfectly divisible factor, as one that varies directly with the size of the output. But this is not true. As we have seen, the truck driver is not divisible into fractions. Further, management tends to be an indivisible production factor. So also, salesmen, advertising, cost of borrowing, research expenditures, and even insurance for actuarial risk. There are certain basic costs in borrowing which simply arise from investigating, paperwork, etc. These will tend to be proportionately smaller the larger the size, another indivisibility, with returns increasing over a certain area. Also, the broader the coverage, the lower insurance premiums will be. It is particularly important not to limit possible efficiencies from large-scale production to narrow technological factors such as the size of the plant. There are also efficiencies derived from the organization of a firm owning several plants. For example, management utilization, specialization, efficiency of large-scale purchasing and selling, research expenditures, etc. Then there are the well-known gains from the increase in the division of labor with larger outputs. The benefits from the division of labor may be considered indivisible. They arise from the specialized machines that must first be used with a larger product, and similarly from the increased labor skills of specialists. Here, too, however, there is a point beyond which no further specialization is possible, or where specialization is subject to increasing costs. Management has usually been stressed as particularly subject to overutilization. Even more important is the factor of ultimate decision-making ability, which cannot be enlarged to the extent that management can. What any given firm's size and output will be is therefore subject to a host of conflicting determinants, some impelling a limitation, some an expansion of size. At what point any firm will settle depends on the concrete data of the actual case and cannot be decided by economic analysis. Only the actual entrepreneur, through the give and take of the market, can decide where the maximum profit size is and can set the firm at that point. This is the task of the businessman and not of the economist.
Furthermore, the cost curve diagrams, so simple and smooth in the textbooks, misinterpret real conditions. We have seen that there are a whole host of determinants which tend at any point toward increasing and toward decreasing costs. It is, of course, true that an entrepreneur will seek to produce at the point of maximum profit, that is, of maximum net returns over costs. But the factors that influence his decision are too numerous and their interactions too complex to be captured in cost curve diagrams. It is clear to almost everyone that the optimum size of a firm in some industries is larger than in others. The economic optimum for a steel plant is larger than the optimum barbershop. In industries where large-scale firms have demonstrated the most efficiency, however, many people have worried a great deal about an alleged tendency for decreasing costs to continue permanently and therefore for monopoly to result from ever-larger firms. It should be obvious, however, that there is no infinite tendency for ever-larger size. This is clear from the very fact that every firm at any time always has a finite size, and that therefore an economic limit must have been imposed upon it from some direction. Furthermore, we have seen that the general rule of operating in a zone of diminishing marginal productivity for each factor, as well as the tendency for product prices to decline and factor prices to increase as output increases, establishes limits on the size of each firm. And, as a neglected point, we shall see that ultimate limits are set on the relative size of the firm by the necessity for markets to exist in every factor in order to make it possible for the firm to calculate its profits and losses. Money costs will equal opportunity costs to the businessman only when he plans an investment in factors. To the extent that his money costs are sunk in any production process, they are committed irrevocably, and any future plans must consider them as irretrievably spent. Plans are relevant not only in the ERE, but also to all decisions on maintenance or replacement, as well as additions to capital goods when they wear out or fall into disrepair. The businessman's market supply will depend on his present opportunity cost, not his past money cost. For the businessman sells his goods at any price that will more than cover any further costs that must be incurred in selling them. As capital goods move toward final output in any stage of the production structure, more and more investment has been sunk into the process. Therefore, the marginal cost of further production, roughly the opportunity cost, becomes ever lower as the product moves toward final output and sale. When, for example, some costs are not fixed but irrevocable from the point of view of further short-run production, they are not included in the businessman's estimated costs of such further production. 
As we have seen, the sale of immediate stock, completely ready for sale, is virtually costless, since there are no further costs for its production in the immediate run. It is costless only if no rise in the price of the good is foreseen for the near future. If it is, then there will arise the opportunity cost of foregoing a higher price. Hence, if there is no hope of a higher price, the businessman will sell, however low the price, adjusting for the costs of selling minus the costs of continued storage. In the ERE, of course, all costs and investments will be adjusted, and irrevocably incurred costs will present no problem. In the ERE, average money costs for all firms will equal the price of the product minus pure interest return to the capitalist entrepreneurs, and also, as we shall see, minus the return to the discounted marginal productivity of the owner, a factor which does not enter into the firm's money costs. B. Business Income the net incomes in the economy accrue to labor in wages, to landowners in ground rents, both wages and ground rents being rents, that is, unit prices of productive factors, to capitalists in interest, all of which continue in the ERE, and profits and losses to entrepreneurs, which do not. Ground rents are capitalized in the capital value of land, which therefore earns the interest rate in the ERE. But what of the owners? Are their incomes exhausted by the category of entrepreneurial profit and loss, which we studied in Chapter 8? Or will they continue to earn income beyond interest in the ERE? So far we have seen that owners of businesses perform an entrepreneurial function, the function of uncertainty-bearing in an ever-changing world. Owners are also capitalists, who advance present funds to labor and land factors and earn interest. They may also be their own managers. In that case, they earn an implicit wage of management, since they are performing work which could also be performed by employees. We have seen that, catalactically, labor is the personal energy of non-owners in production, and that this factor receives wages. When the owner does laboring work himself, then he too earns an implicit wage. This wage, of course, continues also in the ERE. But is there a function which owning businessmen perform, and would still perform in the ERE, beyond the advancing of capital or possible managerial work? The answer is that they do execute another function for which they cannot hire other factors. It goes beyond the simple capital-advancing function, and it still continues in the ERE. For want of a better term, it may be called the decision-making function, or the ownership function. Hired managers may successfully direct production or choose production processes, but the ultimate responsibility and control of production rests inevitably with the owner, with the businessman whose property the product is until it is sold. 
It is the owners who make the decision concerning how much capital to invest and in what particular processes, and particularly, it is the owners who must choose the managers. The ultimate decisions concerning the use of their property and the choice of the men to manage it must therefore be made by the owners and by no one else. It is a function necessary to production and one that continues in the ERE, since even in the ERE there are skills needed to hire proper managers and invest in the most efficient processes. And even though these skills remain constant, the efficiency with which they are performed will differ from one firm to another, and differing returns will be received accordingly. In one of those extremely fertile but neglected hints of his, Bermbaverk wrote, "But even where he, the businessman, does not personally take part in the carrying out of the production." He yet contributes a certain amount of personal trouble in the shape of intellectual superintendence, say in planning the business, or at the least in the act of will by which he devotes his means of production to a definite undertaking. The decision-making factor is necessarily specific to each firm. We cannot call what it earns a wage because it can never be hired. And thus, it does not earn an implicit wage. We may therefore call the income of this factor the rent of decision-making ability. It is clear that this rent will be equal to the factor's DMVP, the amount which it specifically contributes to the firm's revenue. Since this ability differs from one owner to the next, the rents will differ accordingly. This difference accounts for the phenomenon of high-cost and low-cost firms in any industry, and indicates that differences in efficiency among firms are not solely functions of ephemeral uncertainty, but would persist even in the ERE. Granting that the supramarginal, that is, the lower-cost firms in an industry, are earning rents of decision-making ability for their owners, what of the marginal firms in the industry, the high-cost firms just barely in business? Are their owners earning rents of decision-making ability? Many economists have believed that these marginal firms earn no such income. Just as they have believed that the marginal land earns zero rent, we have seen, however, that the marginal land earns some rent, even if close to zero. Similarly, the marginal firm earns some rent of decision-making ability. We can never say quantitatively how much it will be, only that it will be less than the corresponding decision rents of the supra marginal firms. The belief that marginal firms earn no decision rents whatever seems to stem from two errors: one, the assumption of mathematical continuity, so that successive points blend together. And two, the assumption that rent is basically differential, and therefore that the most inferior working land or firm must earn zero to establish the differential. We have seen, however, that rents are absolute—the earnings and marginal value products of factors. 
There is no necessity, therefore, for the poorest factor to earn zero, as we can see when we realize that wages are a subdivision of rents, and that there is clearly no one making a zero wage, and so neither does the marginal firm earn a decision rent of zero. That the decision rent earned by the marginal firm must be positive and not zero becomes evident if we consider a firm whose decision rent is only zero. Its owner would then be performing certain functions, making and bearing responsibility for ultimate decisions about his property and choosing the top managers, and yet receiving no return and this in the ERE, where it cannot be simply the unforeseen result of entrepreneurial mistakes. But there will be no reason for the owner to continue performing these functions without a return. He will not continue to earn what is psychically a negative return, for while he remained in business, he would continue to expend energy in ownership while receiving nothing in return. To sum up, the income accruing to a business owner in a changing economy will be a composite of four elements. A. Interest on capital invested, uniform in the ERE. B. Wages of management when owner is self-employed, set according to DMVP. C. Rents of ownership decision, set according to DMVP. A, B, and C, all remaining in the ERE. Disappearing in the ERE. D, entrepreneurial profit or loss. We have so far been dealing almost exclusively with capitalist entrepreneurs. Since the entrepreneur is the actor in relation to natural uncertainty, the capital investor, who hires and makes advances to other factors, plays a peculiarly important entrepreneurial role. Making decisions concerning how much and where to invest, he is the driving force of the modern economy. Laborers are also entrepreneurs in the sense of predicting demand in the markets for labor and choosing to enter certain markets accordingly. Someone who emigrates from one country to another in expectation of a higher wage is, in this sense, an entrepreneur and may obtain a monetary profit or loss from his move. One important distinction between capitalist entrepreneurs and laborer entrepreneurs is that only the former may suffer negative incomes in production. Even if a laborer emigrates to a nation where pay turns out to be lower than expected, he absorbs only a differential or opportunity loss from what he might have earned elsewhere, but he still earns a positive wage in production. Even in the unlikely event of a labor surplus vis-à-vis -vis land, the laborer earns zero and not negative wages. But the capitalist entrepreneur, the man who hires the other factors, can and does incur actual monetary losses from his entrepreneurial effort. C. Personal Consumer Service 
A particularly important category of laborer entrepreneurs is that of the sellers of personal services to consumers. These laborers are generally capitalists as well. The sellers of such services, doctors, lawyers, concert artists, servants, etc., are self-employed businessmen who, in addition to interest on whatever capital they have invested, earn an implicit managerial wage for their labor. Since the scope of their business property and decisions is relatively negligible compared to their labor services, we may neglect their decision rents here. It is a managerial wage, even though the only employee may be the owner himself. It may seem strange to classify a domestic servant as self-employed, but actually he is no different from a doctor or a lawyer to the extent that the latter sells his services to consumers rather than to capitalists. Thus, they earn a peculiar type of income a business return consisting almost exclusively of labor income. We may call this type of work direct labor, since it is labor that serves directly as a consumer's good rather than hired as a factor of production. And since it is a consumer's good, this labor service is priced directly on the market. The determination of the prices of these goods will be similar on the demand side to that of any consumer's good. Consumers evaluate marginal units of the service on their value scales and decide how much, if any, to purchase. There is a difference, however, on the supply side. The sale of the product once produced is costless to the entrepreneur. He has no alternative use for it. The case of personal service, however, is different. In the first place, leisure is a definite alternative to work. In the second place, as a result of the connexity of the labor market, the worker can shift to a higher-paying occupation further up on the structure of production if his income in this occupation is unsatisfactory. The seller of the service, or the direct laborer, earns, as do all factors, his DMVP to the consumer. He will allocate his labor to whatever branch, whether high or low in the structure of production, where his DMVP will be the highest, and where, as a consequence, his wage rate will be the greatest. The principles of allocation, then, between direct labor and indirect labor in production are the same as those among the various branches of indirect productive use. D. Market Calculation and Implicit Earnings We have seen that a musician or a doctor earns wages without being an employee. The wages of each are implicit in the income that he receives, even though they are received directly from the consumers. In the real world, each function is not necessarily performed by a different person. The same person can be a landowner and a worker. Similarly, a particular firm, or rather its owner or owners, may own land and participate in the production of capital goods. The owner may also manage his own firm. 
In practice, the different sources of income can be separated only by referring to these incomes as determined by prices on the market. For example, suppose that a man owns a firm which invests its capital, owns its own ground land, and produces a capital good, and that he manages the plant himself. He receives a net income over a year's period of 1,000 gold ounces. How can he estimate the different sources of his income? Suppose that he had invested 5,000 gold ounces in the business. He looks around at the economy and finds that what he can pretty well call the ruling rate of interest toward which the economy is tending is 5%. He then concludes that 250 gold ounces of his net income was implicit interest. Next, he estimates approximately what he would have received in wages of management if he had gone to work for a competing firm, rather than engaging in this business. Suppose he estimates that this would have been 500 gold ounces. He then looks to his ground land. What could he have received for the land if he had rented it out instead of using it himself in the business? Let us say that he could have received 400 ounces in rental income for the land. Now our owner received a net money income as landowner, capitalist, laborer, entrepreneur of 1,000 gold ounces for the year. He then estimates what his costs were in money terms. These costs are not his explicit money expenses, which have already been deducted to find his net income, but his implicit expenses, that is, his opportunities foregone by engaging in the business. Adding up these costs, he finds that they total 250 gold ounces in interest, 500 gold ounces in wages, 400 gold ounces in rent for a total of 1,150 gold ounces total opportunity costs. Thus, the entrepreneur suffered a loss of 150 ounces over the period. If his opportunity costs had been less than 1,000, he would have gained an entrepreneurial profit. It is true that such estimates are not precise, the estimates of what he would have received can never be wholly accurate. But this tool of ex-post calculation is an indispensable one. It is the only way by which a man can guide his ex-ante decisions, his future actions. By means of this calculation, he may realize that he is suffering a loss in this business, if the loss continues much longer, he will be impelled to shift his various resources to other lines of production. It is only by means of such estimates that an owner of more than one type of factor in the firm can determine his gains or losses in any situation, and then allocate his resources to strive for the greatest gains. A very important aspect of such estimates of implicit incomes has been overlooked. There can be no implicit estimates without an explicit market. When an entrepreneur receives income, in other words, he receives a complex of various functional incomes. 
To isolate them by calculation, there must be in existence an external market to which the entrepreneur can refer. This is an extremely important point, for, as we shall soon see in detail, this furnishes a most important limitation on the relative potential size of a single firm on the market. For example, suppose we return for a moment to our old hypothetical example in which each firm is owned jointly by all its factor owners. In that case, there is no separation at all between workers, landowners, capitalists, and entrepreneurs. There would be no way, then, of separating the wage incomes received from the interest or rent incomes or profits received. And now we finally arrive at the reason why the economy cannot consist completely of such firms, called producers' cooperatives. Another reason why an economy of producers' cooperatives could not calculate is that every original factor would be tied indissolubly to a specific line of production. There can be no calculation where all factors are purely specific. For without an external market for wage rates, rents, and interest, there would be no rational way for entrepreneurs to allocate factors in accordance with the wishes of the consumers. No one would know where he could allocate his land or his labor to provide the maximum monetary gains. No entrepreneur would know how to arrange factors in their most value-productive combinations to earn the greatest profit. There could be no efficiency in production because the requisite knowledge would be lacking. The productive system would be in complete chaos, and everyone, whether in his capacity as consumer or as producer, would be injured thereby. It is clear that a world of producers' cooperatives would break down for any economy but the most primitive, because it could not calculate, and therefore could not arrange productive factors to meet the desires of the consumers, and hence earn the highest incomes for the producers. E. Vertical Integration and the Size of the Firm in the free economy, there is an explicit time market, labor market, and land rent market. It is clear that while chaos would ensue from a world of producers' cooperatives, other critical points even before that would, as it were, introduce little bits of chaos into the productive system. Thus, suppose that workers are separated from capitalists, but that all capitalists own their own ground land. Further, suppose that for one reason or another, no capitalist will be able to rent out his land to some other firm. In that case, land and a particular capital and production process are indissolubly wedded to each other. There would be no rational way to allocate land in production, since it would have no explicit price anywhere. Since producers would suffer heavy losses, the free market would never establish such a situation. For the free market always tends to conduct affairs so that entrepreneurs make the greatest profit through serving the consumer best and most efficiently. 
since absence of calculation creates grave inefficiencies in the system, it also causes heavy losses. Such a situation, absence of calculation, would therefore never be established on a free market, particularly after an advanced economy has already developed calculation and a market. If this is true for such cases as a world of producers' cooperatives and the absence of a rent market, it also holds true on a smaller scale for vertical integration and the size of a firm. Vertical integration occurs when a firm produces not only at one stage of production, but over two or more stages. For example, a firm becomes so large that it buys labor, land, and capital goods of the fifth order, then works on these capital goods, producing other capital goods of the fourth order. In another plant, it then works on the fourth order capital goods until they become third order capital goods. It then sells the third order product. Vertical integration, of course, lengthens the production period for any firm. That is, it lengthens the time before the firm can recoup its investment in the production process. The interest return then covers the time for two or more stages rather than one. Vertical integration, we might note, tends to reduce the demand for money to turn over at various stages, and thereby to lower the purchasing power of the monetary unit. There is a more important question involved, however. This is the role of implicit earnings and calculation in a vertically integrated firm. The firm, say, buys labor and land factors at both the fifth and the fourth stages. It also makes the fourth-stage capital goods itself and uses them in another plant to make a lower-stage good. Does such a firm employ calculation within itself, and if so, how? Yes, the firm assumes that it sells itself the fourth-rank capital good. It separates its net income as a producer of fourth-rank capital from its role as producer of third-rank capital. It calculates the net income for each separate division of its enterprise and allocates resources according to the profit or loss made in each division. It is able to make such an internal calculation only because it can refer to an existing explicit market price for the fourth stage capital good. In other words, a firm can accurately estimate the profit or loss it makes in a stage of its enterprise only by finding out the implicit price of its internal product and it can do this only if an external market price for that product is established elsewhere. To illustrate, suppose that a firm is vertically integrated over two stages, with each stage covering one year's time. The general rate of interest in the economy tends towards 5% per annum. 
This particular firm, say, the Jones Manufacturing Company, a vertically integrated firm, buys factors at the fifth rank for 100 ounces and original factors at the fourth rank for 15 ounces. It sells the final product at 140 ounces. It seems that it has made a handsome entrepreneurial profit on its operations, but can it find out which stage or stages is making this profitable showing? If there is an external market for the product of the stage that the firm has vertically integrated, stage 4, the Jones Company is able to calculate the profitability of specific stages of its operations, Suppose, for example, that the price of the fourth-order capital good on the external market is 103 ounces. The Jones Company then estimates its implicit price for this intermediate product at what it would have brought on the market if it had been sold there. This price will be about 103 ounces. The implicit price or opportunity cost of selling to oneself might be less than the existing market price, since the entry of the Jones Company on the market might have lowered the price of the good, say to 102 ounces. There would be no way at all, however, to estimate the implicit price if there were no external market and external price. Assuming that the price is estimated at 103, then the total amount of money spent by Jones' lower-order plant on factors is 15, explicit on original factors, plus 103, implicit on capital goods, for a total of 118. Now the Jones Company can calculate the profits or losses made at each stage of its operations. The higher stage bought factors for 100 ounces and sold them at 103 ounces. It made a 3% return on its investment. The lower stage bought its factors for 118 ounces and sold the product for 140 ounces, making a 29% return. It is obvious that instead of enjoying a general profitability, the Jones Company suffered a 2% entrepreneurial loss on its earlier stage and gained a 24% profit on its later stage. Knowing this, it will shift resources from the higher to the lower stage in accordance with their respective profitabilities, and therefore in accordance with the desires of consumers. Perhaps it will abandon its higher stage altogether, buying the capital good from an external firm and concentrating its resources in the more profitable lower stage. On the other hand, suppose that there is no external market, that is, that the Jones Company is the only producer of the intermediate good. In that case, it would have no way of knowing which stage was being conducted profitably and which not. It would therefore have no way of knowing how to allocate factors to the various stages, there would be no way for it to estimate any implicit price or opportunity cost for the capital good at that particular stage. 
any estimate would be completely arbitrary and have no meaningful relation to economic conditions. In short, if there were no market for a product, and all of its exchanges were internal, there would be no way for a firm, or for anyone else, to determine a price for the good. A firm can estimate an implicit price when an external market exists, but when a market is absent, the good can have no price, whether implicit or explicit. Any figure could be only an arbitrary symbol. Not being able to calculate a price, the firm could not rationally allocate factors and resources from one stage to another. Since the free market always tends to establish the most efficient and profitable type of production, whether for type of good, method of production, allocation of factors, or size of firm, we must conclude that complete vertical integration for a capital good product can never be established on the free market above the primitive level. For every capital good, there must be a definite market in which firms buy and sell that good. It is obvious that this economic law sets a definite maximum to the relative size of any particular firm on the free market. Because of this law, firms cannot merge or cartelize for complete vertical integration of stages or products. Because of this law, there can never be one big cartel over the whole economy, or mergers until one big firm owns all the productive assets in the economy. The force of this law multiplies as the area of the economy increases, and as islands of non-calculable chaos swell to the proportions of masses and continents. As the area of incalculability increases, the degrees of irrationality, misallocation, loss, impoverishment, etc., become greater. Under one owner, or one cartel for the whole productive system, there would be no possible areas of calculation at all, and therefore complete economic chaos would prevail. Capital goods are stressed here because they are the product for which the calculability problem becomes important. Consumers' goods, per se, are no problem, since there are always many consumers buying goods, and therefore consumers' goods will always have a market. Economic calculation becomes ever more important as the market economy develops and progresses, as the stages and the complexities of type and variety of capital goods increase. Ever more important for the maintenance of an advanced economy, then, is the preservation of markets for all the capital and other producers' goods. Our analysis serves to expand the famous discussion of the possibility of economic calculation under socialism, launched by Professor Ludwig von Mises over 40 years ago. Mises, who has had the last as well as the first word in this debate, has demonstrated irrefutably that a socialist economic system cannot calculate, since it lacks a market, 
and hence lacks prices for producers and especially for capital goods. It is remarkable that so many anti-socialist writers have never become aware of this critical point. Now we see that, paradoxically, the reason why a socialist economy cannot calculate is not specifically because it is socialist. Socialism is that system in which the state forcibly seizes control of all the means of production in the economy. The reason for the impossibility of calculation under socialism is that one agent owns or directs the use of all the resources in the economy. It should be clear that it does not make any difference whether that one agent is the state or one private individual or private cartel. Whichever occurs, there is no possibility of calculation anywhere in the production structure, since production processes would be only internal and without markets. There could be no calculation, and therefore complete economic irrationality and chaos would prevail, whether the single owner is the state or private persons. The difference between the state and the private case is that our economic law debars people from ever establishing such a system in a free market society. Far lesser evils prevent entrepreneurs from establishing even islands of incalculability, let alone infinitely compounding such errors by eliminating calculability altogether. But the state does not and cannot follow such guides of profit and loss. Its officials are not held back by fear of losses from setting up all-embracing cartels for one or more vertically integrated products. The state is free to embark upon socialism without considering such matters. While there is therefore no possibility of a one-firm economy or even a one-firm vertically integrated product, there is much danger in an attempt at socialism by the state. A further discussion of the state and state intervention will be found in Chapter 12 of this book. A curious legend has become quite popular among the writers on the socialist side of the debate over economic calculation. This runs as follows. Mises, in his original article, asserted theoretically that there could be no economic calculation under socialism. Barone proved mathematically that this is false and that calculation is possible. Hayek and Robbins conceded the validity of this proof, but then asserted that calculation would not be practical. The inference is that the argument of Mises has been disposed of, and that all socialism needs is a few practical devices, perhaps calculating machines or economic advisors, to permit calculation and the counting of the equations. This legend is almost completely wrong from start to finish. In the first place, the dichotomy between theoretical and practical is a false one. In economics, all arguments are theoretical, and since economics discusses the real world, these theoretical arguments are, by their nature, practical ones as well.
The false dichotomy disposed of, the true nature of the Barone proof, becomes apparent. It is not so much theoretical as irrelevant. The proof by listing of mathematical equations is no proof at all. It applies at best only to the evenly rotating economy. Obviously, our whole discussion of the calculation problem applies to the real world and to it only. There can be no calculation problem in the ERE because no calculation there is necessary. Obviously, there is no need to calculate profits and losses when all future data are known from the beginning and where there are no profits and losses. In the ERE, the best allocation of resources proceeds automatically. For Barone to demonstrate that the calculation difficulty does not exist in the ERE is not a solution. It is simply a mathematical belaboring of the obvious. Far from being refuted, Mises had already disposed of this argument in his original article. Further, Barone's article was written in 1908, twelve years before Mises. A careful perusal of Mises' original article, in fact, reveals that he there disposed of almost all the alleged solutions which decades later were brought forth as new attempts to refute his argument. The difficulty of calculation applies to the real world only. Part of the confusion stems from an unfortunate position taken by two followers of Mises in this debate, Hayek and Robbins. They argued that a socialist government could not calculate because it simply could not compute the millions of equations that would be necessary. This left them open to the obvious retort that now, with high-speed computers available to the government, this practical objection is no longer relevant. In reality, the job of rational calculation has nothing to do with computing equations. Nobody has to worry about equations in real life except mathematical economists. 4. The Economics of Location and Spatial Relations One very popular subdivision of economics has been international trade. In a purely free market, such as we are analyzing in the bulk of this work, there can be no such thing as an international trade problem, for nations might then possibly continue as cultural expressions, but not as economically meaningful units, since there would be neither trade nor other barriers between nations nor currency differences, international trade would become a mere appendage to a general study of interspatial trade. It would not matter whether the trade was within or outside a nation. The laws of the free market that we have been enunciating apply, therefore, to the whole extent of the market that is, to the world, or the civilized world. In the case of a completely isolated country, the laws would apply throughout that area. Thus, the pure interest rate will tend to be uniform throughout the world. Prices for the same good will tend to be uniform throughout, and therefore, so will wages for the same type of labor. 
Wage rates will tend toward uniformity for the same labor in different geographical areas in precisely the same way as from industry to industry or firm to firm. Any temporary differential will induce laborers to move from the low to the high-wage area and businesses to move from the latter to the former until equilibrium is reached. Once again, just as in the more general case considered before, workers may have particular positive or negative attachments toward working in a certain area, just as we saw they may have toward working in a certain industry. There may be a general psychic benefit from living and working in a certain place, and a psychic disutility involved in working at some other location. Since it is psychic, not money, wage rates that are being equalized, money wage rates will be equalized throughout the world, plus or minus negative or positive psychic attachment components. That the prices of each good will be uniform throughout the world rests on a precise definition of the term good. Suppose, for example, that wheat is grown in Kansas and that the bulk of the consumers of the wheat are in New York. The wheat in Kansas, even when ready for shipment, is not the same good as the wheat in New York. It may be the same physical-chemical bundle, but it is not the same good vis-à-vis -vis its objective use value to the consumers. In short, Wheat in Kansas is a higher-stage capital good than wheat in New York, when the consumer is in New York rather than in Kansas. Transporting the wheat to New York is a stage in the process of production. The price of wheat in Kansas will then tend to equal the price of wheat in New York, minus the necessary costs of transport from Kansas to New York. What determines how people and businesses will be distributed over the face of the earth? Obviously, the major factor is the marginal productivity of labor. This will differ from location to location in accordance with the distribution of natural resources and the distribution of capital equipment inherited from ancestors. Another factor influencing location will be positive or negative attachments to certain areas, as we have seen. The actual dispersal over the face of the earth is caused chiefly by the distribution of productive land and natural resources over the earth's surface. This has been one of the chief forces limiting the concentration of industry, the size of each firm, and population in purely industrial areas. As Mises writes in Human Action, the fact that the production of raw materials and foodstuffs cannot be centralized and forces people to disperse over the various parts of the Earth's surface enjoins also upon the processing industries a certain degree of decentralization. It makes it necessary to consider the problems of transportation as a particular factor of production costs. The costs of transportation must be weighed against the economies to be expected from more thoroughgoing specialization. 
In considering the location of industry, entrepreneurs must account for costs of transportation from raw material sites to the centers of consumer population. Certain areas of the world will tend to have higher costs of transportation than other parts. Wheat is further away in New York than in Kansas, and the theater further away in Kansas. Some areas may enjoy lower transport costs for the bulk of consumers' goods, while others may have higher transport costs. Thus, Alaska will probably have higher transport costs for its consumers' goods than less remote areas such as San Francisco. Therefore, to obtain the same products, Alaskan consumers must be willing to pay higher prices in Alaska than in San Francisco, even though purchasing power and prices are uniform throughout the world. As a result, the cost component for anyone working in Alaska will be a certain positive amount. Because of the transport problem, the same money wage in Alaska will buy fewer goods than in San Francisco. This increased cost of living establishes a positive cost component in the wage, so that for similar labor, a worker would require a higher money wage to work in Alaska than elsewhere. If the costs attached to a geographical area are particularly high or low, a positive or a negative cost component will be attached to the wage rate in that area. Instead of saying that money wage rates for the same type of labor will be equalized throughout the world, we must say rather that there will be a tendency for equalization of money wage rates plus or minus the attachment component and plus or minus the cost component for every geographic area. The purchasing power of the monetary unit will also be equalized throughout the world. This case will be treated in Chapter 11 on money. The tendency of an advancing market economy, of course, is to lower transportation costs, that is, to increase labor productivity in the transport field. Other things being equal, then, the cost components tend to become relatively less important as the economy progresses. We have seen that a good must be considered as homogeneous in use value and not in physical substance. Wheat in Kansas was a different good from wheat in New York. Some economists have taken the law that all goods tend to be uniform in price throughout the world economy to mean that all physically homogeneous things will be equal in price. But a difference in position with respect to consumers makes a physically identical thing a different good. Suppose, for example, that two firms are producing a certain product, say, cement, and that one is located in Rochester and one in Detroit. Let us say that the bulk of the consumers of cement are in New York City. Let us call the cement produced in Rochester CR and the cement produced in Detroit CD. Now, in equilibrium, the price of CR in New York City will equal the price of CR in Rochester, plus the freight cost from Rochester to New York, 
Also, in equilibrium, the price of CD in New York City will equal the price of CD in Detroit plus the freight cost from Detroit to New York. Which cement prices will be equal to each other in equilibrium? Many writers maintain that the price of CR in Rochester will be equal to the price of CD in Detroit. That is, that the mill prices, or the FOB prices of cement, will be equal in each of the two localities in equilibrium. But it is clear that these writers have adopted the confusion of treating good in the technological rather than in the use-value sense. This error lies at the root of attacks on the basing point system of pricing in some industries. The critics assume that uniform pricing of a good means uniform pricing at the various mills, whereas it really implies uniform delivered prices of the various firms at any given consumer center. We must, in short, take the point of view of the consumer, the man who uses the good, and he is in New York City. From his point of view, cement in Detroit is a far different good from cement in Rochester, since Rochester is closer to him and freight costs are greater from Detroit. From his point of view, the homogeneous goods are CR in New York City and CD in New York City. Wherever it comes from, cement at the place where he must use it is the homogeneous good for the consumer. Therefore, in equilibrium, it is CR in New York City that will be equal to CD in New York City, and these are the delivered prices of cement to the consumer. For purposes of simplification, we have omitted the consumers in Rochester, Detroit, and elsewhere, but the same law applies to them, for consumers in Rochester and Detroit in equilibrium, PCR in Rochester equals PCD in Rochester, and PCR in Detroit equals PCD in Detroit, etc. Substituting this equality in the equations, we see that it implies that the price of CR in Rochester plus freight cost from Rochester to New York will equal the price of CD in Detroit plus freight cost from Detroit to New York. The freight costs at any time are readily calculable, and ceteris paribus, they will be greater for longer distances. In other words, in equilibrium on the free market, the price of CR in Rochester is equal to the price of CD in Detroit, plus the differential in freight costs for the longer as compared to the shorter distance to the consumer. Generalizing, the mill price of cement at a shorter distance from the consumer will equal the mill price of cement at the longer distance plus the freight differential. This is applicable not only to cement, but to every product in the economic system, and not only to products serving ultimate consumers, but also to those to be consumed by lower-order capitalists.
In proportion as firms are more distantly located from the consumer, they will then not be able to remain in business unless their average costs at the mill are sufficiently lower than those of their competitors to compensate for the increased freight costs. This is not, as might be thought, a penalty on the technological superiority of the distant firm, for the latter is inferior with respect to the important economic factor of location. It is precisely this mechanism that helps to determine the location of firms and assures that firms will be economically located in relation to the consumer. The influence of the location difference factor in the price of a product will, of course, depend upon the proportion that freight costs bear to the other costs of producing the good. The higher the proportion, the greater the influence. A firm with a location closer to the consumer market therefore has a spatial advantage conferred by its location. Given the same costs in other fields as its competitors, it earns a profit from its superior location. The gains of location will be imputed to the site value of the ground land of the plant. The owner of the site obtains its marginal value product. Therefore, gains to a firm resulting from improvement in locational advantage, as well as losses resulting from a locational disadvantage, will accrue as changes in ground rent and capital value to the owner of the specific site, whether the owner be the firm itself or someone else. 5. A Note on the Fallacy of Distribution Ever since the days of early classical economics, many writers have discussed distribution theory, as if it were completely separate and isolated from production theory. Yet we have seen that distribution theory is simply production theory. The receivers of income earn wages, rent, interest, and increases in capital values, and these earnings are the prices of productive factors. The theory of the market determines the prices and incomes accruing to productive factors, thereby also determining the functional distribution of the factors. Personal distribution, how much money each person receives from the productive system, is determined in turn by the functions that he or his property performs in that system. There is no separation between production and distribution, and it is completely erroneous for writers to treat the productive system as if producers dump their product onto some stockpile to be later distributed in some way to the people in the society. Distribution is only the other side of the coin of production on the market. Many people criticize the free market as follows. Yes, we agree that production and prices will be allocated on the free market in a way best fitted to serve the needs of the consumers. But this law is necessarily based on a given initial distribution of income among the consumers. Some consumers begin with only a little money, others with a great deal. The market system of production can be commended only if the original distribution of income meets with our approval. 
This initial distribution of income, or rather of money assets, did not originate in thin air, however. It, too, was the necessary consequence of a market allocation of prices and production. It was the consequence of serving the needs of previous consumers. It was not an arbitrarily given distribution, but one that itself emerged from satisfying consumer needs. It, too, was inextricably bound up with production. As we saw in Chapter 2, a person's presently owned property could have been ultimately obtained in only one of the following ways. Through personal production, voluntary exchange for a personal product, the finding and first using of unappropriated land, or theft from a producer. On a free market, only the first three can obtain— so that any distribution served by producers was in itself the result of free production and exchange. Suppose, however, that at some preceding time the bulk of the wealthy consumers had acquired their property through theft and not through serving other consumers on the free market. Does this not instill a built-in bias into the market economy, since future producers must satisfy demands ensuing from unjust incomes? The answer is that after the initial period, the effect of unjust incomes becomes less and less important. For in order to keep and increase their ill-gotten gains, the former robbers, now that a free economy is established, have to invest and recoup their funds so as to serve consumers correctly. If they are not fit for this task, and their exploits in predation have certainly not trained them for it, then entrepreneurial losses will diminish their assets and shift them to more able producers. 6. A Summary of the Market The explanation of the free economic system constitutes a great architectural edifice. Starting from human action and its implications, proceeding to individual value scales and a money economy, we have demonstrated that the quantity of goods produced, the prices of consumers' goods, the prices of productive factors, the interest rate, profits and losses, all can be explained by the same deductive apparatus. Given a stock of land and labor factors, given existing capital goods inherited from the past, given individual time preferences, and, more broadly, technological knowledge, the capital goods structure and total production is determined. Individual preferences set prices for the various consumers' goods, and the alternative combinations of various factors in their production set the marginal value productivity schedules of these factors. Ultimately, the marginal value product accruing to capital goods is resolved into returns to land, labor, and interest for time. The point at which a land or labor factor will settle on its DMVP schedule will be determined by the stock available. 
since each factor will operate in an area of diminishing physical and certainly diminishing value returns, any increased stock of the factor, other things being equal, will enter at a lower DMVP point. The intersecting points on the DMVP schedules will yield the prices of the factors, also known as rents and wage rates in the case of labor factors. The pure interest rate will be determined by the time preference schedules of all individuals in the economy. Its chief expression will be not in the loan market, but in the discounts between prices in the various stages of production. Interest on the loan market will be a reflection of this natural interest rate. All the prices of each good, as well as the interest rate, will be uniform throughout the entire market. The capital value of every durable good will equal the discounted value of the sum of future rents to be obtained from the good, the discount being the rate of interest. All this is a picture of the evenly rotating economy the equilibrium situation toward which the real economy is always tending. If consumer valuations and the supply of resources remained constant, the relevant ERE would be reached. The forces driving toward the ERE are the profit-seeking entrepreneurs who take the lead in meeting the uncertainties of the real world. By seeking out discrepancies between existing conditions and the equilibrium situation and remedying them, entrepreneurs make profits. Those businessmen who unwittingly add to the maladjustments on the market are penalized with losses. Thus, to the extent that producers wish to make money, they drive toward ever more efficient servicing of the desires of the consumers allocating resources to the most value-productive areas and away from the least value-productive. The monetary value-productivity of a course of action depends on the extent to which it serves consumer needs. But consumer valuations and supplies of resources are always changing, so that the ERE goal always changes as well and is never reached. We have analyzed the implications of changing elements in the economy. An increase in the labor supply may lower the DMVP of labor and hence wage rates or raise them because of the further advantages of the division of labor and a more extended market. Which will occur depends on the optimum population level. Since labor is relatively more scarce than land and relatively nonspecific, there will always be idle and zero-rent land, while there will never be involuntarily idle or zero-wage labor. An increase or decrease in the supply of submarginal land will have no effect on production. An increase in supramarginal land will increase production and render hitherto marginal land submarginal. Lower time preferences will increase capital investment and thereby lengthen the structure of production. 
Such lengthening of the production structure, increasing the supply of capital goods, is the only way for man to advance from his bare hands and empty acres of land to more and more civilized standards of living. These capital goods are the necessary way stations on the road to higher total production, but they must be maintained and replaced as well as initially produced if people wish to keep their higher standard over any length of time. To expand production, the important consideration is not so much technological improvement as greater capital investment. At no time has invested capital exhausted the best technological opportunities available. Many firms still use old, unimproved processes and techniques simply because they do not have the capital to invest in new ones. They would know how to improve their plant if capital were available. Thus, while the state of technology is ultimately a very important consideration, at no given time does it play a direct role, since the narrower limit on production is always the supply of capital. In a progressing economy, given a constant supply of money, increased investment and a longer capital structure bring about lower money prices for factors, and still lower prices for consumers' goods. Real factor prices, corrected for changes in the purchasing power of the monetary unit, increase. In net terms, this means that real land rents and real wage rates will increase in the progressing economy. Interest rates will fall as time preference rates drop and the proportion of gross investment to consumption increases. If rents are earned by a durable factor, they can be and are capitalized on the market. That is, they have a capital value equivalent to the discounted sum of their expected future rents. Since land is a form of investment on the market, just as are shares of a firm, its future rents will be capitalized so that land will tend to earn the same uniform interest rate as any other investment. In a progressing economy, the real capital value of land will increase, although the value will fall in money terms. To the extent that future changes in the value of land can be foreseen, they will be immediately incorporated into its present capital value. Therefore, future owners of land will benefit by future increases in its real capital value only to the extent that previous owners failed to anticipate the increase. To the extent that it was anticipated, the future owners will have paid it in their purchase price. The course of change in a retrogressing economy will be the opposite. In a stationary economy, total production, the capital structure, real wages per capita, real capital values of land, and the rate of interest will remain the same while the allocation of factors of production and the relative prices of various products will vary. Chapter 10. Monopoly and Competition 1. The Concept of Consumer's Sovereignty A. Consumer's Sovereignty versus Individual Sovereignty 
We have seen that in the free market economy, people will tend to produce those goods most demanded by the consumers. This applies not only to specific types of goods, but also to the allocation between present and future goods, in accordance with the time preferences of the consumers. Some economists have termed this system consumers' sovereignty. Yet there is no compulsion about this. The choice is purely an independent one by the producer. His dependence on the consumer is purely voluntary, the result of his own choice for the maximization of utility, and it is a choice that he is free to revoke at any time. We have stressed many times that the pursuit of monetary return, the consequence of consumer demand, is engaged in by each individual only to the extent that other things are equal. These other things are the individual producer's psychic valuations, and they may counteract monetary influences. An example is a laborer or other factor owner engaged in a certain line of work at less monetary return than elsewhere. He does this because of his enjoyment of the particular line of work and product, and or his distaste for other alternatives. Rather than consumers' sovereignty, it would be more accurate to state that in the free market there is sovereignty of the individual. The individual is sovereign over his own person and actions, and over his own property. Of course, we may formally salvage the concept of consumers' sovereignty by asserting that all these psychic elements and evaluations constitute consumption. And that the concept therefore still has validity. However, it would seem to be more appropriate in the catalactic context of the market, which is the area here under discussion, to reserve consumption to mean the enjoyment of exchangeable goods. Naturally, in the final sense, everyone is an ultimate consumer, both of exchangeable and of non-exchangeable goods. However, the market deals only in exchangeable goods by definition, and when we separate the consumer and the producer in terms of the market, we distinguish the demanding as compared to the supplying of exchangeable goods. It is more appropriate then not to consider a non-exchangeable good as an object of consumption in this particular context. This is important in order to discuss the contention that individual producers are somehow subject to the sovereign rule of other individuals, the consumers. This may be termed individual self-sovereignty. To earn a monetary return, the individual producer must satisfy consumer demand. But the extent to which he obeys this expected monetary return, and the extent to which he pursues other non-monetary factors, is entirely a matter of his own free choice. The term "consumer's sovereignty" is a typical example of the abuse in economics of a term "sovereignty" appropriate only to the political realm. And is thus an illustration of the dangers of the application of metaphors taken from other disciplines.
Sovereignty is the quality of ultimate political power. It is the power resting on the use of violence. In a purely free society, each individual is sovereign over his own person and property, and it is therefore this self-sovereignty which obtains on the free market. No one is sovereign over anyone else's actions or exchanges. Since the consumers do not have the power to coerce producers into various occupations and work, the former are not sovereign over the latter. B. Professor Hutt and Consumers' Sovereignty The metaphorical shibboleth of consumers' sovereignty has misled even the best economists. Many writers have used it as an ideal with which to contrast the allegedly imperfect free market system. An example is Professor W. H. Hutt of the University of Cape Town, who has made the most careful defense of the concept of consumers' sovereignty. Since he is the originator of this concept, and his use of the term is widespread in the literature, his article is worth particular attention. It will be used as the basis for a critique of the concept of consumers' sovereignty and its implications for the problems of competition and monopoly. In the first part of the article, Hutt defends his concept of consumers' sovereignty against the criticism that he has neglected the desires of producers. He does this by asserting that if a producer desires a means as an end in itself, then he is consuming. In this formal sense, as we have seen, consumers' sovereignty, by definition, always obtains. Formally, there is nothing wrong with such a definition, for we have stressed throughout this book that an individual evaluates ends, consumption, on his value scale, and that his valuation of means for production is dependent upon the former. In this sense, then, consumption always rules production. But this formal sense is not very useful for analyzing the situation on the market, and it is precisely the latter sense that Hutt and others employ. Thus, suppose producer A withholds his labor or land or capital service from the market. For whatever reason, he is exercising his sovereignty over his person and property. On the other hand, if he supplies them to the market, he is, to the extent that he aims at monetary return, submitting himself to the demands of the consumers. In the aforementioned general sense, consumption rules in any case. But the critical question is, which consumer? The market consumer of exchangeable goods who buys these goods with money? or the market producer of exchangeable goods who sells these goods for money? To answer this question, it is necessary to distinguish between the producer of exchangeable goods and the consumer of exchangeable goods, since the market, by definition, can deal only in such goods. 
In short, we can designate people as producers and as consumers, even though every man must act as a consumer, and every man must also act in another context as a producer, or as the receiver of a gift from a producer. Making this distinction, we find that, contrary to Hutt, each individual has self-sovereignty over his person and property on the free market. The producer and the producer alone decides whether or not he will keep his property, including his own person, idle, or sell it on the market for money the results of his production then going to the consumers in exchange for their money. This decision concerning how much to allocate to the market and how much to withhold is the decision of the individual producer and of him alone. Hutt implicitly recognizes this, however, since he soon shifts his argument and begins inconsistently to hold up consumers' sovereignty as an ethical ideal against which the activities of the free market are to be judged. Consumers' sovereignty becomes almost an absolute good, and any action by producers to thwart this ideal is considered as little less than moral treason. Wavering between consumers' sovereignty as a necessary fact and the contradictory concept of consumers' sovereignty as an ideal that can be violated, Hutt attempts to establish various criteria to determine when this sovereignty is being violated. For example, he asserts that when a producer withholds his person or property out of a desire to use it for enjoyment as a consumer's good, then this is a legitimate act, in keeping with rule by the consumer. On the other hand, when the producer acts to withhold his property in order to attain more monetary income than otherwise— presumably, although Hutt does not state this, by taking advantage of an inelastic demand for his product, then he is engaging in a vicious infringement on the consumer's will. He may do so by acting to restrict production of his own personal product, or if he makes the same product as other producers, by acting in concert with them to restrict production in order to raise the price. This is the doctrine of monopoly price, and it is this monopoly price that is allegedly the instrument by which producers pervert their rightful function. Hutt recognizes the enormous difficulty of distinguishing among the producer's motives in any concrete case. The individual who withholds his own labor may be doing so in order to obtain leisure, and even the owner of land or capital may be withholding it in order to derive, say, an aesthetic enjoyment from the contemplation of his unused property. Suppose, indeed, that there is a mixture of motives in both cases. Hutt is definitely inclined to solve these difficulties by not giving the producer the benefit of the doubt, particularly in the case of property. But the difficulty is far greater than Hutt imagines. 
Every individual producer is always engaged in an attempt to maximize his psychic income to arrive at the highest place on his value scale. To do so, he balances on this scale monetary income and various non-monetary factors in accordance with his particular valuations. Let us take the producer first as a seller of labor. In judging how much of his labor to sell and at what price, the producer will take into consideration the monetary income to be gained the psychic return from the type of work and the working conditions, and the leisure foregone, balancing them in accordance with the operation of his various marginal utilities. Certainly, if he can earn a higher income by working less, he will do so, since he also gains leisure thereby. And the question arises, why is this immoral? Moreover, one, it is impossible, not simply impracticable, to separate the leisure from monetary considerations here, since both elements are involved, and only the person himself will know the intricate balancing of his own valuations. Two, more important, this act does not contravene the truth that the producer can earn money only by serving the consumers. Why has he been able to extract a monopoly price through restricting his production? Only because the demand for his services, either directly by consumers or indirectly from them through lower-order producers, is inelastic, so that a decreased production of the good and a higher price will lead to increased expenditure on his product, and therefore increased income for him. Yet this inelastic demand schedule is purely the result of the voluntary demands of the consumers. If the consumers were really angry at this monopolistic action, they could easily make their demand elastic by boycotting the producer and or by increasing their demands at the competitive production level. The fact that they do not do so signifies their satisfaction with the existing state of affairs and demonstrates that they, as well as the producer, benefit from the resulting voluntary exchanges. What about the producer in his capacity as a seller of property, the main target of the anti-monopoly price school? The principle, first of all, is virtually the same. Individual producers may restrict the production and sale of their land or capital goods, either individually or in concert, by means of a cartel, in order to increase their expected monetary incomes from the sale. Once again, there is nothing distinctively immoral about such action. The producers, other things being equal, are attempting to maximize the monetary income from their factors of production. This is no more immoral than any other attempt to maximize monetary income. Furthermore, they can do so only by serving the consumers, since, once again, the sale is voluntary on the part of both producers and consumers. 
Again, such a monopoly price to be established either by one individual or by individuals cooperating together in a cartel is possible only if the demand, directly or indirectly, of the consumers is inelastic, and this inelasticity is the resultant of the purely voluntary choices of consumers in their maximization of satisfaction. For this inelasticity is simply a label for a situation in which consumers spend more money on a good at a higher than at a lower price. If the consumers were really opposed to the cartel action, and if the resulting exchanges really hurt them, they would boycott the monopolistic firm or firms. They would lower their purchasing so that the demand became elastic, and the firm would be forced to increase its production and reduce its price again. If the monopolistic price action had been taken by a cartel of firms, and the cartel had no other advantages for rendering production more efficient, it would then have to disband because of the now demonstrated elasticity of the demand schedule. But, it may be asked, is it not true that the consumers would prefer a lower price, and that therefore achievement of a monopoly price constitutes a frustration of consumers' sovereignty? The answer is, of course, consumers would prefer lower prices. They always would. In fact, the lower the price, the more they would like it. Does this mean that the ideal price is zero? or close to zero for all goods, because this would represent the greatest degree of producers' sacrifice to consumers' wishes? In their role as consumers, men would always like lower prices for their purchases. In their capacity as producers, men always like higher prices for their wares. If nature had originally provided a material utopia, then all exchangeable goods would be free for the taking, and there would be no need for any labor to earn a money return. This utopia would also be preferred. But it too is a purely imaginary condition. Man must necessarily work within a given real environment of inherited land and durable capital. In this world, there are two and only two ways to settle what the prices of goods will be. One is the way of the free market, where prices are set voluntarily by each of the participating individuals. In this situation, exchanges are made on terms benefiting all the exchangers. The other way is by violent intervention in the market, the way of hegemony as against contract. Such hegemonic establishment of prices means the outlawing of free exchanges and the institution of exploitation of man by man. For exploitation occurs whenever a coerced exchange is made. If the free market route, the route of mutual benefit, is adopted, then there can be no other criterion of justice than the free market price and this includes alleged competitive and monopoly prices, as well as the actions of cartels. In the free market, consumers and producers adjust their actions in voluntary cooperation. 
In the case of barter, this conclusion is evident. The various producer-consumers either determine their mutual exchange rates voluntarily in the free market, or else the ratios are set by violence. There seems to be no reason why it should be more or less moral on any grounds for the horse price of fish to be higher or lower than it is on the free market, or, in other words, why the fish price of horses should be lower or higher. Yet it is no more evident why any money price should be lower or higher than it is on the market. To be consistent, currently fashionable theory would have to accuse Crusoe and Friday of being vicious bilateral monopolists, busily charging each other monopoly prices and therefore ripe for state intervention. 2. Cartels and Their Consequences A. Cartels and Monopoly Price but is not monopolizing action a restriction of production, and is not this restriction a demonstrably antisocial act? Let us first take what would seem to be the worst possible case of such action, the actual destruction of part of a product by a cartel. This is done to take advantage of an inelastic demand and to raise the price to gain a greater monetary income for the whole group. We can visualize, for example, the case of a coffee cartel burning great quantities of coffee. In the first place, such actions will surely occur very seldom. Actual destruction of its product is clearly a highly wasteful act, even for the cartel. It is obvious that the factors of production which the growers had expended in producing the coffee have been spent in vain. Clearly, the production of the total quantity of coffee itself has proved to be an error, and the burning of coffee is only the aftermath and reflection of the error. Yet, because of the uncertainty of the future, errors are often made. Man could labor and invest for years in the production of a good which, it may turn out, consumers hardly want at all. If, for example, consumers' tastes had changed so that coffee would not be demanded by anyone regardless of price, it would again have to be destroyed, with or without a cartel. Error is certainly unfortunate, but it cannot be considered immoral or antisocial. Nobody aims deliberately at error. If coffee were a durable good, it is obvious that the cartel would not destroy it, but would store it for gradual future sale to consumers, thus earning income on the surplus coffee. In an evenly rotating economy, where errors are barred by definition, there would be no destruction, since optimum stocks for the attainment of money income would be produced in advance. Less coffee would be produced from the beginning. The waste lies in the excessive production of coffee at the expense of other goods that could have been produced. The waste does not lie in the actual burning of the coffee. After the production of coffee is lowered, the other factors which would have gone into coffee production will not be wasted. The other land, labor, etc. will go into other and more profitable uses. 
It is true that excess-specific factors will remain idle, but this is always the fate of specific factors when the realities of consumer demand do not sustain their use in production. For example, if there is a sudden dwindling of consumer demand for a good so that it becomes unremunerative for labor to work with certain specialized machines, this idle capacity is not a social waste but is rather socially useful. It is proved an error to have produced the machines, and now that the machines are produced, working on them turns out to be less profitable than working with other lands and machines to produce some other result. Therefore, the economical step is to leave them idle, or perhaps to transform their material stuff into other uses. Of course, in an errorless economy, no excessive specific capital goods will be produced. Suppose, for example, that before the coffee cartel went into operation, X amount of labor and Y amount of land cooperated to produce 100 million pounds of coffee a year. The coffee cartel determined, however, that the most remunerative production was 60 million pounds, and therefore reduced annual output to this level. It would have been absurd, of course, to continue wasteful production of 100 million pounds and then to burn 40 millions. But what of the now surplus labor and land? These shift to the production, say, of 10 million pounds of rubber, 50,000 hours of service as jungle guides, etc. Who is to say that the second structure of production, the second allocation of factors, is less just than the first? In fact, we may say it is more just, since the new allocation of factors will be more profitable, and hence more value-productive to consumers. In the value sense, then, Overall production has now expanded, not contracted. It is clear we cannot say that production overall has been restricted, since output of goods other than coffee has increased, and the only comparison between the decline of one good and the increase in another must be made in these broad valuational terms. Indeed, the shifting of factors to rubber and jungle guidance no more restricts coffee production than a previous shift of factors to coffee restricted the production of the former goods. The whole concept of restricting production, then, is a fallacy when applied to the free market. In the real world of scarce resources in relation to possible ends, all production involves choice and the allocation of factors to serve the most highly valued ends. In short, the production of any product is necessarily always restricted. Such restriction follows simply from the universal scarcity of factors and the diminishing marginal utility of any one product. But then it is absurd to speak of restriction at all. In the words of Professor Mises, that the production of a commodity P is not larger than it really is, is due to the fact that the complementary factors of production required for an expansion were employed for the production of other commodities. 
Neither did the producers of pea intentionally restrict the production of pea. Every entrepreneur's capital is limited. He employs it for those projects which he expects will, by filling the most urgent demand of the public, yield the highest profit. An entrepreneur at whose disposal are 100 units of capital employs, for instance, 50 units for the production of P and 50 units for the production of Q. If both lines are profitable, it is odd to blame him for not having employed more, for example, 75 units, for the production of P. He could increase the production of P only by curtailing correspondingly the production of Q. But with regard to Q, the same fault could be found by the grumblers. If one blames the entrepreneur for not having produced more P, one must blame him also for not having produced more Q. This means one blames the entrepreneur for the fact that there is a scarcity of the factors of production and that the earth is not a land of cocaine. We cannot, then, say that the cartel has restricted production. After the final allocation has eliminated the producer's error, the cartel's action will effect a maximization of producers' incomes in the service of the consumers, as do all other free market allocations. This is the result that people on the market tend to attain in consonance with their skill as forecasting entrepreneurs, and this is the only situation in which man as consumer harmonizes with man as producer. It follows from our analysis that the producer's original production of 100 million pounds was an unfortunate error, later corrected by them. Instead of being a vicious restriction of production to the detriment of the consumers, the cutback in coffee production was, on the contrary, a correction of the previous error. Since only the free market can allocate resources to serve the consumer in accordance with monetary profitability, it follows that in the previous situation, too much coffee and too little rubber, jungle guide service, etc., were being produced. The cartel's action in reducing the production of coffee and causing an increase in the production of rubber, jungle guiding, etc., led to an increase in the power of the productive resources to satisfy consumer desires. If there are anti-cartelists who disagree with this verdict and believe that the previous structure of production served the consumers better, they are always at perfect liberty to bid the land, labor, and capital factors away from the jungle guide agencies and rubber producers and themselves embark on the production of the allegedly deficient 40 million pounds of coffee. Since they are not doing so, they are hardly in a position to attack the existing coffee producers for not doing so. As Mises succinctly stated, certainly those engaged in the production of steel are not responsible for the fact that other people did not likewise enter this field of production, 
If somebody is to blame for the fact that the number of people who joined the voluntary civil defense organization is not larger, then it is not those who have already joined, but those who have not. The position of the anti-cartelists implies that someone else is producing too much of some other product, yet they offer no standards except their own arbitrary decrees to determine which production is excessive. Criticism of steel owners for not producing enough steel, or of coffee growers for not producing enough coffee, also implies the existence of a caste system, whereby a certain caste is permanently designated to produce steel, another caste to grow coffee, etc., only in such a caste society would such criticism make sense. Yet the free market is the reverse of the caste system. Indeed, choice between alternatives implies mobility between alternatives, and this mobility obviously holds for entrepreneurs or lenders with money to invest in production. Furthermore, as we have stated, an inelastic demand is purely the result of consumers' choice. Thus, suppose that 100 million pounds of coffee have been produced and lie in stock, and a group of growers jointly decide that a burning of 40 million pounds of coffee will, say, double the price from one gold grain per pound to two gold grains per pound thus giving them a higher total income acting jointly. This would be impossible if the growers knew that they would be confronted with an effective consumer boycott at the higher price. Further, consumers have another way, if they so desire, to prevent destruction of the good. Various consumers, acting either individually or jointly, could offer to purchase the existing coffee at higher than present prices. They could do this either because of their desire for coffee or because of their philanthropic dismay at the destruction of a useful good, or from a combination of both motives. At any rate, if they did so, they would prevent the producer's cartel from decreasing the supply sold on the market. The boycott at a higher price and or increased offers at the lower price would change the demand and render it elastic at the present stock level, thereby removing any incentive or need for the formation of a cartel. To regard a cartel as immoral or as hampering some sort of consumer's sovereignty is therefore completely unwarranted. And this is true even in the seemingly worst case of a cartel that we may assume is founded solely for restrictive purposes and where, as a result of previous error and the perishability of product, actual destruction will occur. If consumers really wish to prevent this action, they need only change their demand schedules for the product, either by an actual change in their taste for coffee or by a combination of boycott and philanthropy. The fact that such a development does not take place in any given circumstance signifies that the producers are still maximizing their monetary income in the service of the consumers. 
by a cartel action as well as by any other action. Some listeners might object that in offering higher demands for existing stock, the consumers would be bribing the producers, and that this constitutes an unwarranted extortion on the part of the producers. But this charge is untenable. Producers are guided by the goal of maximizing monetary income. They are not extorting, but simply producing where their gains are at a maximum, through exchanges concluded voluntarily by producers and consumers alike. This is no more nor less a case of extortion than when a laborer shifts from a lower-paying to a higher-paying job, or when an entrepreneur invests in what he thinks will be a more rather than a less profitable project. It must be recognized that once an error has been committed, as it had been in the aforementioned situation, the rational course is not to bewail the past, nor to attempt to recover historical costs, but to make the best, ceteris paribus, the most money, of the present situation. We recognize this when previously produced machines or other capital goods face a loss of demand for their product. In the production process, as we have seen, labor energies work on natural and produced factors to arrive at the most urgently demanded consumers' goods. Since error is inevitable, this process is bound to lead to a considerable amount of idle capital goods at any given time. Similarly, much original land area will remain idle because existing labor has more profitable work to do on other lands. In short, the idle coffee is the result of an error in forecasting, and should be no more shocking or reprehensible than idle capacity in any other type of capital good. Our argument is just as applicable to a single firm producing a unique product with an inelastic demand as it is to a cartel of firms. A single firm with inelastic demand for its product could also destroy part of its stock after committing a forecasting error. Our critique of the anti-monopoly price and consumer's sovereignty doctrines applies equally well to such a case. B. Cartels, Mergers, and Corporations a common argument holds that cartel action involves collusion, for one firm may achieve a monopoly price as a result of its natural abilities or consumer enthusiasm for its particular product, whereas a cartel of many firms allegedly involves collusion and conspiracy. These expressions, however, are simply emotive terms designed to induce an unfavorable response. What is actually involved here is cooperation to increase the incomes of the producers. For what is the essence of a cartel action? Individual producers agree to pool their assets into a common lot. This single central organization to make the decisions on production and price policies for all the owners, and then to allocate the monetary gain among them. But is this process not the same as any sort of joint partnership or the formation of a single corporation? 
What happens when a partnership or corporation is formed? Individuals agree to pool their assets into a central management. This central direction to set the policies for the owners and to allocate the monetary gains among them. In both cases, the pooling, lines of authority, and allocation of monetary gain take place according to rules agreed upon by all from the beginning. There is therefore no essential difference between a cartel and an ordinary corporation or partnership. It might be objected that the ordinary corporation or partnership covers only one firm, while the cartel includes an entire industry, that is, all firms producing a certain product, but such a distinction does not necessarily hold. Various firms may refuse to enter a cartel, while, on the other hand, a single firm may well be a monopolist in the sale of its particular unique product, and therefore it may also encompass an entire industry. The correspondence between a cooperative partnership or corporation, not generally considered reprehensible, and a cartel, is further enhanced when we consider the case of a merger of various firms. Mergers have been denounced as monopolistic, but not nearly as vehemently as have cartels, Merging firms pool their capital assets, and the owners of the individual firms now become part-owners of the single merged firm. They will agree on rules for the exchange ratios of the shares of the different companies. If the merging firms encompass the entire industry, then a merger is simply a permanent form of cartel. Yet clearly the only difference between a merger and the original forming of a single corporation is that the merger pools existing capital goods assets, while the original birth of a corporation pools money assets. It is clear that economically there is little difference between the two. A merger is the action of individuals with a certain quantity of already produced capital goods, adjusting themselves to their present and expected future conditions by cooperative pooling of assets. The formation of a new company is an adjustment to expected future conditions before any specific investment has been made in capital goods by cooperative pooling of assets. The essential similarity lies in the voluntary pooling of assets in a more centralized organization for the purpose of increasing monetary income. The theorists who attack cartels and monopolies do not recognize the identity of the two actions. As a result, a merger is considered less reprehensible than a cartel, and a single corporation far less menacing than a merger. Yet an industry-wide merger is, in effect, a permanent cartel, a permanent combination and fusion. On the other hand, a cartel that maintains by voluntary agreement the separate identity of each firm is, by nature, a highly transitory and ephemeral arrangement, and, as we shall see, generally tends to break up on the market. In fact, in many cases, a cartel can be considered as simply a tentative step in the direction of a permanent merger.
and a merger and the original formation of a corporation do not, as we have seen, essentially differ. The former is an adaptation of the size and number of firms in an industry to new conditions, or is the correction of a previous error in forecasting. The latter is a de novo attempt to adapt to present and future market conditions. C. Economics, Technology, and the Size of the Firm We do not know, and economics cannot tell us, the optimum size of a firm in any given industry. The optimum size depends on the concrete technological conditions of each situation, as well as on the state of consumer demand in relation to the given supply of various factors in this and in other industries. All these complex questions enter into the decisions of producers, and ultimately of consumers, concerning how large the firms in various lines of production will be. In line with consumer demand and with opportunity costs for the various factors, factor owners and entrepreneurs will produce in those industries and firms in which they can maximize their monetary income or profit other psychic factors being equal. Since forecasting is the function of entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs will minimize their errors and, hence, their losses as well. As a result, any existing situation on the free market will tend to be the most desirable for the satisfaction of consumers' demands, including herein the non-monetary wishes of the producers. Neither economists nor engineers can decide the most efficient size of a firm in any situation. Only the entrepreneurs themselves can determine what size of firm will operate most efficiently, and it is presumptuous and unwarranted for economists or for any other outside observers to attempt to dictate otherwise. In this and other matters, the wishes and demands of the consumers are telegraphed through the price system, and the resulting drive for maximum monetary income and profits will always tend to bring about the optimum allocation and pricing. There is no need for the external advice of economists. It is clear that when several thousand individuals decide not to produce and own individual steel plants by themselves, but rather to pool their capital into an organized corporation which will purchase factors, invest and direct production, and sell the product, later allocating the monetary gains among the owners, they are enormously increasing their efficiency. Compared to production in hundreds of tiny plants, the quantity of production per given factors will be greatly increased. The large firm will be able to purchase heavily capitalized machinery and to finance better organized marketing and distributing outlets. All this is quite clear when thousands of individuals pool their capital into the establishment of a steel firm, but why may it not be equally true when several small steel firms merge into one large company? 
It might be replied that in the latter merger, particularly in the case of a cartel, joint action is taken not to increase efficiency, but solely to increase income by restricting sales. Yet there is no way that an outside observer can distinguish between a restrictive and an efficiency-increasing operation. In the first place, we must not think of the plant or factory as being the only productive factors the efficiency of which can increase. Marketing, advertising, etc. are also factors of production. For production is not simply the physical transformation of a product, but also consists in transporting it and placing it into the hands of users. The latter implies the expenses of informing the user about the existence and nature of the product, and of selling that product to him. Since a cartel always engages in joint marketing, who can deny that the cartel might render marketing more efficient? How, therefore, can this efficiency be separated from the restrictive aspect of the operation? Much error would have been avoided if economists had heeded the words of Arthur Latham Perry. Every man who puts forth an effort to satisfy the desire of another with the expectation of a return is a producer. The Latin word producere means to expose anything to sale. We must rid ourselves at the outset of the notion that it is only to be applied to forms of matter, that it means to transform something only. The fundamental meaning of the root word, both in Latin and in English, is effort with reference to a sale. A product is a service ready to be rendered. A producer is any person who gets something ready to sell and sells it. Furthermore, technological factors in production can never be considered in a vacuum. Technological knowledge tells us of a whole host of alternatives that are open to us, but the crucial questions, in what to invest, how much, what production method to choose, can be answered only by economic, that is, by financial, considerations. They can be answered only on a market actuated by a drive for money incomes and profits. Thus, how is a producer to decide in digging a subway tunnel what material to use in its construction? From a purely technological point of view, solid platinum may be the best choice, the most durable, etc. Does this mean that he should choose platinum? He can make a choice among factors, methods, goods to produce, etc., only by comparing the necessary monetary expenses, which are equal to the income the factors could earn elsewhere, with expected monetary income from the production. Only by maximizing monetary gain can factors be allocated in the service of consumers. Otherwise, and on purely technological grounds, there would be nothing to prevent the building of platinum-lined subway tunnels the breadth of the continent. 
The only reason this cannot be done under present conditions is the heavy money cost caused by the waste of drawing away factors and resources from uses far more urgently demanded by the consumers. But the fact of this urgent alternative demand, and thus the fact of the waste, can be discovered only through being recorded by a price system, actuated by a drive by producers for money incomes. Only empirical observation of the market reveals to us the full absurdity of such a transcontinental subway. Moreover, there are no physical units with which we can compare the different types of physical factors and physical products. Thus, suppose a producer attempts to determine the most efficient use of two hours of his labor. In a romantic moment, he tries to determine this efficiency by purely abstracting from sordid considerations of monetary gain— Assume that he is confronted with three technologically known alternatives. In alternative A, two hours of labor with five pounds of clay and one oven hour produces one pot. In alternative B, two hours of labor with one block of wood and one oven hour produces one pipe. In alternative C, with two hours of labor and one block of wood and one oven hour, he is able to produce one model boat. Which of these alternatives, A, B, or C, is the most efficient, the most technologically useful way of allocating his labor? It is clear that the idealistic, self-sacrificing producer has no way of knowing. He has no rational way of deciding whether or not to produce the pot, the pipe, or the boat. Only the selfish, money-seeking producer has a rational way of determining the allocation. In seeking maximum monetary gain, the producer compares the money costs, necessary expenses of the various factors with the prices of the products. Considering A and B, for example, if the purchase of the clay and oven hour would cost one gold ounce, and the pot could sell for two gold ounces, his labor would earn one gold ounce. On the other hand, if the wood and oven hour would cost one and a half gold ounces, and the pipe could sell for four gold ounces, he would earn two and a half ounces for his two hours of labor, and would choose to make this product. The prices of both the product and the factors are reflections of consumer demand, and of producers' attempts to earn money in its service. The only way the producer could determine which product to make is to compare expected monetary gains. If the boat would sell for five gold ounces, he would produce the boat rather than the pipe, and thus satisfy a more urgent consumer demand, as well as his own desire for monetary income. There can, therefore, be no separation of technological efficiency from financial considerations. 
The only way that we can determine whether one product is more demanded than another, or one process more efficient than another, is through concrete actions of the free market. We may think it is self-evident, for example, that the optimum efficient size of a steel plant is larger than that of a barber shop, but we know this not as economists from a priori or praxeological reasoning, but purely by empirical observation of the free market. There is no way that economists or any other outside observers can set the technological optimum for any plant or firm. This can be done only on the market itself. But if this is true in general, it is also true in the specific cases of mergers and cartels. The impossibility of isolating a technological element becomes even clearer when we remember that the critical problem is not the size of the plant, but the size of the firm. The two are by no means synonymous. It is true that the firm will consider the optimum-sized plant for whatever scale its operations will be on, and further, that a larger-sized plant will, ceteris paribus, require a larger-sized firm. But its range of decisions cover a much broader ground. How much to invest, what good or goods to produce, etc., a firm may encompass one or more plants or products, and always encompasses marketing facilities, financial organization, etc., which are overlooked when only the plant is held in view. R. H. Coase, in an illuminating article, The Nature of the Firm, has pointed out that the extent to which transactions take place within a firm or between firms is dependent on the balancing of the necessary costs of using the price mechanism as against the costs of organizing a structure of production within a firm. These considerations, incidentally, serve to refute the very popular distinction between production for use and production for profit. In the first place, all production is for use, otherwise it would not take place. In the market economy, this almost always means goods for the use of others, the consumers. Profit can be earned only through servicing consumers with produced goods. On the other hand, there can be no rational production above the most primitive level based on technological or utilitarian considerations abstracted from monetary gain. This spurious distinction was brought into wide currency by Thorstein Veblen and continued in the happily short-lived technocracy movement of the early 1930s. According to his biographer, this distinction was the keynote to all Veblen's writings. It is important to realize what we have not said in this section. We have not said that cartels will always be more efficient than individual firms, or that big firms will always be more efficient than small ones. 
Our conclusion is that economics can make few valid statements about the optimal size of a firm, except that the free market will come as close as possible to rendering maximum service to consumers, whether we are considering the size of a firm or any other aspect of production. All the concrete problems in production, the size of the firm, the size of the industry, the location, price, size and nature of the output, etc., are for entrepreneurs, not economists, to solve. We should not leave the problem of the size of the firm without considering a common worry of economic writers. What if the average cost of a firm continues to fall indefinitely? Would not the firm then grow so big as to constitute a monopoly? There is much lamentation that competition breaks down in such a situation. Much of the emphasis on this problem comes, however, from preoccupation with the case of pure competition, which, as we shall see, is an impossible figment. Secondly, it is obvious that no firm ever has been or can be infinitely large, so that limiting obstacles, rising or less rapidly falling costs, must enter somewhere, and relevantly for every firm. Thirdly, if a firm, through greater efficiency, does obtain a monopoly in some sense in its industry, it clearly does so, in the case we are considering, falling average cost, by lowering prices and benefiting the consumers. And if, as all the theorists who attack monopoly agree, what is wrong with monopoly is precisely a restriction of production and a rise in price, there is obviously nothing wrong with a monopoly achieved by pursuing the directly opposite path. D. The Instability of the Cartel Analysis demonstrates that a cartel is an inherently unstable form of operation. If the joint pooling of assets in a common cause proves in the long run to be profitable for each of the individual members of the cartel, then they will act formally to merge into one large firm. The cartel then disappears in the merger. On the other hand, if the joint action proves unprofitable for one or more members, the dissatisfied firm or firms will break away from the cartel, and as we shall see, any such independent action almost always destroys the cartel. The cartel form, therefore, is bound to be highly evanescent and unstable. If joint action is the most efficient and profitable course for each member, a merger will soon take place. The very fact that each member firm retains its potential independence in the cartel means that a breakup could take place at any time. The cartel will have to assign production totals and quotas to each of the member firms. This is likely to lead first to a good deal of bickering among the firms over the assignment of quotas, with each member attempting to gain a larger share of the assignment. Whatever basis quotas are assigned on will necessarily be arbitrary, and will always be subject to challenge by one or more members. As Professor Benham states, 
Firms which have produced a relatively large share of output in the past will demand the same share in the future. Firms which are expanding, owing, for example, to an unusually efficient management, will demand a larger share than they obtained in the past. Firms with a greater capacity for producing, as measured by the size of their plant, will demand a correspondingly greater share. In a merger, or in the formation of one corporation, the stockholders, by majority vote, form a decision-making organization. In the case of a cartel, however, disputes arise among independent owning entities. Particularly likely to be restive under the imposed joint action will be the more efficient producers, who will be eager to expand their business rather than be fettered by shackles and quotas to provide shelter for their less efficient competitors. Clearly, the more efficient firms will be the ones to break up the cartel. This will be increasingly true as time goes on, and conditions change from the time the cartel was first formed. The quotas, the jealously made agreements that formerly seemed plausible to all, now become intolerable restrictions for the more efficient firms, and the cartel soon breaks up. For once one firm breaks away, expands output and cuts prices, the others must follow. If the cartel does not break up from within, it is even more likely to do so from without. To the extent that it has earned unusual monopoly profits, outside firms and outside producers will enter the same field of production. Outsiders, in short, rush in to take advantage of the higher profits. But once one strong competitor arises to challenge it, the cartel is doomed. For as the firms in the cartel are bound by production quotas, they must watch new competitors expand and take away sales from them at an accelerating rate. As a result, the cartel must break up under the pressure of the newcomer's competition. E. Free Competition and Cartels There are other arguments that opponents of cartels use in decrying cartel action. One thesis asserts that there is something wicked about formerly competing firms now uniting, for example, restricting competition or restraining trade. Such restriction is supposed to injure the consumer's freedom of choice. As Hutt phrased it in his previously cited article, consumers are free and consumers' sovereignty is realizable only to the extent to which the power of substitution exists. But surely this is a complete misconception of the meaning of freedom. Crusoe and Friday bargaining on a desert island have very little range or power of choice. Their power of substitution is limited. Yet, if neither man interferes with the other's person or property, each one is absolutely free. To argue otherwise is to adopt the fallacy of confusing freedom with abundance or range of choice. No individual producer is or can be responsible for other people's power to substitute. No coffee grower or steel producer, whether acting singly or jointly, is responsible to anyone because he chose not to produce more. 
If Professor X or Consumer Y believes that there are not enough coffee producers in existence, or that they are not producing enough, these critics are free to enter the coffee or steel business as they see fit, thus increasing both the number of competitors and the quantity of the good produced. If consumer demand had really justified more competitors, or more of the product, or a greater variety of products, then entrepreneurs would have seized the opportunity to profit by satisfying this demand. The fact that this is not being done in any given case demonstrates that no such unsatisfied consumer demand exists. But if this is true, then it follows that no man-made actions can improve the satisfaction of consumer demand more than is being done on the unhampered market. The false confusion of freedom with abundance rests on a failure to distinguish between the conditions given by nature and man-made actions to transform nature. In a state of raw nature, there is no abundance. In fact, there are few, if any, goods at all. Crusoe is absolutely free, and yet on the point of starvation. Of course, it would be pleasanter for everyone if the nature-given conditions had been far more abundant, but these are vain fantasies. For vis-a-vis -vis nature, this is the best of all possible worlds because it is the only possible one. Man's condition on earth is that he must work with the given natural conditions and improve them by human action. It is a reflection on nature, not on the free market, that everyone is free to starve. Economics demonstrates that individuals, entering into mutual relations in a free market in a free society, and only in such relations, can provide abundance for themselves and for the entire society. Free, as always in this book, is used in the interpersonal sense of being unmolested by other persons. To employ freedom as itself equivalent to abundance obstructs understanding of these truths. The free market in the world of production may be termed free competition or free entry, meaning that in a free society anyone is free to compete and produce in any field he chooses. Free competition is the application of liberty to the sphere of production, the freedom to buy, sell, and transform one's property without violent interference by an external power. We have seen that in a regime of free competition, consumers' satisfaction will, at any time, tend to be at the maximum possible given natural conditions. The best forecasters will tend to emerge as the dominant entrepreneurs, and if anyone sees an opportunity passed up, he is free to take advantage of his superior foresight. The regime that tends to maximize consumers' satisfaction, therefore, is not pure competition or perfect competition or competition without cartel action or anything other than one of simple economic liberty. Some critics charge that there is no real free entry or free competition in a free market. 
For how can anyone compete or enter a field when an enormous amount of money is needed to invest in efficient plants and firms? It is easy to enter the pushcart peddling industry because so little capital is required, but it is almost impossible to establish a new automobile firm with its heavy requirements of capital. This argument is but another variant of the prevailing confusion between freedom and abundance. In this case, the abundance refers to the money capital which a man has been able to amass. Every man is perfectly free to become a baseball player, but this freedom does not imply that he will be as good a baseball player as the next man. A man's range or power of action, dependent on his ability and the exchange value of his property, is something completely distinct from his freedom. As we have said, a free society will in the long run lead to general abundance and is the necessary condition for that abundance. But the two must be kept conceptually distinct and not confused by phrases such as real freedom or true freedom. Therefore, the fact that everyone is free to enter an industry does not mean that everyone is able, either in terms of personal qualities or monetary capital, to do so. In industries requiring more capital, fewer people will be able to take advantage of their freedom to set up a new firm than in those requiring less capital, just as fewer laborers will be able to take advantage of freedom of entry in a very highly skilled profession than in a menial position. There is no mystery about either situation. In fact, the disability is much more relevant in the case of labor than in the case of business competition. What are modern devices such as corporations, but means of pooling capital by many people of greater and lesser wealth? The difficulty of investing in a new automobile firm should be considered not in terms of the hundreds of millions of dollars required for total investment, but in terms of the fifty or so dollars required to purchase one share of stock. But while capital can be pooled, beginning with the smallest units, labor ability cannot be pooled. Sometimes the argument reaches absurd lengths. For example, it is often asserted that now, in this modern world, firms are so large that new people cannot compete or enter the industry because the capital cannot be raised. These critics do not seem to see that the aggregate capital and wealth of individuals have advanced along with the increase in wealth required to launch a new enterprise. In fact, these are two sides of the same coin. There is no reason to suppose that it was easier to raise the capital to launch a new retail shop many centuries ago than it is to raise capital for the automobile firm today. If there is enough capital to finance the large firms currently existing, there is enough to finance one more. In fact, capital could be withdrawn from existing large firms and shifted to new ones if there is a need for them. Of course, if the new enterprise would be unprofitable and therefore unserviceable to consumers, it is easy to see why there is reluctance in the free market to embark on the venture.
That there is inequality of ability or monetary income on the free market should surprise no one. As we have seen, men are not equal in their tastes, interests, abilities, or locations. Resources are not distributed equally over the earth. Clearly, the very term equal is unusable here. What does it mean to say that Lawyer Jones' ability is equal to Teacher Smith's? This inequality or diversity in abilities and distribution of resources ensures inequality of income on the free market. And since a man's monetary assets are derived from his and his ancestors' abilities in serving consumers on the market, it is not surprising that there is inequality of monetary wealth as well. The term free competition, then, will prove misleading unless it is interpreted to mean free action, that is, freedom to compete or not to compete as the individual wills. It should be clear from the foregoing discussion that there is nothing particularly reprehensible or destructive of consumer freedom in the establishment of a monopoly price or in a cartel action. A cartel action, if it is a voluntary one, cannot injure freedom of competition and, if it proves profitable, benefits rather than injures the consumers. It is perfectly consonant with a free society, with individual self-sovereignty, and with the earning of money through serving consumers. As Benjamin R. Tucker brilliantly concluded in dealing with the problem of cartels and competition, that the right to cooperate is as unquestionable as the right to compete, the right to compete involves the right to refrain from competition, Cooperation is often a method of competition, and competition is always, in the larger view, a method of cooperation. Each is a legitimate, orderly, non-invasive exercise of the individual will under the social law of equal liberty. Viewed in the light of these irrefutable propositions, the trust, then, like every other industrial combination endeavoring to do collectively nothing but what each member of the combination might fully endeavor to do individually, is per se an unimpeachable institution. To assail or control or deny this form of cooperation on the ground that it is itself a denial of competition is an absurdity. It is an absurdity because it proves too much. The trust is a denial of competition in no other sense than that in which competition itself is a denial of competition. The trust denies competition only by producing and selling more cheaply than those outside of the trust can produce and sell. But in that sense, every successful individual competitor also denies competition. The fact is that there is one denial of competition which is the right of all, and that there is another denial of competition which is the right of none. All of us, whether out of a trust or in it, have a right to deny competition by competing, 
But none of us, whether in a trust or out of it, have a right to deny competition by arbitrary decree, by interference with voluntary effort, by forcible suppression of initiative. This is not to say, of course, that joint cooperation or combination is necessarily better than competition among firms. We simply conclude that the relative extent of areas within or between firms on the free market will be precisely that proportion most conducive to the well-being of consumers and producers alike. This is the same as our previous conclusion that the size of a firm will tend to be established at the level most serviceable to the consumers. Does our discussion imply that whatever is, is right? We cannot enter into a discussion of the relation of economics to ethics at this point, but we can state briefly that our answer, pertaining to the free market, is a qualified yes. Specifically, our statement would be, Given the ends on the value scales of individuals as revealed by their real actions, the maximum satisfaction of those ends for every person is achieved only on the free market. Whether individuals have the proper ends or not is another question entirely and cannot be decided by economics. F. The Problem of One Big Cartel the myth of the evil cartel has been greatly bolstered by the nightmare image of one big cartel. This is all very well, one may say, but suppose that all the firms in the country amalgamated or cartelized into one big cartel. What of the horrors then? The answer can be obtained by referring to Chapter 9, where we saw that the free market placed definite limits on the size of the firm, that is, the limits of calculability on the market. In order to calculate the profits and losses of each branch, a firm must be able to refer its internal operations to external markets for each of the various factors and intermediate products. When any of these external markets disappears, because all are absorbed within the province of a single firm, calculability disappears, and there is no way for the firm rationally to allocate factors to that specific area. The more these limits are encroached upon, the greater and greater will be the sphere of irrationality, and the more difficult it will be to avoid losses. One big cartel would not be able rationally to allocate producers' goods at all, and hence could not avoid severe losses. Consequently, it could never really be established, and, if tried, would quickly break asunder. In the production sphere, socialism is equivalent to one big cartel, compulsorily organized and controlled by the state. If all the factors and resources are absolutely controlled by the state, it makes little difference if legally the state owns these resources, for ownership connotes control, and if the nominal owner is coercively deprived of control, it is the controller who is the real owner of the resource.
Those who advocate socialist central planning as the more efficient method of production for consumer wants must answer the question, if this central planning is really more efficient, why has it not been established by profit-seeking individuals on the free market? The fact that one big cartel has never been formed voluntarily and that it needs the coercive might of the state to be formed demonstrates that it could not possibly be the most efficient method of satisfying consumer desires. Let us assume for a moment that one big cartel could be established on the free market and that the calculability problem does not arise. What would the economic consequences be? Would the cartel be able to exploit anyone? In the first place, consumers could not be exploited, for consumers' demand would still be elastic or inelastic, as the case may be. Since, as we shall see further, consumers' demand for a firm is always elastic above the free market equilibrium price, it follows that the cartel will not be able to raise prices or earn more from consumers. What about the factors? Could not their owners be exploited by the cartel? In the first place, the universal cartel, to be effective, would have to include owners of primary land. Otherwise, whatever gains they might have might be imputed to land. To put it in its strongest terms, then, could a universal cartel of all land and capital goods exploit laborers by systematically paying the latter less than their discounted marginal value products? Could not the members of the cartel agree to pay a very low sum to these workers? If that happened, however, there would be created great opportunities for entrepreneurs either to spring up outside the cartel or to break away from the cartel and profit by hiring workers for a higher wage. This competition would have the double effect of A, breaking up the universal cartel, and B, tending again to yield to the laborers their marginal product. As long as competition is free, unhampered by governmental restrictions, no universal cartel could either exploit labor or remain universal for any length of time. 3. The Illusion of Monopoly Price So far we have established that there is nothing wrong with a monopoly price either when instituted by one firm or by a cartel, that, in fact, whatever price the free market, unhampered by violence or the threat of violence, establishes, will be the best price. We have also shown the impossibility of separating monopolizing from efficiency considerations in cartel actions, or of separating technology from profitability in general, and we have seen the great instability of the cartel form. In this section, we investigate a further problem. Granted that there is nothing wrong with monopoly prices, how tenable is the very concept of monopoly price on the free market? Can it be distinguished at all from competitive price, its supposed polar opposite, to answer this question, we must explore what the theory of monopoly price is all about.
A. Definitions of Monopoly Before investigating the theory of monopoly price, we must begin by defining monopoly. Despite the fact that monopoly problems occupy an enormous quantity of economic writings, little or no clarity of definition exists. The same confusion exists in the laws concerning monopoly. Despite constitutional warnings against vagueness, the Sherman Antitrust Act outlaws monopolizing actions without once defining the concept. To this day, there has been no clear legislative decision concerning what constitutes illegal monopolistic action. There is, in fact, enormous vagueness and confusion on the subject. Very few economists have formulated a coherent, meaningful definition of monopoly. A common example of a confused definition is, monopoly exists when a firm has control over its price. This definition is a mixture of confusion and absurdity. In the first place, on the free market, there is no such thing as control over the price in an exchange. In any exchange, the price of the sale is voluntarily agreed upon by both parties. No control is exercised by either party. The only control is each person's control over his own actions, stemming from his self-sovereignty, and consequently his control will be over his own decision to enter or not to enter into an exchange at any hypothetical price. There is no direct control over price because price is a mutual phenomenon. On the other hand, each person has absolute control over his own action, and therefore over the price which he will attempt to charge for any particular good. Any man can set any price that he wants for any quantity of a good that he sells. The question is whether he can find any buyers at that price. Similarly, of course, any buyer can set any price at which he will purchase a certain good. The question is whether he can find a seller at that price. It is this process, indeed, of mutual bids and offers that yields the daily prices on the market. There is an all-too-common assumption, however, that if we compare, say, Henry Ford and a small wheat farmer, the two differ enormously in their respective powers of control. It is believed that the wheat farmer finds his price given to him by the market, while Ford can administer or set his own price. The wheat farmer is allegedly subject to the impersonal forces of the market, and ultimately to the consumer, while Ford is, to a greater or lesser extent, the master of his own fate, if not indeed the ruler of the consumers. Further, it is believed that Ford's monopoly power stems from his being large in relation to the automobile market, while the farmer is a pure competitor because he is small compared to the total supply of wheat. Usually, Ford is not considered an absolute monopolist, but someone with a vague degree of monopoly power. 
In the first place, it is completely false to say that the farmer and Ford differ in their control over price. Both have exactly the same degree of control and of non-control. That is, both have absolute control over the quantity they produce and the price which they attempt to get, and absolute non-control over the price and quantity transaction that finally takes place. We are, of course, not considering here particular uncertainties of agriculture resulting from climate, etc. The farmer is free to ask any price he wants, just as Ford is, and is free to look for a buyer at such a price. He is not in the least compelled to sell his produce to the organized markets if he can do better elsewhere. Every producer of every product is free in a free market society to produce as much as he wants of whatever he possesses or can purchase, and to try to sell it at whatever price he can get to anyone he can find. Naturally, every seller, as we have repeatedly stated, will attempt to sell his produce for the highest possible price. Similarly, every buyer will attempt to purchase goods at the lowest possible price. It is precisely the voluntary interaction of these buyers and sellers that establishes the entire supply and demand structure for consumers and producers' goods. To accuse Ford or a waterworks or any other producer of charging whatever the traffic will bear, and to take this as a sign of monopoly, is pure nonsense, for this is precisely the action of everyone in the economy, the small wheat farmer, the laborer, the landowner, etc., Charging whatever the traffic will bear is simply a rather emotive synonym for charging as high a price as can be freely obtained. Who officially sets the price in any exchange is a completely trivial and irrelevant technological question, a matter of institutional convenience rather than economic analysis. The fact that Macy's posts its prices each day does not mean that Macy's has some sort of mysterious control of its price over the consumer. Similarly, that large-scale industrial buyers of raw materials often post their bid prices does not mean that they exercise some sort of extra control over the price obtained by the growers. Rather than acting as a means of control, in fact, posting simply furnishes needed information to all would-be buyers and or sellers. The process of price determination through the interaction of value scales occurs in precisely the same way regardless of the concrete details and institutional conditions of market arrangements. Each individual producer, then, is sovereign over his own actions. He is free to buy, produce, and sell whatever he likes, and to whoever will purchase. The farmer is not compelled to sell to any particular market or to any particular company, any more than Ford is compelled to sell to John Brown if he does not wish to do so, say, because he can get a higher price elsewhere. 
But as we have seen, insofar as a producer wishes to maximize his monetary return, he does submit himself to the control of consumers, and he sets his output accordingly. This is true of the farmer, of Ford, or of anyone else in the entire economy. Landowner, laborer, service producer, product owner, etc., Ford, then, has no more control over the consumer than the farmer has. One common objection is that Ford is able to acquire monopoly power or monopolistic power because his product has a recognized brand name or trademark, which the wheat farmer has not. This, however, is surely a case of putting the cart before the horse, the brand name and the wide knowledge of the brand come from consumers' desire for the product attached to that particular brand, and are therefore a result of consumer demand, rather than a pre-existing means for some sort of monopolistic power over the consumers. In fact, farmer Hiram Jones is perfectly free to stamp the brand name Hiram Jones Wheat on his product and attempt to sell it on the market. The fact that he has not done so signifies that it would not be a profitable step in the concrete market condition of his product. The chief point is that in some cases consumers and lower-order entrepreneurs consider each individual brand name as representing a unique product, while in other cases purchasers consider the output of one firm, one product owner or set of product owners operating jointly, as identical in use value with products of other firms. Which situation will occur is entirely dependent on the buyer's valuations in each concrete case. Later in this chapter, we shall analyze in greater detail the tangled web of fallacies involved in the various theories of monopolistic competition. At this point, we are attempting to arrive at a definition of monopoly per se. To proceed... There are three possible coherent definitions of monopoly. One is derived from its linguistic roots, monos, only, and poline, to sell, that is, the only seller of any given good. Definition 1. This is certainly a legitimate definition, but it is an extraordinarily broad one. It means that whenever there is any differentiation at all among individual products, the individual producer and seller is a monopolist. John Jones, lawyer, is a monopolist over the legal services of John Jones. Tom Williams, doctor, is a monopolist over his own unique medical services, etc., the owner of the Empire State Building is a monopolist over the rental services in his building. This definition, therefore, labels all consumer distinctions between individual products as establishing monopolies. It must be remembered that only consumers can decide whether two commodities offered on the market are one good or two different goods. This issue cannot be settled by a physical inspection of the product. The elemental physical nature of the good may be only one of its properties. 
in most cases, a brand name, the goodwill of a particular company, or a more pleasant atmosphere in the store, will differentiate the product from its rivals in the view of many of its customers. The products then become different goods for the consumers. No one can ever be certain in advance, least of all the economist, whether a commodity sold by A will be treated on the market as homogeneous with the same basic physical good sold by B. Economists have often charged, for example, that consumers who will pay a higher price for the same good at a store with a more pleasant atmosphere are acting irrationally. Actually, they are by no means doing so, since consumers are buying not just a physical can of beans, but a can of beans sold in a certain store by certain clerks, and these factors may or may not make a difference to them. Businessmen are far less motivated by such non-physical considerations, although goodwill affects their purchases too not because they are more rational than consumers, but because they are not concerned, as consumers are, with their own value scales in deciding their purchases. As we have seen above, businessmen are generally motivated purely by the expected revenue that goods will bring on the market. Professor Lawrence Abbott, in one of the outstanding theoretical works of recent years, demonstrates also that as civilization and the economy advance, products will become more and more differentiated and less and less homogeneous. For one thing, greater differentiation occurs at the consumer than at the producer level, and the expanding economy takes over an increasing proportion of goods once made by the consumer himself, and therefore supplies more finished goods than raw materials to the consumer than formerly, bread rather than flour, sweaters rather than wool yarn, etc., Thus, there is greater opportunity for differentiation. Furthermore, to the familiar charge that business advertising tends to create differentiation in the consumer's mind that is not really there, Abbott replies incisively that the reverse is more likely to be true, and that advancing civilization increases the consumer's perception and discrimination of differences of which he was previously ignorant. Writes Abbott, As man becomes more civilized, he develops greater powers of perception with regard to quality differences. Subjective homogeneity may exist even when objective homogeneity does not, due to the inability or unwillingness of buyers to perceive differences between almost identical products and discriminate between them. As a society matures and education improves, people learn to develop more acute powers of discrimination. Their wants become more detailed. They begin to develop a preference, say, not simply for white wine, but for 1948 Chablis. People generally tend to underestimate the significance of apparently trivial differences in fields in which they are not expert, 
An unmusical person may be unwilling to concede that there is any difference in tone between a Steinway and a Chickering piano, being unable himself to detect it. A non-golfer is more likely than a habitual player to believe that all brands of golf balls are virtually alike. Hence, there is hardly any way that definition one of monopoly can be successfully used. For this definition depends on how we choose a homogeneous good, and this can never be decided by an economist. What constitutes a homogeneous commodity? That is, an industry: neckties, bow ties, bow ties with polka dots, etc., or bow ties made by Jones. Only consumers will decide, and they, as different consumers, will be likely to decide differently in each concrete case. Use of definition one, therefore, will probably reduce to the barren definition of monopoly as each man's exclusive ownership of his own property, and this absurdly would make every single person a monopolist. Oddly, despite the reams of literature on monopolies, very few economists have bothered to define monopoly, and these problems have therefore been overlooked. Joan Robinson, in the beginning of her famous Economics of Imperfect Competition, saw the difficulty and then evaded the issue throughout the rest of the book. She concedes that under careful analysis, either a monopoly would be defined as every producer's control over his own product, or monopoly could simply not exist on the free market at all. For competition exists among all products for the consumer's dollar, while very few articles are rigorously homogeneous. Mrs. Robinson then tries to evade the issue by falling back on common sense and defining monopoly as existing where there is a marked gap between the product and other substitutes the consumer may buy. But this will not do. Economics, in the first place, can establish no quantitative laws, so that there is nothing we can say about sizes of gaps. When does the gap become marked? Secondly, even if such laws were meaningful, there would be no way to measure the cross elasticities of demands, the elasticity of substitution between the products, etc. These elasticities of substitution are changing all the time and could not be measured successfully, even if they all remained constant, since supply conditions are always changing. No laboratory exists where all economic factors may be held fixed. After this point in her discussion, Mrs. Robinson practically forgets all about heterogeneity of product. Definition one then is coherent but highly inexpedient. Its usefulness is very limited, and the term has acquired highly charged emotional connotations from past use of quite different definitions. The term monopoly has sinister and evil connotations to most people. Monopolist is generally a word of abuse. To apply the term monopolist to at least the vast majority of the population, and perhaps to every man, would have a confusing and even ludicrous effect.
The second definition is related to the first, but differs very significantly. It, in fact, was the original definition of monopoly, and the very definition responsible for its sinister connotations in the public mind. Let us turn to its classic expression by the great 17th-century jurist, Lord Cook. A monopoly is an institution or allowance by the king, by his grant, commission, or otherwise, to any person or persons, bodies politic or corporate, for the sole buying, selling, making, working, or using of anything whereby any person or persons, bodies politic or corporate, are sought to be restrained of any freedom or liberty that they had before, or hindered in their lawful trade. In other words, by this definition, monopoly is a grant of special privilege by the state, reserving a certain area of production to one particular individual or group. Entry into the field is prohibited to others, and this prohibition is enforced by the gendarmes of the state. This definition of monopoly goes back to the common law and acquired great political importance in England during the 16th and 17th centuries, when an historic struggle took place between libertarians and the crown over the issue of monopoly as opposed to freedom of production and enterprise. Under this definition of the term, it is not surprising that monopoly took on connotations of sinister interest and tyranny in the public mind. The enormous restrictions on production and trade, as well as the establishment by the state of a monopoly caste of favorites, were the objects of vehement attack for several centuries. The onrush of monopoly grants by Queen Elizabeth I and Charles I provoked resistance from even the Crown's subservient judges, and in 1624, Parliament declared that all monopolies are altogether contrary to the laws of this realm and are and shall be void. This anti-monopoly spirit was deeply ingrained in America, and the original Maryland Constitution declared that monopolies were odious and contrary to principles of commerce. That this definition was formerly important in economic analysis is clear in the following quotation from one of the first American economists, Francis Wayland. A monopoly is an exclusive right granted to a man, or to a monopoly of men, to employ their labor or capital in some particular manner. It is obvious that this type of monopoly can never arise on a free market, unhampered by state interference. In the free economy, then, according to this definition, there can be no monopoly problem. Many writers have objected that brand names and trademarks, generally considered as part of the free market, really constitute grants of special privilege by the state. No other firm can compete with Hershey Chocolates by producing its own product and calling it Hershey Chocolates. Is this not a state-imposed restriction on freedom of entry? And how can there be real freedom of entry under such conditions? This argument, however, completely misconceives the nature of liberty and of property. 
Every individual in the free society has a right to ownership of his own self and to the exclusive use of his own property. Included in his property is his name, the linguistic label which is uniquely his and is identified with him. A name is an essential part of a man's identity and therefore of his property. To say that he is a monopolist over his name is saying no more than that he is a monopolist over his own will or property, and such an extension of the word monopolist to every individual in the world would be an absurd usage of the term. The governmental function of defense of person and property, vital to the existence of a free society so long as any people are disposed to invade them, involves the defense of each person's particular name or trademark against the fraud of forgery or imposture. It means the outlawing of John Smith's pretending to be Joseph Williams, a prominent lawyer, and selling his own legal advice after stating to clients that he is selling that of Williams. This fraud is not only implicit theft of the consumer, but it is also abusing the property right of Joseph Williams to his unique name and individuality, and the use by some other chocolate firm of the Hershey label would be an equivalent perpetration of an invasive act of fraud and forgery. It might be objected that these concepts are vague and give rise to problems, Problems do arise, but they are not insuperable. Thus, if one man is named Joseph Williams, does this preclude anyone else from having the same name? And is any future Joseph Williams to be considered a criminal? The answer is clearly no, so long as there is no attempt by one to impersonate the other. In short, it is not so much the name per se which an individual owns, but the name as an affiliate of his person. Before adopting this definition of monopoly as the proper one, we must consider a final alternative, the defining of a monopolist as a person who has achieved a monopoly price, definition 3. This definition has never been explicitly set forth, but it has been implicit in the most worthwhile of the neoclassical writings on this subject. It has the merit of focusing attention on the important economic question of monopoly price, its nature and consequences. In this connection, we shall now investigate the neoclassical theory of monopoly price and inquire whether it really has the substance it seems at first glance to possess. b. The Neoclassical Theory of Monopoly Price In previous sections, we have referred to a monopoly price as one established either by a monopolist or by a cartel of producers. At this point, we must investigate the theory more closely. A succinct definition of monopoly price has been supplied by Mises. If conditions are such that the monopolist can secure higher net proceeds by selling a smaller quantity of his product at a higher price than by selling a greater quantity of his supply at a lower price, there emerges a monopoly price higher than the potential market price would have been in the absence of monopoly. 
The monopoly price doctrine may be summed up as follows. A certain quantity of a good, when produced and sold, yields a competitive price on the market. A monopolist or a cartel of firms can, if the demand is inelastic at the competitive price point, restrict sales and raise the price to arrive at the point of maximum returns. If, on the other hand, the demand as it presents itself to the monopolist or cartel is elastic at the competitive price point, the monopolist will not restrict sales to attain a higher price. As a result, as Mises points out, there is no need to be concerned with the monopolist in the sense of definition one above. Whether or not he is the sole producer of a commodity is unimportant and irrelevant for catalactic problems. It becomes important only if the configuration of his demand enables him to restrict sales and achieve a higher income at a monopoly price. Thus, as Mises puts it, the mere existence of a monopoly does not mean anything. The publisher of a copyright book is a monopolist, but he may not be able to sell a single copy, no matter how low the price he asks. Not every price at which a monopolist sells a monopolized commodity is a monopoly price. Monopoly prices are only prices at which it is more advantageous for the monopolist to restrict the total amount to be sold than to expand sales to the limit which a competitive market would allow. If he learns about the inelastic demand after he has erroneously produced too great a stock, the monopolist must destroy or withhold part of his stock. After that, he restricts production of the commodity to the most remunerative level. The inelastic demand giving rise to an opportunity to monopolize may present itself either to a single monopolist of a given product or to an industry as a whole when organized into a cartel of the different producers. In the latter case, the demand as it presents itself to each firm is elastic. At the competitive price, if one firm raises its price, the customers preponderantly shift to purchasing from its competitors. On the other hand, if the firms are cartelized, in many cases the lesser range of substitution by consumers would render the demand as presented to the cartel inelastic. C. Consequences of Monopoly Price Theory 1. The Competitive Environment Before engaging in a critical analysis of the monopoly price theory itself, we might explore some of the consequences which do or do not follow from it. In this section, we for the moment assume that the monopoly price theory is valid. We are devoting space to analysis of monopoly price theory and its consequences because the theory, though invalid on the free market, will prove very useful in analyzing the consequences of monopoly grants by government. In the first place, it is not true that the monopolist, used here in the sense of definition 3, an obtainer of a monopoly price, 
is removed from the influence of competition or has the power to dictate to consumers at will. The best of the monopoly price theorists admit that the monopolist is as subject to the forces of competition as are other firms. The monopolist cannot set prices as high as he would like, being limited by the configurations of consumer demand. By definition, in fact, the demand as presented to the monopolist becomes elastic above the monopoly price point. By definition, the monopoly price point is that which maximizes the firm's or the cartel's income. Above that price, any further restriction of production and sales will lower the monopolist's monetary income. This implies that the demand will become elastic above that point, just as it is also elastic above the competitive price point when that is established on the market. Consumers make it elastic by their power of substituting purchases of other goods. Many other goods compete directly in their use value to the consumer. If some firm or combination of firms should, for example, achieve a monopoly price for cake soap, housewives can shift to detergents and thus limit the height of the monopoly price. But in addition, all goods without exception compete for the consumer's dollar or gold ounce. If the price of yachts becomes too high, the consumer can substitute expenditure on mansions, or he can substitute books for television sets, etc. As Mises warns, it would be a serious blunder to deduce from the antithesis between monopoly price and competitive price that the monopoly price is the outgrowth of the absence of competition, there is always catalactic competition on the market. Catalactic competition is no less a factor in the determination of monopoly prices than it is in the determination of competitive prices. The demand that makes the appearance of monopoly prices possible and directs the monopolist's conduct is determined by the competition of all other commodities competing for the buyer's dollars. The higher the monopolist fixes the price at which he is ready to sell, the more potential buyers turn their dollars toward other vendable goods. On the market, every commodity competes with all other commodities. Furthermore, as the market advances, as capital is invested and the market becomes more and more specialized, the demand for each product tends to become more and more elastic. As the market develops, the range of consumers' goods available increases enormously. The more consumers' goods are available, the more goods can be purchased by consumers, and the more elastic, ceteris paribus, the demand for each good will tend to be. As a result, the opportunities for the establishment of monopoly prices will tend to diminish as the market and capitalist methods develop. 2. Monopoly Profit versus Monopoly Gain to a Factor Many monopoly price theorists have declared that establishment of the monopoly price means that the monopolist is able to attain permanent monopoly profits. 
This is then contrasted with competitive profits and losses, which, as we have seen, disappear in the evenly rotating economy. Under competition, if one firm is seen to be making great profits in a particular productive process, other firms rush in to take advantage of the anticipated opportunities, and the profits disappear. But in the case of the monopolist, it is asserted, his unique position allows him to keep making these profits permanently. We are not discussing here the generally conceded point that monopoly profits are capitalized in capital gains to the shares of the firm's stock. To use such terminology is to misconceive the nature of profit and loss. Profits and losses are purely the results of entrepreneurial activity, and that activity is the consequence of the uncertainty of the future. Entrepreneurship is the action on the market that takes advantage of estimated discrepancies between selling prices and buying prices of factors. The better forecasters make profits, and the incorrect ones suffer losses. In the evenly rotating economy where everyone has settled down to an unchanging round of activity, there can be no profit or loss because there is no uncertainty on the market. The same is true for the monopolist. In the evenly rotating economy, he obtains his specific monopoly gain not as an entrepreneur, but as the owner of the product which he sells. His monopoly gain is an added income to his monopolized product. Whether for an individual or for a cartel, it is this product which earns more income through restriction of its supply. The question arises, why cannot other entrepreneurs seize the gainful opportunity and enter into the production of this good, thereby tending to eliminate the opportunity? In the case of the cartel, this is precisely the tendency that will always prevail and lead to the breakup of a monopoly price position. Even if new firms entering the industry are bought off by being offered quotal positions in the old cartel, and both the new and the old firms have been able to agree on allocations of production and income, such actions will not suffice to preserve the cartel, for new firms will be tempted to acquire a share in the monopoly gains, and ever more will be created until the entire cartel operation is rendered unprofitable, there being too many firms to share the benefits. In such situations, the pressure will become greater and greater for the more efficient firms to cut loose from the cartel and to refuse further to provide a comfortable shelter for the host of inefficient firms. In the case of a single monopolist, either his brand name and unique goodwill with the consumers prevents others from taking away his monopoly gains, or else he is a recipient of special monopoly privilege from the government, in which case other producers are prevented by force from producing the same good. Our analysis of monopoly gain must be pursued further. We have said that the gain is derived from income from the sale of a certain product, but this product must be produced by factors, 
and we have seen that the return to any product is resolved into returns to the factors which produce it. Such imputation in the market must also take place for monopoly gains. Let us say, for example, that the Staunton Washing Machine Company has been able to achieve a monopoly price for its product. It is clear that the monopoly gain cannot be attributed to the machines, the plant, etc., which produce the washers. If the Staunton Company bought these machines from other producers, then any monopoly gains would, in the long run, as the machines were replaced, accrue to the producers of the machines. In the evenly rotating economy, where entrepreneurial profits and losses disappear, and the price of a product equals the sum of the prices of its factors, all the monopoly gain would accrue to a factor and not a product. Furthermore, no income except time income could accrue to the owner of a capital good because every capital good must, in turn, be produced by higher-order factors. Ultimately, all capital goods are resolvable into labor, land, and time factors. But if the Staunton Washing Machine Company cannot itself achieve a monopoly gain from a monopoly price, then obviously it does not benefit by restricting production in order to obtain this gain. Therefore, just as no income in the evenly rotating economy can accrue specifically to owners of capital goods, neither can specific monopoly gains. The monopoly gains must then be imputed to either labor or land factors. In the case of a brand name, for example, a certain kind of labor factor is being monopolized. A name, as we have seen, is a unique identifying label for a person or a group of persons acting cooperatively, and is therefore an attribute of the person and his energy. Considered generally, labor is the term designating the productive efforts of personal energy, whatever its concrete content. A brand name, therefore, is an attribute of a labor factor, specifically the owner or owners of the firm. Or, considered catalactically, the brand name represents the decision-making rent accruing to the owner and his name. If a monopoly price is achieved by the baseball prowess of Mickey Mantle, this is a specific monopoly gain attributable to a labor factor. In both of these cases, then, the monopoly price stems not simply from the unique possession of the final product, but more basically from the unique possession of one of the factors necessary to the final product. A monopoly gain might also be imputable to ownership of a unique natural resource or land factor. Thus, a monopoly price for diamonds may be attributable to a monopoly of diamond mines, from which diamonds must be ultimately produced. Under the analysis of monopoly price, then, there cannot be, in the evenly rotating system, any such thing as monopoly profits. There are only specific monopoly income gains to owners of labor or land factors. 
No monopoly gain can accrue to an owner of a capital good. If a monopoly price has been imposed because of a grant of monopoly privilege by the state, then obviously the monopoly gain is attributable to this special privilege. To attain a monopoly price, the factor owner must meet two conditions. A. He must be a monopolist, in the sense of definition one, over the factor. If he were not, the monopoly gain could be bid away by competitors entering the field. And B. The demand for the factor must be inelastic above the competitive price point. 3. A World of Monopoly Prices is it possible, within the framework of monopoly price theory, to assert that all prices on the free market may be monopoly prices? This is the underlying assumption in Mrs. Joan Robinson's Economics of Imperfect Competition. Can all selling prices be monopoly prices? There are two ways in which we may analyze this problem. One is by turning our attention to the monopolized industry. As we have seen, the industry with a monopoly price restricts production in that industry, either by a cartel or a single firm, thereby releasing non-specific factors to enter other fields of production. But it is evidently impossible to conceive of a world of monopoly prices, because this would imply a piling up of unused non-specific factors, since wants do not remain unfulfilled, labor and other non-specific factors will be used somewhere, and the industries that acquire more factors and produce more cannot be monopoly price industries their prices will be below the competitive price level. We may also consider consumer demand. We have seen that a necessary condition for the establishment of monopoly price is a consumer's demand schedule inelastic above the competitive price point. Obviously, it is impossible for every industry to have such an inelastic demand schedule, for the definition of inelastic is that consumers will spend a greater total sum of money on the good when the price is higher. But consumers have a certain given total stock of money assets and money income, as well as a given amount at any one time which they may allocate to consumption spending. If they spend more on a certain good, they have less to spend on other goods. Therefore, they cannot spend more on every good, and not all prices can be monopoly prices. There can never, then, be a world of monopoly prices, even assuming monopoly price theory. Because of the fixity of consumers' monetary stock and the employment of displaced factors, monopoly prices could not be established in more than approximately half of the economy's industries. 4. Cutthroat Competition A popular theme in the literature is the alleged evil of cutthroat competition. Curiously, cutthroat, or excessive, competition is linked by critics to the achievement of a monopoly price. 
The usual charge is that a big firm, for example, deliberately sells below the most profitable price, even to the extent of suffering losses. The firm acts so peculiarly in order to force another firm producing the same product to cut its price also. The stronger firm, with the capital resources to endure the losses, then drives the weaker firm out of business and establishes a monopoly of the field. But first, what is wrong with such a monopoly? Definition 1. What is wrong with the fact that the firm more efficient in serving the consumer remains in business, while consumers refuse to patronize the inefficient firm? A firm's suffering losses signifies that it is not as successful as other firms in serving consumer desires. Factors then shift from the inefficient to the efficient firms. A firm's going out of business harms no owner of any factor it employs and injures only the entrepreneur who miscalculated in his advance production decisions. A firm goes out of business precisely because it suffers entrepreneurial losses. That is, its monetary revenues in sales to consumers are less than the money it paid out previously to owners of factors. But so much money had to be paid out for factors. That is, costs were so high because these factors could earn as much money elsewhere. If this entrepreneur cannot profitably employ the factors at their given prices, the reason is that factor owners can sell their services to other firms. Insofar as factors may be specific to the firm, and to the extent that their owners will accept a reduced price and income as the price of the firm's product is reduced, total money costs can be reduced, and the firm can be maintained in operation. Therefore, failure by business firms is due solely to entrepreneurial error in forecasting and to entrepreneurial inability to secure the factors of production by outbidding those firms more successful in serving the consumer. Bidding takes place among numerous firms in various industries, not only among firms in the same industry. Thus, the elimination of inefficient firms cannot harm factor owners or lead to their unemployment, since their failure was due precisely to the more attractive competing bids made by other firms, or in some cases to the alternatives of leisure or production outside the market. Their failure also helps consumers by transferring resources from wasteful to efficient producers. It is largely the entrepreneurs who suffer from their own errors, errors incurred through their own voluntarily adopted risks. It is curious that the critics of cutthroat competition are generally the same as those who complain about the market's subversion of consumers' sovereignty. For selling a product at very low prices, even at short-term losses, is a bonanza to the consumers, and there is no reason why this gift to the consumers should be deplored. Furthermore, if the consumers were really indignant about this form of competition, they would scornfully refuse to accept this gift, and instead continue to patronize the allegedly victimized competitor.
When they do not do so, and instead rush to acquire the bargains, they are indicating their perfect contentment with this state of affairs. From the point of view of consumers' sovereignty or individual sovereignty, there is nothing at all wrong with cutthroat competition. The only conceivable problem is the one usually cited, that after the single firm has driven everyone else out of business through sustained selling at very low prices, then the final monopolist will restrict sales and raise its price to a monopoly price. Even granting for a moment the tenability of the monopoly price concept, this does not seem a very likely occurrence. In the first place, it is time enough to complain after the monopoly price is established, especially since we have seen that we cannot consider monopoly per se, definition one, as an evil. An amusing instance of this concern is this argument for compulsory legal cartelization by West German industrialists, that the so-called unrestricted competition would produce a catastrophe in which the stronger industries would destroy the weaker and establish themselves as monopolies. Create an inefficient monopoly now to avoid an efficient monopoly later. Secondly, a firm will not always be able to achieve a monopoly price. In all such cases, including a. where not all the other firms in the industry can be driven out, or b. where the demand is such that the monopolist cannot achieve a monopoly price, the cutthroat competition is then a pure boon with no harmful effects. Incidentally, it is by no means true that the large firms will always be the strongest in a price-cutting war. Often, depending on the concrete conditions, it is the smaller, more mobile firm, not burdened with heavy investments, that is able to cut its costs, particularly when its factors are more specific to it, such as the labor of its management, and outcompete the larger firm. In such cases, of course, there is no monopoly price problem whatever. The fact that the lowly pushcart peddler for centuries has been set upon by governmental violence at the behest of his more lordly and heavily capitalized competitors bears witness to the practical possibilities of such a situation. What of the allegedly vast financial power of a big firm rendering it impervious to cost in a brilliant article, Professor Wayne Lehman has pointed out that a larger firm will also have larger volume and will therefore suffer greater losses when selling below cost. Having a larger volume, it has more to lose. What is relevant, therefore, is not the absolute size of the financial resources of the competing firms, but the size of their resources in relation to their volume of sales and expenditures, and this changes the conventional picture drastically. Suppose, however, that after this lengthy and costly process, a firm has finally been able to achieve a monopoly price by the route of cutthroat competition. What is there to prevent this monopoly gain from attracting other entrepreneurs who will try to undercut the existing firm and achieve some of the gain for themselves? 
What is to prevent new firms from coming in and driving the price down to competitive levels again? Is the firm to resume cutthroat competition and the same deliberate losing process once more? In that case, we are likely to find that consumers of the good will be receiving gifts far more often than facing a monopoly price. After investigating conditions in the retail gasoline industry, one particularly subject to allegedly cutthroat competition, economist Harold Fleming declared, Some people think that leading marketers occasionally reduce prices to drive out competition so that they may later enjoy a monopoly. But as one oil man has put it, that is like trying to sweep back the ocean to get a dry place to sit down. Competitors never scare and never hesitate for long and would move in immediately when prices were restored, offering little opportunity to a single marketer to recoup his losses. Professor Lehman has pointed out that the smaller firm, driven out by cutthroat competition, may simply close down, wait for the larger firm to reap its expected gain of a higher monopoly price, and then reopen. More important, even if the small firm is driven into bankruptcy, its physical plant remains intact, and it may be bought by a new entrepreneur at bargain prices. As a result, the new firm will be able to produce at very low cost and damage the victor firm considerably. To avoid this threat, the big firm would have to delay raising its price for the very long time required for the small plant to wear out or become obsolete. Lehman also demonstrates that the big firm could not keep new small firms out by a mere threat of cutthroat competition. For, A, new firms will probably interpret the high price charged by the monopolist as a sign of inefficiency, providing a ripe opportunity for profits. And, B, the monopolist can demonstrate his power satisfactorily only by actually selling at low prices for long periods of time. Hence, only by keeping its costs down and its prices low, that is, by not extracting a monopoly price, can the victor firm keep out potential rivals. But this means that the cutthroat competition, far from being a route to a monopoly price, was a pure gift to consumers and a pure loss to the victor. A leading oil executive told Lehman, We have invested too much in plant and equipment in this area to want to invite in a host of competitors under an umbrella of high prices. But what of a standard problem brought forward by critics of cutthroat competition? Cannot the big firm check the entry of efficient small firms by simply buying up the new rival's plant and putting it out of production? Perhaps a short period of cutthroat price-cutting will convince the new small firm of the advantage of selling out and will permit the monopolist to avoid the long periods of losses just mentioned. No one seems to realize, however, the high costs such buying will entail. Lehman points out that the really efficient small firm can demand such a high price for its assets as to make the whole procedure prohibitively expensive. 
and further, any later attempt by the large firm to recoup its losses by charging the monopoly price will only invite new entry by other firms and redouble the expensive buying-out process again and again. Buying out competitors, then, will be even more costly than simple cutthroat competition, which we have seen to be unprofitable. Lehman points out in a striking refutation of one of the myths of our age that this is precisely what happened to John D. Rockefeller. According to a widely accepted view, he softened up small competitors in the oil business by a period of intensive price competition, bought them out for a song, and then raised prices to consumers to make up his losses. Actually, the softening-up process did not work, for Rockefeller usually ended up paying so handsomely that the sellers, often in violation of promises made, proceeded to build another plant for its nuisance value, hoping again to collect a reward from their benefactor. Rockefeller, after a time, got tired of paying blackmail and decided that the best way to hold the dominant position he wanted was to keep profit margins small all the time. Lehman concludes quite correctly that large rather than small firms dominate many markets not as a result of victorious cutthroat competition and monopolistic pricing, but by taking advantage of the low costs of much large-scale production and keeping prices low in fear of potential as well as actual rivals. A final argument against the doctrines of cutthroat competition is that it is impossible to determine whether it is taking place or not. The fact that a monopoly might ensue afterward does not even establish the motive, and is certainly no criterion of cutthroat procedures. One proposed criterion has been selling below costs, most cogently below what is usually termed variable costs, the expenses of using factors in production, assuming previously sunk investment in a fixed plant. But this is no criterion at all. As we have already declared, there is no such thing as costs, apart from speculation on a higher future price, once the stock has been produced. Costs take place along the path of decisions to produce, at each step along the way that investments of money and effort are made in factors. The allocations, the opportunities foregone, take place at each step as future production decisions must be taken and commitments made. Once the stock has been produced, however, and there is no expectation of a price rise, the sale is costless, since there are no advantages foregone by selling the product costs in making the sale being here considered negligible for purposes of simplification. Therefore, the stock will tend to be sold at whatever price is obtainable. There is no such thing, then, as selling below costs on stock already produced. 
The cutting of price may just as well be due to inability to dispose of stock at any higher price as to cutthroat competition, and it is impossible for an observer to separate the two elements. D. The illusion of monopoly price on the unhampered market. Up to this point, we have explained the neoclassical theory of monopoly price and have pointed out various misconceptions about its consequences. We have also shown that there is nothing bad about monopoly price and that it constitutes no infringement on any legitimate interpretation of individuals' sovereignty or even of consumers' sovereignty. Yet there has been a great deficiency in the economic literature on this whole issue, a failure to realize the illusion in the entire concept of monopoly price. If we turn to the definition of monopoly price, we find that there is assumed to be a competitive price to which a higher monopoly price, an outcome of restrictive action, is contrasted. Yet, if we analyze the matter closely, it becomes evident that the entire contrast is an illusion. In the market, there is no discernible, identifiable competitive price, and therefore there is no way of distinguishing, even conceptually, any given price as a monopoly price. The alleged competitive price can be identified neither by the producer himself nor by the disinterested observer. Let us take a firm which is considering the production of a certain good. The firm can be a monopolist in the sense of producing a unique good, or it can be an oligopolist among a few firms. Whatever its position, it is irrelevant. Because we are interested only in whether or not it can achieve a monopoly price as compared to a competitive price. This in turn depends on the elasticity of the demand as it is presented to the firm over a certain range. The producer must decide how much of the good to produce and sell in a future period, that is, at the time when this demand will become relevant. He will set his output at whatever point is expected to maximize his monetary earnings, other psychic factors being equal, taking into consideration the necessary monetary expenses of production for each quantity, that is, the amounts that can be produced for each amount of money invested. As an entrepreneur, he will attempt to maximize profits, as a labor owner to maximize his monetary income, as a landowner to maximize his monetary income from that factor. On the basis of this logic of action, the producer sets his investment to produce a certain stock, or as a factor owner to sell a certain amount of service. Assuming that he has correctly estimated his demand, the intersection of the two will establish the market equilibrium price. The critical question is this. Is the market price a competitive price or a monopoly price? The answer is that there is no way of knowing. Contrary to the assumptions of the theory, there is no competitive price which is clearly established somewhere and which we may compare it with. 
Neither does the elasticity of the demand establish any criterion. Even if all the difficulties of discovering and identifying the demand were waived, and this identifying can be done, of course, only by the producer himself, and only in a tentative fashion, we have seen that the price, if accurately estimated, will always be set by the seller so that the range above the market price will be elastic. How is anyone, including the producer himself, to know whether or not this market price is competitive or monopoly? Suppose that the producer decides that he will make more money if he produces less of the good in the next period. Is the higher price to be gained from such a cutback necessarily a monopoly price? Why could it not just as well be a movement from a sub-competitive price to a competitive price? In the real world, a demand is not simply given to a producer, but must be estimated and discovered. If a producer has produced too much in one period and, in order to earn more income, produces less in the next period, this is all that can be said about the action. For there is no criterion that will determine whether or not he is moving from a price below the alleged competitive price or moving above this price. Thus, we cannot use restriction of production as the test of monopoly versus competitive price. A movement from a sub-competitive to a competitive price also involves a restriction of production of this good, coupled, of course, with an expansion of production in other lines by the released factors. There is no way whatever to distinguish such a restriction and corollary expansion from the alleged monopoly price situation. If the restriction is accompanied by increased leisure for the owner of a labor factor rather than increased production of some other good on the market, it is still an expansion of the yield of a consumer's good. Leisure there is still no way of determining whether the restriction resulted in a monopoly or a competitive price, or to what extent the motive of increased leisure was involved. To define a monopoly price as a price attained by selling a smaller quantity of a product at a higher price is therefore meaningless, since the same definition applies to the competitive price as compared with a sub-competitive price. There is no way to define monopoly price because there is also no way of defining the competitive price to which the former must refer. Many writers have attempted to establish some criterion for distinguishing a monopoly price from a competitive price. Some call the monopoly price that price achieving permanent long-run monopoly profits for a firm. This is contrasted to the competitive price, at which, in the evenly rotating economy, profits disappear. Yet, as we have already seen, there are never permanent monopoly profits, but only monopoly gains to owners of land or labor factors. 
Money costs to the entrepreneur who must buy factors of production will tend to equal money revenues in the evenly rotating economy, whether the price is competitive or monopoly. The monopoly gains, however, are secured as income to labor or land factors. There is therefore never any identifiable element that could provide a criterion of the absence of monopoly gain. With a monopoly gain, the factor's income is greater. Without it, it is less. But where is the criterion for distinguishing this from a change in the income of a factor for legitimate demand and supply reasons? How to distinguish a monopoly gain from a simple increase in factor income? Another theory attempts to define a monopoly gain as income to a factor greater than that received by another similar factor. Thus, if Mickey Mantle receives a greater monetary income than another outfielder, that difference represents the monopoly gain resulting from his natural monopoly of unique ability. The crucial difficulty with this approach is that it implicitly adopts the old classical fallacy of treating all the various labor factors as well as all the various land factors as somehow homogeneous. If all the labor factors are somehow one good, then the variations in income accruing to each must be explained by reference to some sort of monopolistic or other mysterious element. Yet a good with a homogeneous supply is only a good if all its units are interchangeable, as we saw at the beginning of this work. But the very fact that Mantle and the other outfielder are treated differently in the market signifies that they are selling different, not the same goods. Just as in tangible commodities, so in personal labor services, whether sold to other producers or to consumers directly, each seller may be selling a unique good. And yet he is competing with more or less close substitutability against all the other sellers for the purchases of consumers or lower order producers. But since each good or service is unique, we cannot state that the difference between the prices of any two represents any sort of monopoly price. Monopoly price vis-à-vis -vis competitive price can refer only to alternative prices of the same good. Mickey Mantle may indeed be a person of unique ability and a monopolist, as is everyone else, over the disposition of his own talents, but whether or not he is achieving a monopoly price, and therefore a monopoly gain from his service, can never be determined. This analysis is equally applicable to land. It is just as illegitimate to dub the difference between the income of the site of the Empire State Building and that of a rural general store a monopoly gain as to apply the same concept to the additional income of Mickey Mantle. The fact that both areas are land makes them no more homogeneous on the market than the fact that Mickey Mantle and Joe Dokes are both baseball players, or, in a broader category, both laborers. 
The fact that each is remunerated at a different price and income signifies that they are considered different on the market. To treat differential gains for different goods as instances of monopoly gain is to render the term completely devoid of significance. Neither is the attempt to establish the existence of idle resources as a criterion of monopolistic withholding of factors any more valid. Idle labor resources will always mean increased leisure, and therefore the leisure motive will always be intertwined with any alleged monopolistic motive. It therefore becomes impossible to separate them. The existence of idle land may always be due to the fact of the relative scarcity of labor as compared with available land. This relative scarcity makes it more serviceable to consumers, and hence more remunerative to invest labor in certain areas of land and not in others. The land areas least productive of potential earnings will be forced to lie idle the amount depending on how much labor supply is available. We must stress that all land, that is, every nature-given resource, is involved here, including urban sites and natural resources as well as agricultural areas. The allocation of labor to land is comparable to Crusoe's having to decide on which plot of ground to build his shelter, or in which stream to fish. Because of the natural, as well as voluntary, limitations on his labor effort, that area of land on which he produces the highest utility will be cultivated, and the rest will be left idle. This element also cannot be separated from any alleged monopolistic element. For if someone objects that the withheld land is of the same quality as the land in use, and therefore that monopolistic restriction is afoot, it may always be answered that the two pieces of land necessarily differ, in location if in no other attribute, and that the very fact that the two are treated differently on the market tends to confirm this difference. By what mystical criterion, then, does some outsider assert that the two lands are economically identical? In the case of capital goods, it is also true that the limitations of available labor supply will often make idle those goods which are expected to yield a lesser return, as compared with other capital that can be employed by labor. The difference here is that idle capital goods are always the result of previous error by producers, since no such idleness would be necessary if the present events, demands, prices, supplies, had all been forecast correctly by all the producers. But though error is always unfortunate, the keeping idle of unremunerative capital is the best course to follow. It is making the best of the existing situation, not of the situation that would have obtained if foresight had been perfect. In the evenly rotating economy, of course, there would never be idle capital goods. There would be only idle land and idle labor, to the extent that leisure is voluntarily preferred to money income. 
in no case is it possible to establish an identification of purely monopolistic withholding action. A similar proposed criterion for distinguishing a monopoly price from a competitive price runs as follows. In the competitive case, the marginal factor produces no rent. In the monopoly price case, however, use of the monopolized factor is restricted so that its marginal use does yield a rent. We may answer in the first place that there is no reason to say that every factor will, in the competitive case, always be worked until it yields no rent. On the contrary, every factor is worked in a region of diminishing but positive marginal product, not zero product. Indeed, as we have shown, if the value product of a unit of a factor is zero, it will not be used at all. Every unit of a factor is used because it yields a value product. Otherwise, it would not be used in production. And if it yields a value product, it will earn its discounted value product in income. It is clear further that this criterion could never be applied to a monopolized labor factor. What labor factor earns a zero wage in a competitive market? Yet many monopolized, definition one, factors are labor factors, such as brand names, unique services, decision-making ability in business, etc. Land is more abundant than labor, and therefore some lands will be idle and receive zero rent. Even here, however, it is only the sub-marginal lands that receive no rent. The marginal lands in use receive some rent, however small. Furthermore, even if it were true that marginal lands received zero rent, this would be irrelevant for our discussion. It would apply only to poorer or inferior as compared with more productive lands. But a criterion of monopoly or competitive price must apply not to factors of different quality, but to homogeneous factors. The monopoly price problem is one of a supply of units of one homogeneous factor, not of various different factors within the one broad category, land. In this case, as we have stated, every factor will earn some value product in a diminishing zone, and not zero. In the case of depletable natural resources, any allocation of use necessarily involves the use of some of the resource in the present, even considering the resource as homogeneous, and the withholding of the remainder for allocation to future use. But there is no way of conceptually distinguishing such withholding from monopolistic withholding, and therefore of discussing a monopoly price. Since in the competitive case, all factors in use will earn some rent, there is still no basis for distinguishing a competitive from a monopoly price. Another very common attempt to distinguish between a competitive and a monopoly price rests on the alleged ideal of marginal cost pricing. 
failure to set prices equal to marginal cost is considered an example of monopoly behavior. There are several fatal errors in this analysis. In the first place, as we shall see further, there can be no such thing as pure competition, that hypothetical state in which the demand for the output of a firm is infinitely elastic. Only in this never-never land does price equal marginal cost in equilibrium. Otherwise, marginal cost equals marginal revenue in the ERE, that is, the revenue that a given increment of cost will yield to the firm. Only if the demand were perfectly elastic would marginal revenue boil down to average revenue or price. There is now no way of distinguishing competitive from monopolistic situations, since marginal cost will, in all cases, tend to equal marginal revenue. Secondly, this equality is only a tendency that results from competition. It is not a precondition of competition. It is a property of the equilibrium of the ERE that the market economy always tends toward but never can reach. To uphold it as a welfare ideal for the real world, an ideal with which to gauge existing conditions, as so many economists have done, is to misconceive completely the nature of the market and of economics itself. Thirdly, there is no reason why firms should ever deliberately balk at being guided by marginal cost considerations. Their aiming at maximum net revenue will see to that. But there is no one simple determinate marginal cost, because, as we have seen, there is no one identifiable short-run period, such as is assumed by current theory. The firm faces a gamut of variable periods of time for the investment and use of factors, and its pricing and output decisions depend on the future period of time which it is considering. Is it buying a new machine, or is it selling old output piled up in inventory? The marginal cost considerations will differ in the two cases. It is clear that it is impossible to distinguish competitive or monopolistic behavior on the part of a firm. It is no more possible to speak of monopoly price in the case of a cartel. In the first place, a cartel, when it sets the amount of its production in advance for the next period, is in exactly the same position as the single firm. It sets the amount of its production at that point which it believes will maximize its monetary earnings. There is still no way of distinguishing a monopoly from a competitive or a sub-competitive price. Furthermore, we have seen that there is no essential difference between a cartel and a merger, or between a merger of producers with money assets and a merger of producers with previously existing capital assets to form a partnership or corporation. As a result of the tradition, still in evidence in the literature, of identifying a firm with a single individual entrepreneur or producer, we tend to overlook the fact that most existing firms are constituted through the voluntary merging of monetary assets. 
To pursue the similarity further, suppose that firm A wishes to expand its production. Is there an essential difference between its buying new land and building a new plant, and its purchasing an old plant owned by another firm? Yet the latter case, if the plant constitutes all the assets of firm B, will involve, in fact, a merger of the two firms. The degree of merger or the degree of independence in the various parts of the productive system will depend entirely upon the most remunerative method for the producers concerned. This will also be the method most serviceable to the consumers, and there is no way of distinguishing between a cartel, a merger, and one larger firm. It might be objected at this point that there are many useful, indeed indispensable, theoretical concepts which cannot be practically isolated in their pure form in the real world. Thus, the interest rate, in practice, is not strictly separable from profits, and the various components of the interest rate are not separable in practice, but they can be separated in analysis. But these concepts are each definable in terms independent of one another, and of the complex reality being investigated. Thus, the pure interest rate may never exist in practice, but the market interest rate is theoretically analyzable into its components. Pure interest rate, price expectation component, risk component. They are so analyzable because each of these components is definable independently of the complex market interest rate and, moreover, is independently deducible from the axioms of praxeology. The existence and determination of the pure interest rate is strictly deducible from the principles of human action, time preference, etc., each of these components, then, is arrived at a priori in relation to the concrete market interest rate itself and is deduced from previously established truths about human action. In all such cases, the components are definable through independently established theoretical criteria. In this case, however, there is, as we have seen, no independent way by which we can define and distinguish a monopoly price from a competitive price. There is no prior rule available to guide us in framing the distinction. To say that the monopoly price is formed when the configuration of demand is inelastic above the competitive price tells us nothing, because we have no way of independently defining the competitive price. To reiterate, the seemingly unidentifiable elements in other areas of economic theory are independently deducible from the axioms of human action. Time preference, uncertainty, changes in purchasing power, etc., can all be independently established by prior reasoning and their interrelations analyzed through the method of mental constructions. The evenly rotating economy can be seen as the ever-moving goal of the market through our analysis of the direction of action. 
But here, all that we know from prior analysis of human action is that individuals cooperate on the market to sell and purchase factors, transform them into products, and expect to sell the products to others, eventually to final consumers, and that the factors are sold and entrepreneurs undertake the production in order to obtain monetary income from the sale of their product. How much any given person will produce of any given good or service is determined by his expectations of greatest monetary income, other psychic considerations being equal. But nowhere in the analysis of such action is it possible to separate conceptually an alleged restrictive from a non-restrictive act and nowhere is it possible to define competitive price in any way that would differ from the free market price. Similarly, there is no way of conceptually distinguishing monopoly price from free market price. But if a concept has no possible grounding in reality, then it is an empty and illusory and not a meaningful concept. On the free market, there is no way of distinguishing a monopoly price from a competitive price or a subcompetitive price, or of establishing any changes as movements from one to the other. No criteria can be found for making such distinctions. The concept of monopoly price as distinguished from competitive price is therefore untenable. We can speak only of the free market price. Thus we conclude not only that there is nothing wrong with monopoly price, but also that the entire concept is meaningless. There is a great deal of monopoly in the sense of a single owner of a unique commodity or service, definition one, but we have seen that this is an inappropriate term, and further that it has no catalactic significance. A monopoly would be of importance only if it led to a monopoly price, and we have seen that there is no such thing as a monopoly price or a competitive price on the market. There is only the free market price. E. Some Problems in the Theory of the Illusion of Monopoly Price 1. Location Monopoly it might be objected that in the case of location monopoly, a monopoly price can be distinguished from a competitive price on a free market. Let us consider the case of cement. There are cement consumers, say, who live in Rochester. A cement firm in Rochester could competitively charge a mill price of X gold grams per ton, the nearest competitor is stationed in Albany, and freight costs from Albany to Rochester are three gold grams per ton. The Rochester firm is then able to increase its price to obtain X plus two gold grams per ton from Rochester consumers. Does its locational advantage not confer upon it a monopoly, and is not this higher price a monopoly price? First, as we have seen, the good that we must consider is the good in the hands of the consumers. The Rochester firm is superior locationally for the Rochester market. 
The fact that the Albany firm cannot compete is not to be blamed on the Rochester firm. Location is also a factor of production. Furthermore, another firm could, if it wished, set itself up in Rochester to compete. Let us, however, be generous to the location monopoly theorists and grant that, in a sense, definition one, this monopoly is enjoyed by all individual sellers of any good or service. This is due to the eternal law of human action, and indeed of all matter, that only one thing can be in one place at one time. The retail grocer on Fifth Street enjoys a monopoly of the sale of groceries for that street. The grocer on Fourth Street enjoys a monopoly of grocery service for his street, etc. In the case of stores which all cluster together in the same block, say radio stores, there are still a few feet of sidewalk over which each owner of a radio store exercises a location monopoly. Location is as specific to a firm or plant as ability is to a person. Whether this element of location takes on any importance in the market depends on the configuration of consumer demand and on which policy is most profitable for each seller in the concrete case. In some cases, a grocer, for example, can charge higher prices for his goods than another because of his monopoly of the block. In that case, his monopoly over the good eggs available on Fifth Street has taken on such a significance for the consumers in his block that he can charge them a higher price than the Fourth Street grocer and still retain their patronage. In other cases, he cannot do so, because the bulk of his customers will desert him for the neighboring grocer if the latter's prices are lower. Now, a good is homogeneous if consumers evaluate its units in the same way. If that condition holds, its units will be sold for a uniform price on the market, or rapidly tend to be sold at a uniform price. If now various grocers must adhere to a uniform price, then there is no location monopoly. But what of the case where the Fifth Street grocer can charge a higher price than his competitor? Do we not have here a clear case of an identifiable monopoly price? Can we not say that the Fifth Street grocer who can charge more than his competitor for the same goods has found that the demand for his products is inelastic for a certain range above the competitive price, the competitive price being taken as that equal to the price charged by his neighbor? Can we not say this even though we recognize that there is no infringement on consumers' sovereignty in this action, since it is due to the specific tastes of his consuming customers? The answer is an emphatic no. The reason is that the economist can never equate a good with some physical substance. A good, we remember, is a quantity of a thing divisible into a supply of homogeneous units, and this homogeneity, we repeat, must be in the minds of the consuming public, not in its physical composition. 
If a malted milk consumed at a luncheonette is the same good in the minds of consumers as the malted at a fashionable restaurant, then the price of the malted will be the same in both places. On the other hand, we have seen that the consumer buys not only the physical good, but all attributes of a thing, including its name, the wrappings, and the atmosphere in which it is consumed. If most of the consumers differentiate sufficiently between food consumed in the restaurant and food consumed at the luncheonette, so that a higher price can be charged in one case than in the other, then the food is a different good in each case. A malted consumed in the restaurant becomes, for a significant body of consumers, a different good from a malted consumed at the luncheonette. The same situation obtains for brand names, even in those situations where a minority of the consumers do regard several brands as actually the same good. As long as the bulk of the consumers regard them as different goods, then they are different goods, and their prices will differ. Similarly, goods may differ physically, but as long as they are regarded by consumers as the same, they are the same good. The same analysis applies to the case of location, where the Fifth Street consumers regard groceries at Fifth Street as a significantly better good than groceries at Fourth Street so that they are willing to pay more rather than walk the extra distance, then the two will become different goods. In the case of location, there will always be a tendency for the two to be different goods, but very often this will not be significant on the market. For a consumer may and almost always will prefer groceries available on this block to groceries available on the next block, but often this preference will not be enough to overcome any higher price for the former goods. If the bulk of the consumers shift to the latter good at a higher price, the two on the market will be the same good. And it is action on the market, real action, that we are interested in, not the non-significant pure valuations by themselves. In praxeology, we are interested only in preferences that result in, and are therefore demonstrated by, real choices, not in the preferences themselves. A good cannot be independently established as such apart from consumer preference on the market. Groceries on 5th Street may be higher in price than groceries on 4th Street to the 5th Street consumers. If so, it will be because the former is a different good to the consumers. In the same way, Rochester cement may cost more than Albany cement in Albany to Rochester consumers, but the two are different goods by virtue of their difference in location. And there is no way of determining whether or not the price in Rochester or on 5th Street is a monopoly price or a competitive price, or of determining what the competitive price might be. It certainly could not be the price charged by the other firm elsewhere, since these prices are really for two different goods. 
there is no theoretical criterion by which we can distinguish simple locational income to sites from alleged monopoly income to sites. There is another reason for abandoning any theory of locational monopoly price. If all sites are purely specific in locational value, there is no sense to the statement that they earn a monopoly rent. For monopoly price, according to the theory, can be established only by selling less of a good and thus commanding a higher price. But all locational properties of a site differ in quality because they differ in location, and therefore there can be no restriction of sales to part of a site. Either a site is in production or it is idle. But the idle sites necessarily differ in location from the sites in use, and are therefore idle because their value productivity is inferior. They are idle because they are submarginal, not because they are monopolistically withheld parts of a certain homogeneous supply. The locational monopoly price theorist, then, is refuted whichever way he turns. If he takes a limited view of locational monopoly in the sense of definition one and confines it to such examples as Rochester versus Albany, he can never establish a criterion for monopoly price, for another firm can enter Rochester, either actually or potentially, to bid away any locational profit that the first firm may earn. His prices cannot be compared with those of his competitors because they are selling different goods. If the theorist takes an extensive view of locational monopoly, which would take into consideration the fact that every location necessarily differs from every other, and compares locations a few feet apart, then there is no sense at all in talking of monopoly price. For A, the price of a product at one location cannot be precisely compared with another because they are different goods. And B, each site is different in locational quality, and therefore no site can be conceptually split up into different homogeneous units, some to be sold and some to be withheld from the market. Each site is a unit in itself, but such a splitting is essential for the establishment of a monopoly price theory. 2. Natural Monopoly A favorite target of the critics of monopoly is the so-called natural monopoly, or public utility, where competition is naturally not feasible. A typically cited case is the water supply of a city. It is supposed to be technologically feasible for only one water company to exist for serving a city. No other firms are therefore able to compete, and special interference is alleged to be necessary to curb monopoly pricing by this utility. In the first place, such a limited space monopoly is just one case in which only one firm in a field is profitable. 
How many firms will be profitable in any line of production is an institutional question and depends on such concrete data as the degree of consumer demand, the type of product sold, the physical productivity of the processes, the supply and pricing of factors, the forecasting of entrepreneurs, etc., Spatial limitations may be unimportant, as in the case of the grocers. The spatial limits may allow only the narrowest of monopolies, the monopoly over the portion of sidewalk owned by the seller. On the other hand, conditions may be such that only one firm may be feasible in the industry. But we have seen that this is irrelevant. Monopoly is a meaningless appellation unless monopoly price is achieved. And once again, there is no way of determining whether the price charged for the good is a monopoly price or not. And this applies to all circumstances, including a nationwide telephone firm, a local water company, or an outstanding baseball player. All these persons or firms will be monopolies within their industry, and in all these cases the dichotomy between monopoly price and competitive price is still an illusory one. Furthermore, there are no rational grounds by which we can preserve a separate sphere for public utilities and subject them to special harassment. A public utility industry does not differ conceptually from any other, and there is no non-arbitrary method by which we can designate certain industries to be clothed in the public interest while others are not. In no case, therefore, on the free market can a monopoly price be conceptually distinguished from a competitive price. All prices on the free market are competitive. As Mises writes, prices are a market phenomenon. They are the resultant of a certain constellation of market data, of actions and reactions of the members of a market society. It is vain to meditate what prices would have been if some of their determinants had been different. It is no less vain to ponder on what prices ought to be. Everybody is pleased if the prices of things he wants to buy drop and the prices of the things he wants to sell rise. Any price determined on a market is the necessary outgrowth of the interplay of the forces operating, that is, demand and supply. Whatever the market situation which generated this price may be, with regard to it, the price is always adequate, genuine, and real. It cannot be higher if no bidder ready to offer a higher price turns up, and it cannot be lower if no seller ready to deliver at a lower price turns up. Only the appearance of such people ready to buy or sell can alter prices. Economics does not develop formulas which would enable anybody to compute a correct price different from that established on the market by the interaction of buyers and sellers. This refers also to monopoly prices. No alleged fact-finding and no armchair speculation can discover another price at which demand and supply would become equal. 
the failure of all experiments to find a satisfactory solution for the limited space monopoly of public utilities clearly proves this truth. 4. Labor Unions A. Restrictionist Pricing of Labor it might be asserted that labor unions, in exacting higher wage rates on the free market, are achieving identifiable monopoly prices. For here, two identifiable contrasting situations exist. A. Where individuals sell their labor themselves, and B. Where they are members of labor unions, which bargain on their labor for them. Furthermore, it is clear that while cartels, to be successful, must be economically more efficient in serving the consumer, no such justification can be found for unions, since it is always the individual laborer who works, and since efficiency in organization comes from management hired for the task, forming unions never improves the productivity of an individual's work. It is true that a union provides an identifiable situation. However, it is not true that a union wage rate could ever be called a monopoly price. For the characteristic of the monopolist is precisely that he monopolizes a factor or commodity. To obtain a monopoly price, he sells only part of his supply and withholds selling the other part because selling a lower quantity raises the price on an inelastic demand. It is the unique characteristic of labor in a free society, however, that it cannot be monopolized. Each individual is a self-owner and cannot be owned by another individual or group. Therefore, in the labor field, no one man or group can own the total supply and withhold part of it from the market. Each man owns himself. Let us call the total supply of a monopolist's product P. When he withholds W units in order to obtain a monopoly for P minus W, the increased revenue he obtains from P minus W must more than compensate him for the loss of revenue he suffers from not selling W. A monopolist's action is always limited by loss of revenue from the withheld supply. But in the case of labor unions, this limitation does not apply. Since each man owns himself, the withheld suppliers are different people from the ones getting the increased income. If a union, in one way or another, achieves a higher price than its members could command by individual sales, its action is not checked by the loss of revenue suffered by the withheld laborers. If a union achieves a higher wage, some laborers are earning a higher price, while others are excluded from the market and lose the revenue they would have obtained. Such a higher price, wage, is called a restrictionist price. A restrictionist price, by any sensible criterion, is worse than a monopoly price, since the restrictionist union does not have to worry about the laborers who are excluded and suffers no revenue loss from such exclusion, restrictionist action is not curbed by the elasticity of the demand for labor. 
for unions need only maximize the net income of the working members, or, indeed, of the union bureaucracy itself. A restrictionist rather than a monopoly price can be achieved because the number of laborers is so important in relation to the possible variation in hours of work by an individual laborer that the latter can be ignored here. If, however, the total labor supply is limited originally to a few people, then an imposed higher wage rate will cut down the number of hours purchased from the workers who remain working, perhaps so much as to render a restrictionist price unprofitable to them. In such a case, it would be more appropriate to speak of a monopoly price. How may a union achieve a restrictionist price? What unions do, in fact, is to insist upon a certain wage rate as a minimum, below which they will not work in that industry. The union has thus achieved a restrictionist wage rate. But a sacrifice has been made. Specifically, there are now fewer workers hired. What happens to them? These discharged workers are the main losers in this procedure, since the union represents the remaining workers, it does not have to concern itself, as the monopolist would, with the fate of these workers. At best, they must shift, being a non-specific factor they can do so, to some other non-unionized industry. The trouble is, however, that the workers are less suited to the new industry. Their having been in the now unionized industry implies that their DMVP in that industry was higher than in the industry to which they must shift. Consequently, their wage rate is now lower. Moreover, their entry into the other industry depresses the wage rates of the workers already there. Consequently, at best, a union can achieve a higher restrictionist wage rate for its members only at the expense of lowering the wage rates of all other workers in the economy. Production efforts in the economy are also distorted. But in addition, the wider the scope of union activity and restrictionism in the economy, the more difficult it will be for workers to shift their locations and occupations to find non-unionized havens in which to work. And more and more the tendency will be for the displaced workers to remain permanently or quasi-permanently unemployed eager to work but unable to find non-restricted opportunities for employment. The greater the scope of unionism, the more a permanent mass of unemployment will tend to develop. Unions try as hard as they can to plug all the loopholes of non-unionism, to close all the escape hatches where the dispossessed workmen can find jobs. This is termed ending the unfair competition of non-union, low-wage labor. A universal union control and restrictionism would mean permanent mass unemployment, growing ever greater in proportion to the degree that the union exacted its restrictions. It is a common myth that only the old-style craft unions, which deliberately restrict their occupational group to highly skilled trades with relatively few numbers, can restrict the supply of labor. 
They often maintain stringent standards of membership and numerous devices to cut down the supply of labor entering the trade. This direct restriction of supply doubtless makes it easier to obtain higher wage rates for the remaining workers. But it is highly misleading to believe that the newer-style industrial unions do not restrict supply. The fact that they welcome as many members in an industry as possible cloaks their restrictionist policy. The crucial point is that the unions insist on a minimum wage rate higher than what would be achieved for the given labor factor without the union. By doing so, they necessarily cut the number of men whom the employer can hire. Ergo, the consequence of their policy is to restrict the supply of labor, while at the same time they can piously maintain that they are inclusive and democratic, in contrast to the snobbish aristocrats of craft unionism. In fact, the consequences of industrial unionism are more devastating than those of craft unionism. For the craft unions, being small in scope, displace and lower the wages of only a few workers. The industrial unions, larger and more inclusive, depress wages and displace workers on a large scale, and what is even more important, can cause permanent mass unemployment. There is another reason why an openly restrictionist union will cause less unemployment than a more liberal one. For the union which restricts its membership serves open warning on workers hoping to enter the industry that they are barred from joining the union. As a result, they will swiftly look elsewhere, where jobs can be found. Suppose the union is democratic, however, and open to all. An open union does not have the one virtue of the closed union, rapid repulsion of the displaced workers from the unionized industry. Instead, it attracts even more workers into the industry, thus aggravating and swelling the amount of unemployment. With market signals distorted, it will take a much longer time for workers to realize that no jobs are available in the industry. The larger the scope of open unions in the economy, and the greater the differential between their restrictionist wage rates and the market wage rates, the more dangerous will the unemployment problem become. The unemployment and the misemployment of labor caused by restrictionist wage rates need not always be directly visible. Thus, an industry might be particularly profitable and prosperous either as a result of a rise in consumer demand for the product or from a cost-lowering innovation in the productive process. In the absence of unions, the industry would expand and hire more workers in response to the new market conditions. But if a union imposes a restrictionist wage rate, it may not cause the unemployment of any current workers in the industry. It may instead simply prevent the industry from expanding in response to the requirements of consumer demand and the conditions of the market. Here, in short, the union destroys potential jobs in the making and imposes a misallocation of production by preventing expansion. 
It is true that without the union, the industry will bid up wage rates in the process of expansion. But if unions impose a higher wage rate at the beginning, the expansion will not occur. Some opponents of unionism go to the extreme of maintaining that unions can never be free market phenomena and are always monopolistic or coercive institutions. Although this might be true in actual practice, it is not necessarily true. It is very possible that labor unions might arise on the free market and even gain restrictionist wage rates. How can unions achieve restrictionist wage rates on the free market? The answer can be found by considering the displaced workers. The key problem is, why do the workers let themselves be displaced by the union's minimum? Since they were willing to work for less before, why do they now meekly agree to being fired and looking for a poorer paying job? Why do some remain content to continue in a quasi-permanent pocket of unemployment in an industry, waiting to be hired at the excessively high rate? The only answer, in the absence of coercion, is that they have adopted, on a commandingly high place on their value scales, the goal of not undercutting union wage rates. Unions, naturally, are most anxious to persuade workers, both union and non-union, as well as the general public, to believe strongly in the sinfulness of undercutting union wage rates. This is shown most clearly in those situations where union members refuse to continue working for a firm at a wage rate below a certain minimum, or on other terms of employment. This situation is known as a strike. The most curious thing about a strike is that the unions have been able to spread the belief throughout society that the striking members are still really working for the company, even when they are deliberately and proudly refusing to do so. The natural answer of the employer, of course, is to turn somewhere else and to hire laborers who are willing to work on the terms offered. Yet unions have been remarkably successful in spreading the idea through society that anyone who accepts such an offer, the strike-breaker, is the lowest form of human life. To the extent, then, that non-union workers feel ashamed or guilty about strike-breaking or other forms of undercutting union-proclaimed wage scales, the displaced or unemployed workers agree to their own fate. These workers, in effect, are being displaced to poorer and less satisfying jobs voluntarily and remain unemployed for long stretches of time voluntarily. It is voluntary because that is the consequence of their voluntary acceptance of the mystique of not crossing the picket line or of not being a strike-breaker. The economist qua economist can have no quarrel with a man who voluntarily comes to the conclusion that it is more important to preserve union solidarity than to have a good job. But there is one thing an economist can do. He can point out to the worker the consequences of his voluntary decision. 
There are undoubtedly countless numbers of workers who do not realize that their refusal to cross a picket line, their sticking to the union, may result in their losing their jobs and remaining unemployed. They do not realize this because to do so requires knowledge of a chain of praxeological reasoning, such as we have been following here. The consumer who purchases directly enjoyable services does not have to be enlightened by economists. He needs no lengthy chain of reasoning to know that his clothing or car or food is enjoyable or serviceable. He can see each perform its service before his eyes. Similarly, the capitalist entrepreneur does not need the economist to tell him what acts will be profitable or unprofitable. He can see and test them by means of his profits or losses. But for a grasp of the consequences of acts of governmental intervention in the market, or of union activity, knowledge of praxeology is requisite. Economics cannot itself decide on ethical judgments. But in order for anyone to make ethical judgments rationally, he must know the consequences of his various alternative courses of action. In questions of government intervention or union action, economics supplies the knowledge of these consequences. Knowledge of economics is therefore necessary, though not sufficient, for making a rational ethical judgment in these fields. As for unions, the consequences of their activity, when discovered, for example, displacement or unemployment for oneself or others, will be considered unfortunate by most people. Therefore, it is certain that when knowledge of these consequences becomes widespread, far fewer people will be pro-union or hostile to non-union competitors. Such conclusions will be reinforced when people learn of another consequence of trade union activity, that a restrictionist wage raises costs of production for the firms in the industry. This means that the marginal firms in the industry, the ones whose entrepreneurs earn only a bare rent, will be driven out of business, for their costs have risen above their most profitable price on the market the price that had already been attained. Their ejection from the market and the general rise of average costs in the industry signify a general fall in productivity and output, and hence a loss to the consumers. Displacement and unemployment, of course, also impair the general standard of living of the consumers. Unions have had other important economic consequences. Unions are not producing organizations. They do not work for capitalists to improve production. Rather, they attempt to persuade workers that they can better their lot at the expense of the employer. Consequently, they invariably attempt as much as possible to establish work rules that hinder management's directives. These work rules amount to preventing management from arranging workers and equipment as it sees fit. In other words, instead of agreeing to submit to the work orders of management in exchange for his pay, the worker now sets up not only minimum wages, but also work rules, without which he refuses to work. 
The effect of these rules is to lower the marginal productivity of all union workers. The lowering of marginal value product schedules has a twofold result. One, it itself establishes a restrictionist wage scale with its various consequences, for the marginal value product has fallen while the union insists that the wage rate remain the same. Two, consumers lose by a general lowering of productivity and living standards. Restrictive work rules therefore also lower output. All this is perfectly consistent with a society of individual sovereignty, however, provided always that no force is employed by the union. To advocate coercive abolition of these work rules would imply literal enslavement of the workers to the dictates of catalactic consumers. But once again, it is certain that knowledge of these various consequences of union activity would greatly weaken the voluntary adherence of many workers and others to the mystique of unionism. We can deal here only with the directly catalactic consequences of labor unionism. Unionism also has other consequences which many might consider even more deplorable, Prominent is the fusing of the able and the incompetent into one group. Seniority rules, for example, are invariable favorites of unions. They set restrictively high wages for less able workers and also lower the productivity of all. But they also reduce the wages of the more able workers, those who must be chained to the stultifying march of seniority for their jobs and promotions. Seniority also decreases the mobility of workers and creates a kind of industrial serfdom by establishing vested rights in jobs according to the length of time the employees have worked. Unions, therefore, are theoretically compatible with the existence of a purely free market. In actual fact, however, it is evident to any competent observer that unions acquire almost all their power through the wielding of force, specifically force against strikebreakers and against the property of employers. An implicit license to unions to commit violence against strikebreakers is practically universal. Police commonly either remain neutral when strikebreakers are molested or else blame the strikebreakers for provoking the attacks upon them. Certainly few pretend that the institution of mass picketing by unions is simply a method of advertising the fact of a strike to anyone passing by. These matters, however, are empirical rather than theoretical questions. Theoretically, we may say that it is possible to have unions on a free market, although empirically we may question how great their scope would be. Analytically, we can also say that when unions are permitted to resort to violence, the state or other enforcing agency has implicitly delegated this power to the unions. The unions, then, have become private states. We have in this section investigated the consequences of unions achieving restrictionist prices. This is not to imply, however, that unions always achieve such prices in collective bargaining. 
Indeed, because unions do not own workers and therefore do not sell their labor, the collective bargaining of unions is an artificial replacement for the smooth workings of individual bargaining on the labor market. Whereas wage rates on the non-union labor market will always tend toward equilibrium in a smooth and harmonious manner, its replacement by collective bargaining leaves the negotiators with little or no rudder, with little guidance on what the proper wage rates would be. Even with both sides trying to find the market rate, neither of the parties to the bargain could be sure that a given wage agreement is too high, too low, or approximately correct. Almost invariably, furthermore, the union is not trying to discover the market rate, but to impose various arbitrary principles of wage determination, such as keeping up with the cost of living, a living wage, the going rate for comparable labor in other firms or industries, an annual average productivity increase, fair differentials, etc. B. Some Arguments for Unions. A Critique. 1. Indeterminacy. A favorite reply of union advocates to the above analysis is this. Oh, that is all very well, but you are overlooking the indeterminacy of wage rates. Wage rates are determined by marginal productivity in a zone rather than at a point, and within that zone unions have an opportunity to bargain collectively for increased wages without the admittedly unpleasant effects of unemployment or displacement of workers to poorer jobs. It is curious that many writers move smoothly through rigorous price analysis until they come to wage rates, when suddenly they lay heavy stress on indeterminacy, the huge zones within which the price makes no difference, etc. In the first place, the scope of indeterminacy is very small in the modern world. We have seen that in a two-person barter situation, there is likely to be a large zone of indeterminacy between the buyer's maximum demand price and the seller's minimum supply price for a quantity of a good. Within this zone, we can only leave the determination of the price to bargaining. However, it is precisely the characteristic of an advanced monetary economy that these zones are ever and ever narrowed and lose their importance. The zone is only between the marginal pairs of buyers and sellers, and this zone is constantly dwindling as the number of people and alternatives in the market increase. Growing civilization, therefore, is always narrowing the importance of indeterminacies. Secondly, there is no reason whatever why a zone of indeterminacy should be more important for the labor market than for the market for the price of any other good. Thirdly, suppose that there is a zone of indeterminacy for a labor market, and let us assume that no union is present. This means that there is a certain zone, the length of which can be said to equal a zone of the discounted marginal value product of the factor. 
This, parenthetically, is far less likely than the existence of a zone for a consumer's good, since in the former case there is a specific amount, a DMVP, to be estimated. But the maximum of the supposed zone is the highest point at which the wage equals the DMVP. Now competition among employers will tend to raise factor prices to precisely that height at which profits will be wiped out. In other words, wages will tend to be raised to the maximum of any zone of the DMVP. Rather than wages being habitually at the bottom of a zone, presenting unions with a golden opportunity to raise wages to the top, the truth is quite the reverse. Assuming the highly unlikely case that any zone exists at all, wages will tend to be at the top, so that the only remaining indeterminacy is downward. Unions would have no room for increasing wages within that zone. 2. Monopsony and Oligopsony it is often alleged that the buyers of labor, the employers, have some sort of monopoly and earn a monopoly gain, and that therefore there is room for unions to raise wage rates without injuring other laborers. However, such a monopsony for the purchase of labor would have to encompass all the entrepreneurs in the society. If it did not, then labor, a non-specific factor, could move into other firms and other industries. And we have seen that one big cartel cannot exist on the market. Therefore, a monopsony cannot exist. The problem of oligopsony, a few buyers of labor, is a pseudo-problem. As long as there is no monopsony, competing employers will tend to drive up wage rates until they equal their DMVPs. The number of competitors is irrelevant. This depends on the concrete data of the market. Later, we shall see the fallacy of the idea of monopolistic or imperfect competition, of which this is an example. Briefly, the case of oligopsony rests on a distinction between the case of pure or perfect competition, in which there is an allegedly infinitely elastic supply of labor, and the supposedly less elastic supply of the imperfect oligopsony. Actually, since people do not move en masse and all at once, the supply is never infinitely elastic, and the distinction has no relevance. There is only free competition, and no other dichotomies, such as between pure competition and oligopsony, can be established. The truth is that labor or any other factor tends to get its DMVP on the market. 3. Greater Efficiency and the Ricardo Effect One common pro-union argument is that unions benefit the economy through forcing higher wages on the employers. At these higher wages, the workers will become more efficient, and their marginal productivity will rise as a result. If this were true, however, no unions would be needed. 
Employers, ever eager for greater profits, would see this and pay higher wages now to reap the benefits of the allegedly higher productivity in the future. As a matter of fact, employers often train workers, paying higher wages than their present marginal product justifies in order to reap the benefits of their increased productivity in later years. A more sophisticated variant of this thesis was advanced by Ricardo and has been revived by Hayek. This doctrine holds that union-induced higher wage rates encourage employers to substitute machinery for labor. This added machinery increases the capital per worker and raises the marginal productivity of labor, thereby paying for the higher wage rates. The fallacy here is that only increased saving can make more capital available. Capital investment is limited by saving. Union wage increases do not increase the total supply of capital available. Therefore, there can be no general rise in labor productivity. Instead, the potential supply of capital is shifted, not increased, from other industries to those industries with higher wage rates, and it is shifted to industries where it would have been less profitable under non-union conditions. The fact that an induced higher wage rate shifts capital to the industry does not indicate economic progress, but rather an attempt, never fully successful, to offset an economic retrogression, a higher cost in the manufacture of the product. Hence, the shift is uneconomic. A related thesis is that higher wage rates will spur employers to invent new technological methods to make labor more efficient. Here again, however, the supply of capital goods is limited by the savings available, and there is almost always a sheaf of technological opportunities awaiting more capital anyway. Furthermore, the spur of competition and the desire of the producer to keep and increase his custom is enough of an incentive to increase productivity in his firm, without the added burden of unionism. 5. The Theory of Monopolistic or Imperfect Competition A. Monopolistic Competitive Price the theory of monopoly price has been generally superseded in the literature by the theories of monopolistic or imperfect competition. As against the older theory, the latter have the advantage of setting up identifiable criteria for their categories, such as a perfectly elastic demand for pure competition. Unfortunately, these criteria turn out to be completely fallacious. Essentially, the chief characteristic of the imperfect competition theories is that they uphold as their ideal the state of pure competition rather than competition or free competition. Pure competition is defined as that state in which the demand presented to each firm in the economy is perfectly elastic. In this supposedly pristine state of affairs, no one firm can, through its actions, possibly have any influence over the price of its product. 
Its price is then set for it by the market. Any amount it produces can and will be sold at this ruling price. In general, it is this state of affairs, or else this state without uncertainty, perfect competition, that has received most of the elaborate analysis in recent years. This is true both for those who believe that pure competition fairly well represents the real economy, and for their opponents who consider it only an ideal with which to contrast the actual monopolistic state of affairs. Both camps, however, join in upholding pure competition as the ideal system for the general welfare, in contrast to various vague monopoloid states that occur when there is departure from the purely competitive world. The pure competition theory, however, is an utterly fallacious one. It envisages an absurd state of affairs never realizable in practice and far from idyllic if it were. In the first place, there can be no such thing as a firm without influence on its price. The monopolistic competition theorist contrasts this ideal firm with those firms that have some influence on the determination of price and are therefore in some degree monopolistic. Yet it is obvious that the demand presented to a firm cannot be perfectly elastic throughout. At some points, increase in supply will tend to lower market price. In aggregating market demand, we saw that for each hypothetical price, the consumers will decide to purchase a certain amount. If the producers attempt to sell a larger amount, they will have to conclude their sale at a lower price in order to attract an increased demand. Even a very small increase in supply will lead to a perhaps very small lowering of price. The individual firm, no matter how small, always has a perceptible influence on the total supply. In an industry of small wheat farms, the implicit model for pure competition, each small farm contributes a part of the total supply, and there can be no total without a contribution from each farm. Therefore, each farm has a perceptible, even if very small, influence. No perfectly elastic demand can then be postulated even in such a case. The error in believing in perfect elasticity stems from the use of such mathematical concepts as second order of smalls, by which infinite negligibility of steps can be assumed. But economics analyzes real human action, and such real action must always be concerned with discrete, perceptible steps, and never with infinitely small steps. Of course, the demand for each small wheat farm is likely to be very highly, almost perfectly, elastic. And yet, the fact that it is not perfect destroys the entire concept of pure competition. For how does this situation differ from, say, the Hershey Chocolate Company, if the demand for the latter firm's products is also elastic?
According to the monopolistic competition theorists, the two influences sabotaging the possible existence of pure competition are differentiation of product and oligopoly, or fewness of firms, where one firm influences the actions of others. As to the former, the producers are accused of creating an artificial differentiation among products in the mind of the public, thus carving out for themselves a portion of monopoly. And E. H. Chamberlain originally attempted to distinguish groups of producers selling slightly differentiated products from old-fashioned industries of firms making identical products. Neither of these attempts has any validity. If a producer is making a product different from that of another producer, then he is a unique industry. There is no rational basis for any grouping of varied producers, particularly in aggregating their demand. Furthermore, the consuming public decides on the differentiation of products on its value scales. There is nothing artificial about the differentiation, and, indeed, this differentiation serves to cater more closely to the multifarious wants of the consumers. Recently, Professor E. H. Chamberlain has conceded this point, and has, in a series of remarkable articles, astounded his followers by repudiating the concept of pure competition as a welfare ideal. Chamberlain now declares... The welfare ideal itself is correctly described as one of monopolistic competition. This seems to follow very directly from the recognition that human beings are individual, diverse in their tastes and desires, and, moreover, widely dispersed spatially. It is clear, of course, that Ford has a monopoly on the sale of Ford cars, but this is a full monopoly rather than a monopolistic tendency. Also, it is difficult to see what difference can come from the number of firms that are producing the same product, particularly once we discard the myth of pure competition and perfect elasticity. Much ado, indeed, has been made about strategies, warfare, etc., between oligopolists, but there is little point to such discussions. Either the firms are independent and therefore competing, or they are acting jointly and therefore cartelizing. There is no third alternative. Once the perfect elasticity myth has been discarded, it becomes clear that all the tedious discussion about the number and size of firms and groups and differentiation, etc., becomes irrelevant. It becomes relevant only for economic history and not for economic analysis. It might be objected that there is a substantial problem of oligopoly, that under oligopoly each firm has to take into account the reactions of competing firms, whereas under pure competition or differentiated products without oligopoly, each firm can operate in the blissful awareness that no competitor will take account of its actions or change its actions accordingly. Hiram Jones, the small wheat farmer, can set his production policy without wondering what Ezra Smith will do when he discovers what Jones' policy is. 
Ford, on the other hand, must consider General Motors' reactions, and vice versa. Many writers, in fact, have gone so far as to maintain that economics can simply not be applied to these oligopoly situations, that these are indeterminate situations where anything may happen. They define the buyer's demand that presents itself to the firm as assuming no reaction by competing firms. Then, since few firms exist and each firm takes account of the reactions of others, they proceed to the conclusion that in the real world all is chaos, incomprehensible to economic analysis. These alleged difficulties are non-existent, however. There is no reason why the demand presented to a firm cannot include expected reactions by other firms. The demand presented to a firm is the set of a firm's expectations at any time of how many units of its product consumers will buy at an alternative series of prices. What interests the producer is the hypothetical set of consumer demands at each price. He is not interested in what consumer demand will be in various sets of non-existent situations. His expectations will be based on his judgment of what would actually happen should he charge various alternative prices. If his rivals will react in a certain way to his charging a higher or a lower price, then it is each firm's business to forecast and take account of this reaction, insofar as it will affect buyer's demand for its particular product. There would be little sense in ignoring such reactions if they were relevant to the demand for its product, or in including them if they were not. A firm's estimated demand, therefore, already includes any expected reactions of rivals. The relevant consideration is not the fewness of the firms or the state of hostility or friendship existing among firms. Those writers who discuss oligopoly in terms applicable to games of poker or to military warfare are entirely in error. The fundamental business of production is service to the consumers for monetary gain, and not some sort of game or warfare or any other sort of struggle between producers. In oligopoly, where several firms are producing an identical product, there cannot persist any situation in which one firm charges a higher price than another, since there is always a tendency toward the formation of a uniform price for each uniform product. Whenever firm A attempts to sell its product higher or lower than the previously ruling market price, it is attempting to discover the market, to find out what the equilibrium market price is in accordance with the present state of consumer demand. If at a certain price for the product, consumer demand is in excess of supply, the firms will tend to raise the price and vice versa if the produced stock is not being sold. In this familiar pathway to equilibrium, all the stock that the firms wish to sell clears the market at the highest price that can be obtained. 
the jockeying and raising and lowering of prices that takes place in oligopolistic industries is not some mysterious form of warfare, but the visible process of attempting to find market equilibrium, that price at which the quantity supplied and the quantity demanded will be equal. The same process indeed takes place in any market, such as the non-oligopolistic wheat or strawberry markets. In the latter markets, the process seems to the viewer more impersonal, because the actions of any one individual or firm are not as important or as strikingly visible as in the more oligopolistic industries. But the process is essentially the same, and we must not be led to think differently by such often inapt metaphors as the automatic mechanisms of the market or the soulless impersonal forces on the market. All action on the market is necessarily personal. Machines may move, but they do not purposefully act. And in oligopoly situations, the rivalries, the feelings of one producer toward his competitors may be historically dramatic, but they are unimportant for economic analysis. To those who are still tempted to make the number of producers in any field the test of competitive merit, we might ask, setting aside the problem of proving homogeneity, how can the market create sufficient numbers? If Crusoe exchanges fish for Friday's lumber on their desert island, are they both benefiting? Or are they bilateral monopolists exploiting each other and charging each other monopoly prices? But if the state is not justified in marching in to arrest Crusoe and or Friday, how can it be justified in coercing a market where there are obviously many more competitors? Economic analysis, in conclusion, fails to establish any criterion for separating any elements of the free market price for a product. Such questions as the number of firms in an industry, the sizes of the firms, the type of product each firm makes, the personalities or motives of the entrepreneurs, the location of plants, etc., are entirely determined by the concrete conditions and data of the particular case. Economic analysis can have nothing to say about them. B. The Paradox of Excess Capacity Perhaps the most important conclusion of the theory of monopolistic or imperfect competition is that the real world of monopolistic competition is inferior to the ideal world of pure competition, where no firm can affect its price. The only assumption we need to understand this is that for any plant in any branch of production, there will be some optimum point of production, that is, some level of output at which average unit cost is at a minimum. All levels of production lower or higher than the optimum have a higher average cost. In pure competition, where the demand presented to any firm is perfectly elastic, each firm will eventually adjust so that its total costs equal total revenues and profits are zero. 
Now contrast this picture with that of monopolistic competition. Monopolistic competition yields higher prices and less production, that is, a lower standard of living, than pure competition. For output will not take place at the point of minimum average cost, clearly a social optimum, and each plant will produce at a lower than optimum level, that is, it will have excess capacity. By a process of revision in recent years, some of it by the originators of the doctrine themselves, this theory has been effectively riddled beyond repair. As we have seen, Chamberlain and others have shown that this analysis does not apply if we are to take consumer desire for diversity as a good to be satisfied. Many other effective and sound attacks have been made from different directions. One basic argument is that the situations of pure and of monopolistic competition cannot be compared. Chamberlain has pursued his revisionism in this realm also, declaring that the comparisons are wholly illegitimate, that to apply the concept of pure competition to existing firms would mean, for example, assuming a very large number of similar firms producing the identical product. If this were done, say, with General Motors, it would mean that either GM must conceptually be divided up into numerous fragments, or else that it be multiplied. If divided, then unit costs would undoubtedly be higher, and then the competitive firm would suffer higher costs and have to subsist on higher prices. This would clearly injure consumers and the standard of living. Thus, Chamberlain follows Schumpeter's criticism that the monopolistic firm may well have, and probably will have, lower costs than its purely competitive counterpart. If, on the other hand, we conceive of the multiplication of a very large number of General Motors corporations at existing size, we cannot possibly relate it to the present world, and the whole comparison becomes absurd. In addition, Schumpeter has stressed the superiority of the monopolistic firm for innovation and progress, and J.M. Clark has shown the inapplicability in various ways of this static theory to the dynamic real world. He has recently shown its fallacious asymmetry of argument with respect to price and quality. Hayek and Lachman have also pointed out the distortion of dynamic reality as we have indicated. A second major line of attack has shown the vital importance of potential competition to any would-be reaper of monopoly price from firms both within and without the industry, and also the competition of substitutes between industries. All these arguments, added to our own analysis, have effectively demolished the theory of monopolistic competition, and yet more remains to be said. There is something very peculiar about the entire construction, even on its own terms, and practically no one has pointed out these other grave defects in the theory. In an economy that is almost altogether monopolistically competitive, how can every firm produce too little and charge too much? What happens to the surplus factors? What are they doing? 
The failure to raise this question stems from the modern neglect of Austrian general analysis and from undue concentration on an isolated firm or industry. The excess factors must go somewhere, and in that case, must they not go to other monopolistically competitive firms? In which case, the thesis breaks down as self-contradictory. But the proponents have prepared a way out. They take, first, the case of pure competition. Then they assume a sudden shift to conditions of monopolistic competition. Then the firm restricts production and raises its price accordingly, reaps profits, attracts new firms entering the industry, and the new competition reduces the output saleable by each firm. Hence, say the monopolistic competition theorists, not only does monopolistic competition suffer from too little production in each firm and excessive costs and prices, it also suffers from too many firms in each industry. Here is what has happened to the excess factors. They are trapped in too many uneconomic firms. This seems plausible until we realize that the whole example has been constructed as a trick. If we isolate a firm or an industry as does the example, we may just as well start from a position of monopolistic competition and then suddenly shift to conditions of pure competition. This is certainly just as legitimate, or rather illegitimate, a base for comparison. What then? It will now be profitable for each firm to expand its output, and it will then make profits. New firms will then be attracted into the industry. Are we now proving that there are more firms in an industry under pure than under monopolistic competition? The author first learned this particular piece of analysis from the classroom lectures of Professor Arthur F. Burns, and, to our knowledge, it has never seen print. The fundamental error here is failure to see that under the conditions established by the assumptions, any change opening up profits will bring new firms into an industry. Yet the theorists are supposed to be comparing two different static equilibria of pure and of monopolistic competition and not discussing paths from one to the other. Thus, the monopolistic competition theorists have by no means solved their problem of surplus factors. But aside from this point, there are more difficulties in the theory, and Sir Roy Herod, himself one of its originators, is the only one to have seized the essence of the remaining central difficulty. As Herod says, if the entrepreneur foresees the trend of events, which will in due course limit his profitable output to X minus Y units, why not plan to have a plant that will produce X minus Y units most cheaply, rather than encumber himself with excess capacity? To plan a plant for producing X units while knowing that it will only be possible to maintain an output of X minus Y units is surely to suffer from schizophrenia. And yet, asserts Herod puzzledly, the accepted doctrine apparently deems it impossible to be an entrepreneur and not suffer from schizophrenia. Clearly, here is a patent contradiction with reality. What is wrong?
Herod's own answer is an excellent and novel discussion of the difference between long-run and short-run demand, with the long-run always being a factor in entrepreneurial planning, but he does not precisely answer this question. The paradox becomes curiouser and curiouser when we fully realize that it all hinges on a mathematical technicality, but we must never let reality be falsified in order to fit the niceties of mathematics. In fact, production is a series of discrete alternatives, as all human action is discrete, and cannot be smoothly continuous, that is, move in infinitely small steps from one production level to another. There is another way for this pseudo-problem to disappear, and that is to call into question the entire assumption that total costs and total revenues of the firm will be equal, since profits as well as losses will be zero. But a key question has been either overlooked or wrongly handled. Why should the firm produce anything, after all, if it earns nothing from doing so? But it will earn something in equilibrium, and that will be interest return. Modern orthodoxy has fallen into this error for one reason, because it does not realize that entrepreneurs are also capitalists, and that even if in an evenly rotating economy the strictly entrepreneurial function were no longer to be required, the capital-advancing function would still be emphatically necessary. Modern theory also tends to view interest return as a cost to the firm. Naturally, if this is done, then the presence of interest does not change matters. But, and here we refer the reader to foregoing chapters, interest is not a cost to the firm. It is an earning by a firm. The contrary belief rests on a superficial concentration on loan interest and on an unwarranted separation between entrepreneurs and capitalists. Actually, loans are unimportant and are only another legal form of entrepreneurial capitalist investment. In short, in the evenly rotating economy, the firm earns a natural interest return, dictated by social time preference. And so the paradox of the monopolistic competition theory is finally and fully interred. C. Chamberlain and Selling Cost One of Professor Chamberlain's most important contributions is alleged to have been his sharp distinction between selling cost and production cost. Production costs are supposed to be the legitimate expenses needed to increase supply in order to meet given consumer demand schedules. Selling costs, on the other hand, are supposed to be directed toward influencing consumers and increasing their demand schedules for the firm's product. This distinction is completely spurious. Why does a businessman invest money and incur any costs whatever to supply a hoped-for demand for his product? Every time he improves his product, he is hoping that consumers will respond by increasing their demands. 
In fact, all costs expended on raw materials are incurred in an attempt to increase consumer demand beyond what it would have been in the absence of these costs. Therefore, every production cost is also a selling cost. Conversely, selling costs are not the sheer waste or even tyranny that monopolistic competition theorists have usually assumed. The various expenses designated as selling costs perform definite services for the public. Basically, they furnish information to the public about the goods of the seller. We live in a world where there can be no perfect knowledge of products by anyone, especially consumers, who are faced with a myriad of available products. Selling costs are therefore important in providing information about the product as well as about the firm. In some cases, for example, displays, the selling cost itself directly improves the quality of the product in the mind of the consumer. It must always be remembered that the consumer is not simply buying a physical product. He may also be buying atmosphere prestige, service, etc., all of which have tangible reality to him and are valued accordingly. It is surely highly artificial to call bright ribbons on a packaged good a production cost, while labeling bright ribbons decorating the store selling the good as a selling cost. The view that a selling cost is somehow an artifact of monopolistic competition stems only from the peculiar assumptions of pure competition. In the ideal world of pure competition, we remember, each firm's demand is given to it as infinitely elastic so that it can sell whatever it wants at the ruling price. Naturally, in such a situation, no selling costs are necessary because a market for a product is automatically assured. In the real world, however, there is no perfect knowledge, and demand is neither given nor infinitely elastic. Therefore, firms have to try to increase demands for their products and to carve out market areas for themselves. Chamberlain falls into another error in implying that selling costs, such as advertising, create consumer demands. This is the determinist fallacy. Every man, as a self-owner, freely decides his own scale of valuations. On the free market, no one can force another to choose his product, and no other individual can ever create someone's values for him. He must adopt the value himself. As Mises puts it, the consumer is, according to legend, simply defenseless against high-pressure advertising. If this were true, success or failure in business would depend on the mode of advertising only. However, nobody believes that any kind of advertising would have succeeded in making the candle makers hold the field against the electric bulb the horse drivers against the motor cars, but this implies that the quality of the commodity advertised is instrumental in bringing about the success of an advertising campaign. The tricks and artifices of advertising are available to the seller of the better product no less than to the seller of the poorer product. 
but only the former enjoys the advantages derived from the better quality of his product. 6. Multiform Prices and Monopoly Up to this point, we have always concluded that the market tends at any given time to establish one uniform market price for any good under competitive or monopoly conditions. One phenomenon that sometimes appears, however, is persistent multiformity of prices. We must consider, of course, a good that is really homogeneous. Otherwise, there would merely be price differences for different goods. How, then, can multiformity come about, and does it in some sense violate the workings or the ethics of a free market society? We must first separate goods into two kinds, those that are resaleable and those that are not. Under the latter category come all intangible services, which are either consumed directly or used up in the process of production. In any case, they themselves cannot be resold by the first buyer. Non-resaleable services also include the rental use of a tangible good, for then the good itself is not being bought, but rather its unit services over a period of time. An example may be the renting of space in a freight car. Let us first take resaleable goods. When can there be persistent multiform pricing of such goods? One necessary condition is clearly ignorance on the part of some seller or buyer. The market price for a certain kind of steel, for example, may be one gold ounce per ton, but one seller, out of pure ignorance, may persist in selling it for half a gold ounce per ton. What will happen? In the first place, some enterprising person will buy the steel from this laggard and resell it at the market price, thus establishing effective uniformity. Secondly, other buyers will rush to outbid the first buyer for the bargain, thus informing the seller of his underpricing. Finally, the persistently ignorant seller will not long remain in business. Of course, it may happen that the seller may have a strong desire to sell steel for lower than market price, for philanthropic reasons. But if he persists in doing so, then he is simply purchasing the consumer's good, to him, of philanthropy, and paying the price for it in lower revenue. He is here acting as a consumer rather than as an entrepreneur, just as he would if he hired his ne'er-do-well nephew at the expense of a cut in profits. This, then, would not be a genuine case of multiform pricing, where the good must always be homogeneous. Nor is the buyer in a different condition. If a buyer were ignorant and continued to buy steel at two gold ounces a ton when the market price was one gold ounce, then some other seller would soon apprise the buyer of his error by offering to sell him the steel for much less. If there is only one seller, then the cheaper buyer can still resell at a profit to the buyer charged a higher price and a persistently ignorant buyer will also go out of business.
There is only one case where a multi-form price could possibly be established for a resaleable good, where the good is being sold to consumers, the ultimate buyers. For while entrepreneurial buyers will be alert to price differentials, and a buyer of a good at a lower price can resell to another buyer charged a higher price, ultimate consumers do not usually consider reselling once they buy. A classic case is that of American tourists at a Middle Eastern bazaar. The tourist has neither the time nor the inclination to make a thorough study of the consumer markets, and therefore each tourist is ignorant of the going price of any good. Hence, the seller can isolate each buyer, charging highest prices to the most eager buyers, less high prices to the next most eager, and much lower prices to the marginal buyers of the same good. In that way, the seller achieves a generally unfulfilled objective of all sellers: the tapping of more of the consumer's surplus of the buyers. Here, the two conditions are fulfilled: the consumers are ignorant of the going price and are not in the market to resell. Does multi-form pricing, as has often been charged, distort the structure of production, and is it in some way immoral? Or exploitative? How is it immoral? The seller aims, as always, to maximize his earnings in voluntary exchange, and he certainly cannot be held responsible for the ignorance of the buyer. If buyers do not take the trouble to inform themselves of the state of the market, they must stand prepared to have some of their psychic surplus tapped by the bargaining of the seller. Neither is this action irrational on the part of the buyer, for we must deduce from the buyer's action that he prefers to remain in ignorance rather than to make the effort or pay the money to inform himself of market conditions. To acquire knowledge of any field takes time, effort, and often money. And it is perfectly reasonable for an individual on any given market to prefer to take his chances on the price and use his scarce resources in other directions. This choice is crystal clear in the case of a tourist on holiday, but it is also possible in any other given market. Both the impatient tourist who prefers to pay a higher price and not spend time and money on learning about the market. And a companion who spends days on an intensive study of the bazaar market are exercising their preferences, and praxeology cannot call one or the other more rational. Furthermore, there is no way to measure the consumer surpluses lost or gained in the case of the two tourists. We must therefore conclude that multi-form pricing, in the case of resaleable goods, does not at all distort the allocation of productive factors, because, on the contrary, it is consistent with, and in the case of the tourist, the only pricing consistent with the satisfaction of consumer preferences. It must be emphasized here that no matter how much the seller at the bazaar taps of his customer's psychic surplus, he does not tap it all. Otherwise, the sale would not be made at all. Since the exchange is voluntary, both parties still benefit from making it.
What if the good is not resaleable? In that case, there is far greater room for multiform pricing, since ignorance is not required. A vendor can sell an intangible service at a higher price to A than to B without fear that B can undercut him by reselling to A. Hence, most actual cases of multiform pricing take place in the realm of intangible goods. Suppose now that seller X has managed to establish multiform prices for his customers. He might be a lawyer, for example, who charges higher fees for the same service to a wealthy than to a poor client. Since there is still competition among sellers, why does another lawyer Y not enter the field and undercut X's price to the wealthy clients? In fact, this is what will generally happen, and any attempt to establish separate markets among customers will lead to an invasion of the more profitable, higher price field by other competitors, finally driving the price down, reducing revenues, and re-establishing uniform pricing. If a seller's service is unusual and it is universally recognized that he has no effective competitors, then he might be able to sustain a multi-form structure. There is one simple but very important condition that we have not mentioned, which must be fulfilled to establish multi-form pricing. The total proceeds from multi-formity must be greater than from uniformity. Where one buyer can buy only one unit of a good, this is no problem. If there is and can be only one seller of a non-resaleable good, and each buyer can buy no more than one unit, then multi-form pricing will tend to be established, barring undercutting by competitors, since the total revenue to the seller will always be greater through tapping more of the consumer surpluses of each buyer. It is difficult to conceive of a case in reality to which such a restriction imposed on buyers, called perfect price discrimination, would apply. Joan Robinson cites as an example a ransom charged by a kidnapper, but this, of course, does not obtain on the free, unhampered market, which precludes kidnapping. But if a buyer can buy more than one unit, revenue becomes a problem. For then, each buyer, confronted with a higher price, will restrict his purchases. This will leave an unsold stock, which the seller will then unload by lowering his prices below the hypothetical uniform price in order to tap the demands of hitherto sub-marginal buyers. Thus, suppose that the uniform price of a good is 10 gold grains per unit, at which 100 units are sold. The seller now decides to isolate each buyer as a separate market and tap more consumer surpluses. Aside from the barely marginal buyers, then, all the others will find their prices raised. They will restrict their purchases, say to an aggregate of 85 units, and the other 15 units will be sold by lowering the price to new, hitherto sub-marginal buyers. Multiformity can be established only when total proceeds are greater than uniformity provides. 
This is by no means always the case, for the supramarginal buyers may restrict their purchases by more than the submarginal buyers can compensate. Multiform pricing has been accorded a curious reception by economists and laymen. In some cases, it is deemed vicious exploitation of the consumers. In others, for example, medicine and education, it is considered praiseworthy and humanitarian. In reality, it is neither. It is certainly not the rule in pricing that the most eager should pay in proportion to their eagerness, in practice usually gauged by their wealth, for then everyone would pay in proportion to his wealth for everything, and the entire monetary and economic system would break down, money would no longer function. If this is clear in general, it is difficult to see a priori why specific goods should be singled out for this treatment. On the other hand, the consumers are not being exploited if there is multiformity. It is clear that the marginal and submarginal buyers are not exploited, the latter obviously gain. What of the supramarginal buyers who are receiving less consumer surplus? In some cases, they gain because without the greater revenues provided by price discrimination, the good would not be supplied at all. Consider, for example, a country doctor who would leave the area if he had to subsist on the lower revenues provided by uniformity. And even if the good were still supplied, the fact that the supramarginal buyers continue to patronize the seller at all shows that they are content with the seemingly discriminatory arrangement. Otherwise, they would quickly boycott the seller, either individually or in concert, and patronize competitors. They would simply refuse to pay more than the submarginal buyers and this would quickly induce the seller to lower his prices. The fact that they do not do so shows that they prefer multiformity to uniformity in the particular case. An example is private school education, which able but poor youths may often attend on scholarships, a principle that the wealthy parents who pay full tuition demonstrably do not consider unjust. If, however, the sellers have received grants of monopolistic privilege by the government, enabling them to restrict competition in the serving of the supramarginal buyers, then they may establish multiformity without enjoying the demonstrable preference of these buyers. For here, governmental coercion has entered to inhibit the free expression of preferences. An example is medicine, where the government helps to restrict the supply and thus to prevent price cutting. So far we have discussed price discrimination by sellers in consumers' markets, where consumer surpluses are tapped. Can there be such discrimination in producers' markets? Only when the good is not resaleable, total proceeds are greater under multiformity, and the supramarginal buyers are willing to pay. The latter will happen when these buyers have a higher DMVP for the good in their firms than other buyers have in theirs. In this case, the seller of the good with multiform prices is absorbing a rent formerly earned by the supramarginal buying firm. 
The most notable case of such pricing has been railroad freight, discrimination against the firms shipping a cargo more valuable per unit weight than that of other firms. The gains are not, of course, retained by the railroad in the long run, but absorbed by its own land and labor factors. Can there be price discrimination by buyers when the good is not resaleable and ignorance among sellers is not assumed? No, there cannot. For the minimum reserve price imposed by, say, a laborer is determined by the opportunity cost he has foregone elsewhere. In short, if a man earns five gold ounces a week for his labor service in firm A, he will not accept two ounces a week, although he would take two rather than earn nothing at all, since he can earn nearly five ounces somewhere else. And the meaning of price discrimination against sellers is that a buyer would be able to pay less for the same good than the seller can earn elsewhere. Cost of moving, etc., omitted. Hence, there can be no price discrimination against sellers. If sellers are ignorant, then, as in the case of the ignorant consumers at a bazaar, we must infer that they prefer the lower income to the cost and trouble of learning more about the market. Seven, patents and copyrights. Turning now to patents and copyrights, we ask which of the two, if either, is consonant with the purely free market, and which is a grant of monopoly privilege by the state. In this part, we have been analyzing the economics of the purely free market, where the individual person and property are not subject to molestation. It is therefore important to decide whether patents or copyrights will obtain in the purely free, non-invasive society, or whether they are a function of government interference. Almost all writers have bracketed patents and copyrights together. Most have considered both as grants of exclusive monopoly privilege by the state. A few have considered both as part and parcel of property right on the free market, but almost everyone has considered patents and copyrights as equivalent. The one as conferring an exclusive property right in the field of mechanical inventions, the other as conferring an exclusive right in the field of literary creations. Yet this bracketing of patents and copyrights is wholly fallacious. The two are completely different in relation to the free market. It is true that a patent and a copyright are both exclusive property rights, and it is also true that they are both property rights in innovations. But there is a crucial difference in their legal enforcement. If an author or a composer believes his copyright is being infringed and he takes legal action, he must prove that the defendant had access to the work allegedly infringed. If the defendant produces something identical with the plaintiff's work by mere chance, there is no infringement. Copyrights, in other words, have their basis in prosecution of implicit theft. The plaintiff must prove that the defendant stole the former's creation by reproducing it and selling it himself in violation of his or someone else's contract with the original seller. 
But if the defendant independently arrives at the same creation, the plaintiff has no copyright privilege that could prevent the defendant from using and selling his product. Patents, on the other hand, are completely different. Thus, one how-to writer on patents declares, You have patented your invention, and you read in the newspaper one day that John Doe, who lives in a city 2,000 miles from your town, has invented an identical or similar device, that he has licensed the EZ Company to manufacture it. Neither Doe nor the EZ Company ever heard of your invention. All believe Doe to be the inventor of a new and original device. They may all be guilty of infringing your patent. The fact that their infringement was in ignorance of the true facts and unintentional will not constitute a defense. Patent, then, has nothing to do with implicit theft. It confers an exclusive privilege on the first inventor, and if anyone else should, quite independently, invent the same or similar machine or product, the latter would be debarred by violence from using it in production. We have seen in Chapter 2 that the acid test by which we judge whether or not a certain practice or law is or is not consonant with the free market is this. Is the outlawed practice implicit or explicit theft? If it is, then the free market would outlaw it. If not, then its outlawry is itself government interference in the free market. Let us consider copyright. A man writes a book or composes music. When he publishes the book or sheet of music, he imprints on the first page the word copyright. This indicates that any man who agrees to purchase this product also agrees as part of the exchange not to recopy or reproduce this work for sale. In other words, the author does not sell his property outright to the buyer. He sells it on condition that the buyer not reproduce it for sale. Since the buyer does not buy the property outright, but only on this condition, any infringement of the contract by him or a subsequent buyer is implicit theft and would be treated accordingly on the free market. The copyright is therefore a logical device of property right on the free market. Part of the patent protection now obtained by an inventor could be achieved on the free market by a type of copyright protection. Thus, inventors must now mark their machines as being patented. The mark puts the buyers on notice that the invention is patented and that they cannot sell that article. But the same could be done to extend the copyright system and without patent. In the purely free market, the inventor could mark his machine copyright, and then anyone who buys the machine buys it on the condition that he will not reproduce and sell such a machine for profit. Any violation of this contract would constitute implicit theft and be prosecuted accordingly on the free market. The patent is incompatible with the free market precisely to the extent that it goes beyond the copyright. 
The man who has not bought a machine and who arrives at the same invention independently will, on the free market, be perfectly able to use and sell his invention. Patents prevent a man from using his invention, even though all the property is his, and he has not stolen the invention, either explicitly or implicitly, from the first inventor. Patents, therefore, are grants of exclusive monopoly privilege by the state, and are invasive of property rights on the market. The crucial distinction between patents and copyrights, then, is not that one is mechanical and the other literary. The fact that they have been applied that way is an historical accident and does not reveal the critical difference between them. This can be seen in the field of designs, which can be either copyrighted or patented. The crucial difference is that copyright is a logical attribute of property right on the free market, while patent is a monopoly invasion of that right. The application of patents to mechanical inventions and copyrights to literary works is peculiarly inappropriate. It would be more in keeping with the free market to be just the reverse. For literary creations are unique products of the individual. It is almost impossible for them to be independently duplicated by someone else. Therefore, a patent instead of a copyright for literary productions would make little difference in practice. On the other hand, mechanical inventions are discoveries of natural law rather than individual creations, and hence similar independent inventions occur all the time. The simultaneity of inventions is a familiar historical fact. Hence, if it is desired to maintain a free market, it is particularly important to allow copyrights, but not patents, for mechanical inventions. The common law has often been a good guide to the law consonant with the free market. Hence, it is not surprising that common law copyright prevails for unpublished literary manuscripts, while there is no such thing as a common law patent. At common law, the inventor also has the right to keep his invention unpublicized and safe from theft, that is, he has the equivalent of the copyright protection for unpublicized inventions. On the free market, there would, therefore, be no such thing as patents. There would, however, be copyright for any inventor or creator who made use of it, and this copyright would be perpetual, not limited to a certain number of years. Obviously, to be fully the property of an individual, a good has to be permanently and perpetually the property of the man and his heirs and assigns. If the state decrees that a man's property ceases at a certain date, this means that the state is the real owner, and that it simply grants the man use of the property for a certain period of time. Of course, there would be nothing to prevent the creator or his heirs from voluntarily abandoning this property right and throwing it into the public domain if they so desired. Some defenders of patents assert that they are not monopoly privileges, but simply property rights in inventions or even in ideas. 
But as we have seen, everyone's property right is defended in libertarian law without a patent. If someone has an idea or plan and constructs an invention and it is stolen from his house, the stealing is an act of theft, illegal under general law. On the other hand, patents actually invade the property rights of those independent discoverers of an idea or invention who made the discovery after the patentee. Patents, therefore, invade rather than defend property rights. The speciousness of this argument that patents protect property rights in ideas is demonstrated by the fact that not all, but only certain types of original ideas, certain types of innovations, are considered patentable. Another common argument for patents is that society is simply making a contract with the inventor to purchase his secret, so that society will have use of it. In the first place, society could pay a straight subsidy or price to the inventor. It would not have to prevent all later inventors from marketing their inventions in this field. Secondly, there is nothing in the free economy to prevent any individual or group of individuals from purchasing secret inventions from their creators. No monopolistic patent is necessary. The most popular argument for patents among economists is the utilitarian one that a patent for a certain number of years is necessary to encourage a sufficient amount of research expenditure for inventions and innovations in processes and products. This is a curious argument, because the question immediately arises, by what standard do you judge that research expenditures are too much, too little, or just about enough? This is a problem faced by every governmental intervention in the market's production. Resources, the better lands, laborers, capital goods, time in society, are limited and they may be used for countless alternative ends. By what standard does someone assert that certain uses are excessive, that certain uses are insufficient, etc.? Someone observes that there is little investment in Arizona but a great deal in Pennsylvania. He indignantly asserts that Arizona deserves more investment. But what standards can he use to make this claim? The market does have a rational standard. The highest money incomes and highest profits for these can be achieved only through maximum service of consumer desires. This principle of maximum service to consumers and producers alike, that is, to everybody, governs the seemingly mysterious market allocation of resources. How much to devote to one firm or to another to one area or another, to present or future, to one good or another, to research as compared with other forms of investment. But the observer who criticizes this allocation can have no rational standards for decision. He has only his arbitrary whim. This is especially true of criticism of production relations. Someone who chides consumers for buying too much cosmetics may have, rightly or wrongly, some rational basis for his criticism. 
but someone who thinks that more or less of a certain resource should be used in a certain manner, or that business firms are too large or too small, or that too much or too little is spent on research or is invested in a new machine, can have no rational basis for his criticism. Businesses, in short, are producing for a market, guided by the ultimate valuations of consumers on that market. Outside observers may criticize ultimate valuations of consumers if they choose, although if they interfere with consumption based on these valuations, they impose a loss of utility upon consumers. But they cannot legitimately criticize the means, the production relations, the allocation of factors, etc., by which these ends are served. Capital funds are limited, and they must be allocated to various uses, one of which is research expenditures. On the market, rational decisions are made in setting research expenditures in accordance with the best entrepreneurial expectations of an uncertain future. Coercively to encourage research expenditures would distort and hamper the satisfaction of consumers and producers on the market. Many advocates of patents believe that the ordinary competitive conditions of the market do not sufficiently encourage the adoption of new processes, and that therefore innovations must be coercively promoted by the government. But the market decides on the rate of introduction of new processes, just as it decides on the rate of industrialization of a new geographic area. In fact, this argument for patents is very similar to the infant industry argument for tariffs, that market processes are not sufficient to permit the introduction of worthwhile new processes. And the answer to both these arguments is the same, that people must balance the superior productivity of the new processes against the cost of installing them that is, against the advantage possessed by the old process in being already built and in existence. Coercively privileging innovation would needlessly scrap valuable plants already in existence and impose an excessive burden upon consumers, for consumers' desires would not be satisfied in the most economic manner. It is by no means self-evident that patents encourage an increased absolute quantity of research expenditures, but certainly patents distort the type of research expenditure being conducted. For while it is true that the first discoverer benefits from the privilege, it is also true that his competitors are excluded from production in the area of the patent for many years. And since one patent can build upon a related one in the same field, competitors can often be indefinitely discouraged from further research expenditures in the general area covered by the patent. Moreover, the patentee is himself discouraged from engaging in further research in this field, for the privilege permits him to rest on his laurels for the entire period of the patent, with the assurance that no competitor can trespass on his domain. The competitive spur for further research is eliminated.
Research expenditures are therefore overstimulated in the early stages before anyone has a patent, and they are unduly restricted in the period after the patent is received. In addition, some inventions are considered patentable while others are not. The patent system, then, has the further effect of artificially stimulating research expenditures in the patentable areas, while artificially restricting research in the non-patentable areas. Manufacturers have by no means unanimously favored patents. R. A. McPhee, leader of England's flourishing patent abolition movement during the 19th century, was president of the Liverpool Chamber of Commerce. Manufacturer I. K. Brunel, before a committee of the House of Lords, deplored the effect of patents in stimulating wasteful expenditure of resources on searching for untried, patentable inventions—resources that could have been better used in production. And Austin Robinson has pointed out that many industries get along without patents. In practice, the enforcement of patent monopolies is often so difficult that competing manufacturers have, in some industries, preferred to pool patents and to look for sufficient reward for technical invention in the advantage of priority that earlier experimentation usually gives. And in the subsequent goodwill that may arise from it, as Arnold Plant summed up the problem of competitive research expenditures and innovations, neither can it be assumed that inventors would cease to be employed if entrepreneurs lost the monopoly over the use of their inventions. Businesses employ them today for the production of non-patentable inventions, and they do not do so merely for the profit which priority secures. In active competition, no business can afford to lag behind its competitors. The reputation of a firm depends upon its ability to keep ahead, to be first in the market with new improvements in its products and new reductions in their prices. Finally, of course, the market itself provides an easy and effective course for those who feel that there are not enough expenditures being made in certain directions. They can make these expenditures themselves. Those who would like to see more inventions made and exploited, therefore, are at liberty to join together and subsidize such effort in any way they think best. In that way, they would, as consumers, add resources to the research and invention business, and they would not then be forcing other consumers to lose utility by conferring monopoly grants and distorting the market's allocations. Their voluntary expenditures would become part of the market and express ultimate consumer valuations. Furthermore, later inventors would not be restricted. The friends of invention could accomplish their aim without calling in the state and imposing losses on a large number of people. Chapter Eleven: Money and Its Purchasing Power. One, Introduction. Money has entered into almost all our discussion so far. In Chapter Three, we saw how the economy evolved from barter to indirect exchange. 
we saw the patterns of indirect exchange and the types of allocations of income and expenditure that are made in a monetary economy. In Chapter 4, we discussed money prices and their formation, analyzed the marginal utility of money, and demonstrated how monetary theory can be subsumed under utility theory. In Chapter 6, we saw how monetary calculation in markets is essential to a complex developed economy, and we analyzed the structure of post-income and pre-income demands for and supplies of money on the time market. And from Chapter 2 on, all our discussion has dealt with a monetary exchange economy. The time has come to draw the threads of our analysis of the market together by completing our study of money and of the effects of changes in monetary relations on the economic system. In this chapter, we shall continue to conduct the analysis within the framework of the free market economy. 2. The Money Relation The Demand for and the Supply of Money Money is a commodity that serves as a general medium of exchange. Its exchanges, therefore, permeate the economic system. Like all commodities, it has a market demand and a market supply, although its special situation lends it many unique features. We saw in Chapter 4 that its price has no unique expression on the market. Other commodities are all expressible in terms of units of money, and therefore have uniquely identifiable prices. The money commodity, however, can be expressed only by an array of all the other commodities, that is, all the goods and services that money can buy on the market. This array has no uniquely expressible unit, and, as we shall see, changes in the array cannot be measured. Yet the concept of the price, or the value, of money, or the purchasing power of the monetary unit, is no less real and important for all that. It simply must be borne in mind that, as we saw in Chapter 4, there is no single price level or measurable unit by which the value array of money can be expressed. This exchange value of money also takes on peculiar importance because, unlike other commodities, the prime purpose of the money commodity is to be exchanged, now or in the future, for directly consumable or productive commodities. The total demand for money on the market consists of two parts— the exchange demand for money by sellers of all other goods that wish to purchase money, and the reservation demand for money, the demand for money to hold by those who already hold it. Because money is a commodity that permeates the market and is continually being supplied and demanded by everyone, and because the proportion which the existing stock of money bears to new production is high, it will be convenient to analyze the supply of and the demand for money in terms of the total demand stock analysis set forth in Chapter 2.
In contrast to other commodities, everyone on the market has both an exchange demand and a reservation demand for money. The exchange demand is his pre-income demand. As a seller of labor, land, capital goods, or consumers' goods, he must supply these goods and demand money in exchange to obtain a money income. Therefore, the exchange demand for money in terms of land, capital goods, and consumers' goods will tend to be perfectly inelastic. For labor services, the situation is more complicated. Labor, as we have seen, does have a reserved use, satisfying leisure. In determining labor's demand for money, however, we can be far more certain. To understand why, let us take a hypothetical example. At a wage rate of five gold grains an hour, 40 hours per week of labor service will be sold. Now suppose that the wage rate is raised to eight gold grains an hour. Some people might work a greater number of hours because they have a greater monetary inducement to sacrifice leisure for labor. They might work 50 hours per week. Others may decide that the increased income permits them to sacrifice some money and take some of the increased earnings in greater leisure. They might work 30 hours. Both would have one thing in common. Let us multiply hours by wage rate in each case to arrive at the total money income of the laborers in the various situations. In the original case, a laborer earned 40 times 5 or 200 gold grains per week. The man working 30 hours will earn 30 times 8 or 240 gold grains a week. The man working 50 hours will earn 50 times 8 or 400 gold grains per week. In both cases, the man earns more money at the higher wage rate. This will always be true. In the first case, it is obvious, for the higher wage rate induces the man to sell more labor. But it is true in the latter case as well. For the higher money income permits a man to gratify his desires for more leisure as well, precisely because he is getting an increased money income. Thus, a man will always earn more money at a higher wage rate, less money at a lower. But what is earning money but another name for buying money? And that is precisely what is done. People buy money by selling goods and services that they possess or can create. We are now attempting to arrive at the demand schedule for money in relation to various alternative purchasing powers or exchange values of money. A lower exchange value of money is equivalent to higher goods prices in terms of money. Conversely, a higher exchange value of money is equivalent to lower prices of goods. In the labor market, a higher exchange value of money is translated into lower wage rates, and a lower exchange value of money into higher wage rates. Hence, on the labor market, our law may be translated into the following terms. 
The higher the exchange value of money, the lower the quantity of money demanded. The lower the exchange value of money, the higher the quantity of money demanded. That is, the lower the wage rate, the less money earned, the higher the wage rate, the more money earned. More important, because more volatile, in the total demand for money on the market is the reservation demand to hold money. This is everyone's post-income demand. After everyone has acquired his income, he must decide, as we have seen, between the allocation of his money assets in three directions, consumption spending, investment spending, and addition to his cash balance, net hoarding. Furthermore, he has the additional choice of subtraction from his cash balance, net dishoarding. How much he decides to retain in his cash balance is uniquely determined by the marginal utility of money in his cash balance on his value scale. Until now, we have discussed at length the sources of the utilities and demands for consumers' goods and for producers' goods. We have now to look at the remaining good, money in the cash balance, its utility and demand. Let us suppose that a man's marginal utilities are such that he wishes to have 10 ounces of money held in his cash balance over a certain period. Suppose now that the exchange value of money, that is, the purchasing power of a monetary unit, increases, other things being equal. This means that his 10 gold ounces accomplish more work than they did before the change in the PPM, purchasing power of the monetary unit. As a consequence, he will tend to remove part of the 10 ounces from his cash balance and spend it on goods, the prices of which have now fallen. Therefore, the higher the PPM, the exchange value of money, the lower the quantity of money demanded in the cash balance. Conversely, a lower PPM will mean that the previous cash balance is worth less in real terms than it was before, while the higher prices of goods discourage their purchase. As a result, the lower the PPM, the higher the quantity of money demanded in the cash balance. There is a third demand for the money commodity that deserves mention. This is the demand for non-monetary uses of the monetary metal. This will be relatively unimportant in the advanced monetary economy, but it will exist nevertheless. In the case of gold, this will mean either uses in consumption, as for ornaments, or productive uses, as for industrial purposes. At any rate, this demand also falls as the PPM increases. As the price of money, PPM, increases, more goods can be obtained through expenditure of a unit of money. As a result, the opportunity cost in using gold for non-monetary purposes increases, and less is demanded for that purpose. Conversely, as the PPM falls, there is more incentive to use gold for its direct use. From this point on, this non-monetary demand is included for convenience in the total demand for money.
At any one time, there is a given total stock of the money commodity. This stock will, at any time, be owned by someone. It is therefore dangerously misleading to adopt the custom of American economists since Irving Fisher's day of treating money as somehow circulating, or worse still, as divided into circulating money and idle money. This concept conjures up the image of the former as moving somewhere at all times, while the latter sits idly in hordes. This is a grave error. There is actually no such thing as circulation, and there is no mysterious arena where money moves. At any one time, all the money is owned by someone, that is, rests in someone's cash balance. Whatever the stock of money, therefore, people's actions must bring it into accord with the total demand for money to hold, that is, the total demand for money that we have just discussed. For even pre-income money acquired in exchange must be held at least momentarily in one's cash balance before being transferred to someone else's balance. All total demand is therefore to hold, and this is in accord with our analysis of total demand in Chapter 2. Total stock must therefore be brought into agreement on the market with the total quantity of money demanded.